cocksucker Mizikowski. Cocksucker Misash. I don't know the guy's name. Cocksucker Cocksucker Mizikowski. Cocksucker Mizikowski. Cocksucker Mizikowski. Cocksucker Mizikowski. CSM. Cocksucker Mizikowski. Cocksucker Mizikowski. Cocksucker Mizikowski. Don't know. We know how CSM rolls. Plus, I'm really high right now. <laughs> Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I hope you didn't turn on the show with your kids around. We usually don't start off that obscene, but that was Martin Zamani who called out Bryn Kenny very recently, and he kept using that term over and over to describe alleged Bryn Kenny collusion accomplice David Mizikowski. And eventually it was abbreviated to CSM, and it's really caught on in the poker world. I actually wonder what it'll be like for David Mizikowski if he goes to the World Series of Poker this year. I don't think anyone's going to attack him or anything, but uh, I wonder if when he's walking around, like everyone's going to think of those words as they pass them. I wonder if people are going to go, oh, that's CSM. Hey, CSM, what's up? I wonder if that's going to happen. I mean, it's really ingrained in people's minds now. Even Brandon Shaq Harris, who usually doesn't troll anyone, changed his name on Twitter to Cocksucker Mizikowski. <laughs> anyway, we have more uh, Bryn Kenny discussion this week, as you might guess, because we had a development since our last show where I broke the whole thing down. Anyway, we're back here. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. This is May 4th, 2022, 9.43 p.m. We have a free roll. The $75 Fuck PayPal free roll. And if you're listening later and you say, oh, I would have wanted to be part of that. Well, guess what? We have another Fuck PayPal free roll next week. There are multiple Fuck PayPal free rolls that we're going to have in the month of May. And who do you think might have donated money for this free roll? How about one of the lead attorneys and the originator of this lawsuit from the attorney standpoint? And that would be Eric Benzamokin. Yes, thank you to him for sending money for this Fuck PayPal free roll. And there's a reason we have a Fuck PayPal free roll, aside from the fact that I agree with that sentiment that fuck PayPal for stealing money from our community and many other business communities around the world. And that's what they've been doing, as we've described many times on this show. But uh, we have an important update about that case against PayPal, where Eric Benzamokin is uh, leading the charge against them. They'll be coming up later in May, a very big day. So I'll give you that update at the beginning of the show before we get into the Bryn Kenny stuff. That free roll, 38 for first, 22 for second, 15 for third. 38, 22, and 15 are the prizes this week in the Fuck PayPal free roll on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It started at 9.30, so it's already going. It started before the show, but you still have 10 more minutes till 9.55 Pacific time to get into that free roll. You need to have a validated account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, but provided you have that and provided you can get to a computer or even your phone, it doesn't run great on phones, but it runs. You can you can play. It's a little bit of a pain in the ass, but you can play. Anyway, 9.55 is the cutoff time for the late registration. Always 25 minutes of late registration. And get right in there. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll is the list of rules. You must know the rules to qualify for the free money. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. 
and I can send you the prizes. I'm going to send out a batch of prizes pretty soon. I did the last one earlier this year, but I will send out a batch of them pretty soon again to catch up once again. That's what I do. So don't expect the money right away if you win, but you will get the money. Everybody gets paid. In fact, I keep track right on the forum of who's won, who's gotten paid, who hasn't gotten paid, etc. So you can see it. It's very clear if your name's on the list and it hasn't been sent back to the prize pool, which it does if you don't claim it for six months. But if you have not been paid and it doesn't say that it has been returned to the prize pool, or if it's been less than six months, it never will be, then just get a hold of me and I will pay you. So we will pay you by many different ways, by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by Bitcoin, by other cryptocurrencies, including Ethereum, including Bitcoin Cash, including Dogecoin, or by other methods you could think of to receive money on the internet. Just let me know how you'd like to receive the money. I'm just not going to send it to you on poker sites because I often get a request to send money on ACR and I don't play on ACR. I've never played on ACR, so I can't send you money on ACR. But this is real cash money that I'll send you in one of these other ways. It's not like one of these free rolls on other sites when they occasionally have them. Nobody has a free roll every week like we do for a radio show. We're the only one that does this. When they occasionally have, it's usually for money on some kind of site that's sponsoring them. This is just cash money I send you personally out of my own Jew wallet. And yes, I do have a Jew wallet. And it is very tightly closed. By the way, for those of you that might be listening who are Jewish and don't know me very well, I am not being anti-Semitic. I am actually Jewish. I'm fully Jewish. I was bar mitzvahed. I'm still Jewish. I'm proud to be Jewish. So this is not a derogatory term. I'm actually proud to have a tight Jew wallet because that has kept me from chunking off all my money like so many in the poker community have. Players who've done better than I have in poker are broke now because they did not have a tight Jew wallet. So I see it as a compliment. We have a chat room. You can go in the chat room if you're listening live. If you're not listening live, don't bother because nobody's in there. But if you're listening live, you can go in there and talk with uh, anyone else who might be in the chat room during the live show. You need a forum account in good standing to chat in there. And to be in good standing, you had to be validated. The phone number to call the show, as always, is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is how that breaks out. And remember, you can always... Text me at that same phone number, 775-372-8355, any time of the day, any time of the night, any day of the week, and I will respond to you, 775-372-8355. I've gotten a number of texts about hats, by the way. I am going to try to get those done pretty soon. I'm pumped up to do the hats. I know every year this kind of comes up, oh, maybe we should do hats, but I'm, I'm really getting pumped up to do the hats again. It's been nine years. I think it's time again. There's a number of you who just either didn't get one last time or did not uh, listen to the show back then and were not aware of the hats. So I'll have more hats made. And as I have always done on this site and previous sites I was part of, I'm going to send them out to you for free. I'm not going to charge you anything for the hats. I'll pay the shipping and I'm not going to charge you for the hat itself. I'm happy enough that you want to wear the hat. We have a call to listen line, which is very simple. You just call up and you listen. It's very, very easy. It does not require a smartphone or a data plan 
or a computer or the internet or an app. No, 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 no. It's very simple. You call up and listen. 605-313-0736 is the number. 605-313-0736 or the alternate call to listen line. 641-741-1095. They work the exact same way. They're just two different lines in case one goes down. And occasionally they both go down, but usually there's at least one working. And truthfully, both are just about always up. It's rare that it goes down. I do turn it off shortly before the show, and I leave it off a little bit after the show just so there's no confusion as to what is live and what's not. But aside from that, it runs all day and all night with reruns of the show when we're not live. And when we're live, you can hear the live show. If you want to listen in the archives, as almost everyone here does, and by the way, archives is being said this way on purpose. The word participate. I got a comment about participate. That's being said on purpose. These are all done for a reason. And anyone who's been listening for a while understands. But the archives, a lot of different ways to listen. We have iTunes. We have Google Podcasts. We have Stitcher, which finally has caught up and has our episodes again, but who knows how long that'll last. We have the TuneIn app, which also can be used to listen live. We have the Bullhorn app, which has its own call to listen line. You can use the call to listen line to listen to the archives on Bullhorn. It's pretty cool. And we also have Spotify, which is my recommended way of listening because they grab the episodes really quickly. And you can actually click links in the description to jump to the topic you want to listen to. It's very good, Spotify. And then we have iHeartMedia, and I've worked very hard you guys don't even know how hard I've worked to make iHeartMedia work with Poker Fraud Alert, but it appears to now. It was having a lot of issues, but I put a lot of time into making our system compatible with theirs. And it's mostly their fault, by the way. But nevertheless, I put some time in, as I mentioned last week. So that works again. A lot of ways to listen. If you want another way to listen, please let me know. I'm tossing around the idea of putting this show on YouTube. And... There's a number of reasons I don't want to put it on YouTube. One is that it's a pain in the ass for me because there's no automatic way to post it on YouTube. These other methods, it all auto-posts, and YouTube will not do that. So each time I will have to upload it into video format when it's an audio show to YouTube. And it's of course, it's a big file, a big show. And it's just a, an additional burden to me. Not that I can't do it. It's just an additional burden. And then uh, there's other reasons I'd prefer not to have it on YouTube, but I'm mulling it over because I know a lot of people love to use YouTube as a way to consume content. And I understand that because I do too. And a lot of times when I'm trying to look for a show, I immediately go to YouTube to look it up. And I kind of don't really feel like using a podcasting app. I just want to enter it on YouTube, which just seems quick and easy. So I might put us on YouTube. I'll see. It'll be an extra burden every week, but I'll see. Okay, so uh, as far as co-hosts, I don't know if we'll have any this week. Uh, I'm back on my original computer. As you probably know, if you've been listening to the show last week, or you've been following the Twitter of Poker Fraud Alert, which is twitter.com slash Poker Fraud Alert, my computer physically broke. I didn't break it. I didn't drop it. I didn't slam it into the wall because I took a bad beat. Though I did take a lot of bad beats around that time. I will admit that, but... I did not destroy the computer. The computer just destroyed itself. And fortunately, I had an additional year's warranty. And 
I was able to get it fixed for free, my favorite price, but it was a big pain in my ass to do, and it is finally done. I'm back on my original machine, and I was able to borrow a machine in the meantime to broadcast last week, and then there was a process of getting back on my original machine because it arrived completely, I shouldn't say new, but it arrived like new. That is, they wiped my entire machine, and everything I had on there was gone. Now, I backed up everything important, but all of my installed programs and stuff like that uh, and all my settings, everything was clobbered, which they didn't say they were going to do. And that kind of pisses me off. I didn't lose any data because, as I said, I kept all my important data and then deleted it so they can't uh, nose into my data in the repair shop. I don't want them to pull a Hunter Biden on me. But still, uh, that added some work for me. But I'm back on my original machine in much better condition. In fact, it kind of feels like new. In fact, a lot of the parts are new in this machine. So I probably extended the life of this computer. And if I have any glitches during the show, it might be because I didn't make a setting that I should have been making that I already had from before and forgot. But hopefully everything will work. We will see as we go on. It's broadcasting okay right now. But I'm back on my original machine and feels good to be back home on my computer, so to speak, even though I was physically at home. On the computer, I was not. So here's the agenda, and uh, then we will get going. The free roll, the time's up. Whoever's in is in, whoever's not is not. But don't worry, again, we will have another Fuck PayPal free roll on the next episode. I promise you that. And I thank Eric Benzamokin for that $75 he sent, and there's more where that came from. So thank you very much to him. He's been very generous to the site and... The first topic will involve him, in fact, because we have an update that there is a major hearing coming this month involving the aforementioned PayPal lawsuit. I will tell you the date to look out for, and I will tell you the implications of that date, of what happens in court that date. And it can basically go one of two ways, and one way would be excellent, And one way would not be so good, but it would not be dead in the water. So there's no way after that date that it's going to be over in a bad way. But there's a chance after that date it's going to be near over in a very good way. So we're going to discuss that as our first topic. Won't be a long topic, but it's an important topic. And I wanted you guys to know about it because I promised you that this show will keep you up to date on what is happening with that PayPal lawsuit. Then we will go into... The continuation of the Bryn Kenny saga. Now, Bryn Kenny was not very nice because he and Poker News released kind of a rebuttal interview to answer these allegations against him by Martin Zamani involving collusion, multi-accounting, ghosting, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, sending his horses to go have frog poison put into their body and acid put in their eyes, or otherwise they get dropped down in stakes. These are all allegations from Martin Zamani against Bryn Kenny, who wanted to respond to it. And he did so through Poker News, through an interview. And that dropped like the day after radio. And I hate when things drop the day after radio, because then I have to wait to talk about them. And then I didn't do myself any favors by not doing the show for more than a week after radio was over. We did our last show nine days ago. So... 
Everybody who listens to the show has been waiting for me to talk about the Bryn Kenny interview, and I'm going to do that as our next topic after we talk about PayPal. Then we have an update on the other cheating scandal. Ali Imsravik and Jake Schindler are supposedly banned from the EPT, the European Poker Tour, due to a ban on poker stars. Hmm. Then we have another Hustler Casino Live story. That's been a big theme on this show in 2022 is to talk about Hustler Casino Live, and that's because Hustler Casino Live has injected itself into the conversation. Lots of interesting things happen on Hustler Casino Live, and they're not a sponsor here, and I doubt they ever will be, though I am on good terms with uh, Ryan Feldman, who is the producer of Hustler Casino Live, and he came on this show for a long time for a very interesting interview last year, and I appreciated that. And, you know, who knows? Maybe I'll be on there one day. Not in the huge games, but maybe I'll be on there one day. But anyway, Hustler Casino Live has really been killing it this year. They've become the stream to watch, and they had a really, really interesting stream this week. And, of course... In Hustler Casino Live style, controversy occurred. And this time it had to do with, yes, Phil Helmuth. What a shock. So it's a combination Helmuth and Hustler Casino Live topic, and we will discuss it. You ever heard the phrase, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me? Well, I think in this case, it's fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on Caesars. Because Adele, after screwing over Caesars royally and aborting her residency that she had at Caesar's Palace literally the day before it was to start. And all these people paid a lot of money to fly out from the UK to Las Vegas to see her and were left with nothing because uh, she didn't do the show and gave them no notice. It was really screwed up to do to her loving fans and secondarily, screwed over Caesars, which I care less about, but still, she did screw over Caesars, let's be honest. Anyway, you'd think Caesars would be done with her. No! There's a pretty strong rumor, which I believe to probably be true, that Adele is going to start a residency. The date is not known, but there's pretty strong rumor she's going to start a residency at Planet Hollywood, which is Caesars owned. So Caesar says, thank you, Adele. May I have another? May you flake out on us once again. This is a train wreck. So we'll discuss that update on Adele. We're going to keep following the situation with Adele because it's very interesting. Lake Mead, which is the big lake fairly near Las Vegas, it has been getting lower and lower due to drought conditions in the West. There's been a lot of drought years in the West. And this year is one of the worst after what seemed like was going to be a wetter than average year in the West because of a very wet December. And then just it dried up. As soon as New Year's came, it just dried up like no rain. So Lake Mead has been suffering even more than usual. And some interesting things have been happening because Lake Mead has been getting very low, including, yes, a body was found. Speaking of bodies being found, we have another unfortunate story about a murder of a poker player. 
And this one was against uh, Mohamed Moini, who was a Biloxi area player and very well liked over there. He was uh, 51 years old and he was murdered at his business over a money dispute. You may have read this on Poker News or another news site that covers poker or maybe even in the local Biloxi media. However, Poker Fraud Alert always likes to get the full story. And uh, the reason we do that is because news is news. And uh, I would not think of prying into someone's personal life just because they happen to have been murdered. I don't believe in doing that because uh, that's really uh, disrespectful to the dead. But if it's part of the story itself, when you know, the circumstances of the murder have additional details which make it easier to understand what might have happened, then it is newsworthy. And in this case, it definitely was. So there's uh, an additional angle to this whole thing that I'm going to bring up in the discussion of the Mohammed Moini saga. But I do want to say, before we even get to the topic, that uh, the fault for this murder rests 100% with the murderer. And the guy was a psycho. The guy killed multiple people, including ones that were strangers to him. And the guy who's dead now was a total piece of garbage. And so Mohammed Moini did not deserve this by any means. But there is more to the story than has been reported everywhere else. And I'm going to give you that whole thing so you can maybe understand a bit better of what might have happened there. Phil Ivey is suing a marijuana company involving a failed investment of his of almost two million bucks. So I'll tell you what Phil Ivey was even doing investing in a marijuana company and what is going on with that lawsuit. It's not a new lawsuit, but we haven't discussed it on here, so I'll tell you about the lawsuit and the recent updates on this, and then I'll have a general discussion about Phil Ivey and why he gets involved in things like this. Finally, we have an editorial. We're not going to do COVID news this week, but we are going to do news that has nothing to do with poker and gambling, or shall I say an editorial about the news. And I bet you can guess what that's about because it's a very, 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 very big story in the general news over the last few days. And that would be the possible, and I would say at this point, uh, likely end of Roe versus Wade, something I didn't think I was going to see, but it is happening. I will tell you my thoughts on this and it may be a bit different than you're expecting. It's not going to be vastly different than what you're expecting, but it may be a bit different than what you're expecting. It's not going to be the typical right-wing Republican point of view. I promise you that. And I also wish this wasn't happening. I'll tell you that too. And I'll tell you why when we get to that segment at the end, the editorial about Roe versus Wade. And however you feel about the subject, I know there's some very passionate people about this. I know there's some people really pissed off about this. And no matter how you feel, I'd like to ask that you just listen to me with an open mind. You don't listen to me with resentment or anger or just the belief right away that I'm incorrect. Just please listen to what I have to say. And when it's all done, if you still don't agree with me, that's totally fine. And if you change your mind, great. And if you partially change your mind, that's great too. I'd just like you to listen to me and to... Consider what I'm saying, because I'm going to discuss it in a way that is not being discussed very much anywhere. And I think that the topics I'm going to bring up related to that really do bear discussion and really will inform you 
on why this might be happening. If you do want to call the show, please do so between segments. Don't call me in the middle of a segment or I won't take the call. But if you call me between segments or just as the segment seems to be winding down, then I will take your call. And then you can talk about a variety of subjects, whatever's on your mind there. Just wanted to let you know that. I do like receiving phone calls. I just don't like them interrupting my train of thought. It's hard enough to do everything here as I do, especially when I'm by myself, when there's no co-host. I have to constantly be talking. I have to constantly think of what I'm going to say next. And it's harder than you might imagine, especially to do for hours and hours. And if you don't think so, try it. Try actually doing a show like this. Not for 20 minutes. That's not that hard. But try doing a show like this for hours on end and just talking, talking, talking and not getting caught up and having long pauses and not knowing what to say. It's, it's a lot harder than you think. And I put a lot of preparation into these shows. I actually do some post-production now so they sound a little better. And when I'm doing all that and I'm running the show, then it is not easy to do other things in the background, which is why I never play the free roll. But here's somebody who plays the free roll sometimes. And this is not a caller. This is a co-host. Trey you're awake at this time. I can't believe it. Long speech about how difficult it is. I said, okay, I, I got some time into me, but I'll probably catch you on the back end. Okay. So I, was, I guilted Trey into calling in before he goes to sleep. That, that was good. I'm glad the speech was valuable. All right, let's just jump into the first topic. And that is a major update on the situation with a company called PayPal and a lawsuit against PayPal that has been filed by Eric Benzamokin on behalf of plaintiffs around the world. Now, we have discussed this before. We've discussed this many times. We discussed this when Chris Moneymaker brought out to Twitter that he had been cheated by PayPal, that PayPal outright stole over $12,000 from him that he was holding for a legal fantasy sports league that he was running and PayPal just outright stole it. Then they promised to give it back to him in six months and then six months passed and they said, nope, we're actually taking it for ourselves. They really did this. He had the emails. He proved it. 100% that was the whole story. There was nothing hidden about this whole thing. That, that was what happened. And he put it out on Twitter and I thought to myself, I saw this shortly after he put this out and I thought to myself, I know an attorney that might be interested in helping him. Not that Eric was even talking about this or ever talking about suing PayPal or anything like that, but I thought about it and I just thought, you know, he did such a good job with the whole Apostle situation. I'm going to see if he is interested in this. So I called up Eric and I said, Chris Moneymaker is posting about this. And, you know, I'm no attorney here. You're the expert. But to me, this looks kind of illegal what PayPal's doing. So he said, let me look into it. I might be interested. Then Eric researched it, and he said, yes, you know what? I actually am interested. So if you can tell Chris uh, that I'd be interested in representing him. So I got a hold of Chris, and I talked to Chris about it. You know, Chris and I have a good relationship. We're not close friends, but we've always had a good relationship. And, uh, you know, he knows who I am. I know who he is, and we've known each other for many years. So We're not close, as I said, but we've known each other. So I went to him, and I told him, that Eric would like to uh, do a class action lawsuit. And Chris said, okay, and called him up and they talked and they came to an agreement. And PayPal was 
pretty much put on notice. Nothing was filed yet, but they put out into the media that this is coming. Well, PayPal panicked, and they quickly refunded Chris's money, which was no coincidence. Before they said the decision's final, nothing you can do, tough luck, we're keeping your money, F you. That's really what they said. Not literally, but that's the gist of what they said to him. And then just one day he wakes up, no explanation, and the money's back in his account. Why? Because then he has no more damages and can't sue them. Ha ha ha. Very clever, PayPal. So now you can't have this high-profile poker champ that is suing you for cheating him. So they thought they were so clever. But anyway, the problem is that there are so many victims of this around the world, not just poker players, not just gamblers, but people around the world who have nothing to do with poker or gambling that are just running very legal and standard businesses through PayPal, where that's the form they're getting paid and have been screwed in this way. And Eric found a number of them, and he is attempting, along with other attorneys that he's brought into this. He's the one who got this whole thing going. He is the attorney who put this all together. He's brought in other attorneys to help him because it's such a huge undertaking. But they are really suing PayPal, and they're trying to get its certified class action status, and they are trying to launch a massive lawsuit against PayPal for this massive amount of money that has been stolen from customers around the world. We've discussed this before. How much was stolen? I don't know, but it's got to be huge money. Huge money. Because they've done this to so many people. They have a huge customer base, PayPal, and a number of people have been hit this way. And basically the way they do it is if they have determined that you've broken their terms of service in any slightest way, even if you haven't, like like Chris Moneymaker and a lot of other people, they didn't do anything illegal, they didn't do anything wrong, but if PayPal decided you broke their terms of service, they charge you a fine of $2,500 per incident. So let's say you have $12,000 on there. If you have violated their terms of service, in their opinion, five times, they just take it from you. Not five times like you've been warned. I mean, like, you did it five times without them saying anything, and then they say, oh, we just found you violated our terms with five transactions. We're taking your whole 12000 because it's 2500 per violation, as if there was a court of law, as if they can just take your money. They can't do that. They don't have the right to steal your money because they arbitrarily decide that each violation is $2,500, but that's what they've been doing. And they made that number so high that they can pretty much take everyone's entire balance, and there's not much anyone can do except sue them. And so now we have a class action lawsuit that is being attempted against PayPal. And we've discussed this before. I won't go into that whole thing again. But it's a long and slow process, as you might imagine, in the federal court system. This is being brought in the Northern California District of Federal Court, because that's where PayPal is located in Northern California. That's where their headquarters is. But one thing they are attempting to do is force this to arbitration. And big companies love to do this. Big companies love to have buried in their terms of service that if you have any issues that arise that would have some sort of uh, legal dispute, that you agree to go to binding arbitration, which means instead of court, you have to go to an arbitrator, and the arbitrator makes his decision, and it's binding. There's nothing you can do. Whatever the arbitrator decides, that's it. And that's much more favorable 
to a company than when a court is involved. So being forced into binding arbitration when you don't necessarily want it is a big advantage to these corporations, and they know it. And that's why that is often in the terms of service that you agree to that are like 30 pages long that you don't actually read when you click I accept, but that's one of the things you are often accepting and don't realize. So PayPal has been asserting that all the users of PayPal have agreed to binding arbitration. And on May 26th, they're going to have a hearing whether this is going to go to binding arbitration or whether this is going to be brought to court. And that's a very, very big issue. That's something that really, really uh, will change everything if they do not get their way to compel arbitration. So they filed a motion in response to this case to compel arbitration, and that hearing has been set in federal court for May 26, 2022. That is 22 days from now, so just a little more than three weeks away. And if the plaintiff side wins, which I really hope happens, I'm talking about this hearing, I don't mean the whole case, but at this hearing, if it's favorable to the plaintiffs to where arbitration is not compelled, then there's a good chance that PayPal is going to say, okay, we don't want to litigate this, so we're going to settle. Now, they might attempt to appeal this, so it may not be over at that point anyway. That's why I'm saying it's not over. They can appeal the decision on May 26th to not compel arbitration. We hope that's the way it goes, but it's possible that they, you know, they can go either way on this, honestly. But if it does go in the way of the plaintiffs, then PayPal will probably appeal. But if when this is done, this whole arbitration matter, and it is ruled that it's going to go through the court system, then there's a very good chance that there's going to be a settlement and probably a nice settlement. This is a very big moment on May 26th. And if it goes the way that we're hoping it goes, then that's going to be a very good thing, not just for the people involved here, but also for anyone who uses PayPal, even if you've never been cheated by them. This would be a big blow against them and their very shady practices just outright steal people's money. And that's what this is. In fact, they have bots making the decision. And that's something really awful with this is you can't even get a human being to look at it. You can't say, hey, let's appeal this. Hey, let me send you my side of the story. You can't. There's no appealing. The bot makes its decision and then you cannot appeal it. So not only are you being stolen from, but a machine is making the decision to steal from you. And you cannot respond in any way. Think of how maddening that is. It's not just losing the money. It's also the way it happens. So this is something that is indefensible. I can't imagine how anyone who doesn't work for PayPal could defend this. This is something that I think Republicans and Democrats could agree on. <laughs> I know the ones who listen to this show definitely uh, are all of one mind on this, that PayPal is being really, really scummy. And it screws our community. This has happened to many poker players, not just Chris Moneymaker. It's happened to many gamblers who aren't poker players. How? Because uh, people send money back and forth on PayPal. So that's the update on that. I'll let you know what happens after the uh, 26th of May. And what if he loses? What if uh, this arbitration is compelled? Well, it's not over. They're just going to 
go to arbitration. I assume that uh, it also can appeal, be appealed the other way. So in no way is the case going to be over on May 26th either way, but hopefully arbitration will be refused by the court, and hopefully this will then push PayPal into a nice settlement, and that's really what is deserved. This is the opposite of a frivolous case. This is a very righteous case, and PayPal has been acting in an incredibly shady manner here. In honor of this, we are having these fuck PayPal free rolls every week on Poker Fraud Alert Radio, uh, at least for the next few weeks throughout May. There are court cases sometimes which you can look at it and say, all right, I see both sides here, or okay, well, you know, I can totally see the other side, but my friend is on the plaintiff's side, so I'm on his side. Like, this isn't the case like that at all. Like, if, if these were all strangers, if I had nothing to do with anyone here, if I didn't know anybody here, if... I never had any bad experiences with PayPal myself. As an outsider, I would look at this and go, wait, what the hell? This is really happening? They're just taking people's money? <laughs> I 100%. It's almost criminal, right, Josh? Yeah. Stealing. Right. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable this is happening in this day and age, and they're just doing it. They just don't give a crap. They're just taking people's money. They've just decided they're the judge, jury, and executioner of your money, you have violated our terms of service. We are taking your money, and you cannot even speak to us about it. We are taking it, and that is the end. We are fining you. The People's Republic of PayPal. It's crazy. They're not a government. They're not a court. They can't take your money. They can't just fine you. Imagine if I fined you. What if I just said, hey, uh, Trader Ruski, you pissed me off. That's $2,500. You, 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 I'm holding ten k for you that maybe you gave to me so you can uh, buy in at the World Series without having to travel with cash. You get there. I'm going to say, no, Trader Ruski, you, you fell asleep on radio. I'm finding you $2,500 per time you fell asleep, so I'm taking it all. You say, what? I said, no, I'm, I can find you. PayPal can do it, so I'm going to find you too. Like that, That's basically what they're doing. They're just finding people. And because they happen to be holding your money, they take it. If they weren't holding your money, they couldn't take you anything. You could have done that when Brandon's buddy left the 50K in the safe. That's right. Uh, that's right. I, fine. I, I'm finding you. <laughs> that's right. He could, have, he could have come back. Well, he, he thought $1,100 was gone at first. So I, he really thought I did find him. And then uh, later he did say that it was uh, his own mistake that he had forgotten he spent the 1100 which was exactly what I was worried about happening. Not that I'd lose any of it, but that uh, what if there's some confusion? And that's exactly what occurred. And I just hate taking these responsibilities on just in case something happens. And I always tell everybody, like, in the rare case I'll do a favor like this for someone, I always tell them, like, I'm never going to steal from you, and I'll do my best to keep it secure, but I can't guarantee this. If anything happens, I, I, I don't want to be responsible. So I'd really prefer not to do this. But I mean, I, the, the guy's credit, he didn't give me a hard time or accuse me of anything. He just kept saying, well, I don't know. I was, str you know, I, I knew the whole 50K was there. I don't know what happened. It's 1,100 missing, but don't worry about it. You know, I'm going, well, shit, I didn't do it. Like, it wasn't there. But thankfully, he apologized later and said he figured out what occurred and he had spent the 1,100 and forgot. Oops. But he, he was a, a nice guy, though. Uh, I, I don't want to make it sound like the guy's a jerk. He actually uh, drove me to a World Series event when I lost my car. That was one of the two times I've lost my car in Vegas. Uh, one was with Matt the Rat. The other was this time. And I couldn't find my car. And he was the only one I could find that I knew at, at the moment that could quickly get me and bring me to the Rio. And he did. So 
thumbs up to him for that. And I cashed in that tournament, too. So I actually made money thanks to him bringing me there. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about what you guys really want to hear about, and that is the Bryn Kenny story. Not that you don't want to hear about the PayPal thing, but you weren't expecting the PayPal thing. You're expecting the Bryn Kenny story. And we did a, almost a three-hour, actually, I guess between like two and a half and three, but we did a very long segment last week on Bryn Kenny. And the goal of that segment, and I think it was achieved because some people texted me about it, the goal of that segment was to make it clear so everybody can understand everything going on with that weird and complicated story. There's so many different angles to it. And even though Doug did a good job with the interview, Doug Polk, uh, to those that weren't that familiar with everything going on and that didn't go onto Twitter afterwards and look things up, like there were so many different characters involved and so many different elements involved with that. It was hard to understand unless you put a lot of time into it. So I tried to break it down so you would have a detailed understanding of it, and I tried to do it in a clear and concise fashion, and fortunately it sounds like the listeners did understand it. So, no, we're not going to rehash the three hours' worth of content that was on last week. If you want to know the Bryn Kenny story, then go to last week's show, the one that was released on April 24th, and listen to it. But what we're going to give you this time is an update because Bryn Kenny has responded. Now, very quickly, Bryn Kenny was accused by a former stake horse named Martin Zamani, who is a young guy who smokes a lot of marijuana by his own admission, and who comes off like someone who smokes a lot of marijuana. In fact, he was smoking marijuana on the interview. And the guy also has kind of a checkered history, to say the least. So this is not a fine, upstanding citizen of the community by any means, nor was he someone who came off as really trustworthy. But he gave so many details that it seemed like he wasn't just bullshitting. Like, it, at least some of this had to be true. It would have been shocking if this was all made up. This guy would have been like the best storyteller ever if this was all made up. So it was not all made up. There's been several things that have been independently verified ever since. And there's still a number of things that we don't know for sure whether they're true or not. But one thing people were waiting for was to see if Bryn Kenny was going to respond. So he did, kind of. He did an interview with Poker News. And Bryn Kenny was accused of a number of things. He was accused of uh, collusion. He was accused of having his stakeholders collude with each other in games. He was accused of multi-accounting, of both him and his stake horses sharing accounts. He was accused of ghosting, of having his stake horses ghost each other, where there'd be like a hierarchy, where the best players would then ghost the players who are considered like below them in skill if they made a final table, and then those players would ghost the ones below them if they made a final table. It was kind of depending upon importance and where they rank in the hierarchy, according to what Bryn thought. And according to Zamani, this was all at Bryn's direction. The stake horses weren't doing this on their own. These were things they had to do. It was also alleged that Kenny was very, very controlling with his stake horses, including what they ate and the way they lived their lives. And also, and this was the most entertaining part of the whole story, the stake horses were told they had to go to a shaman who would then do a process called cambo or combo, K-A-M-B-O, where they would uh, 
burn a blister into their arm, which would leave like an open wound after cutting off the blister, and then frog poison would be dripped into the blister. <laughs> and according to Zamani, if you refuse to do things like this, then you would be dropped down in, st- in stakes of what you could play. So that, that was a pretty uh, amazing allegation. And then it was also said you had to go to a psychic that's uh, based out of Vegas. So there were a lot of different allegations. Also, it was said that Bryn Kenny was running an affiliate program through GG Poker that was different than most affiliate programs, where he had a ton of power. And in fact, he was more of an agent where he handled all buy-ins and cash-outs. And it was also alleged that this was being done so people from the U.S. could play on GG Poker, which otherwise is not allowed. So you would buy in and cash out through Bryn. So he had complete control of your account. And uh, whatever he wants you to have in your account, if he's staking you, he could take money out, put, him, put money back in. And uh, it was alleged that he was using this to control people. It was also alleged that these big tournaments that went on there, these big buy-in tournaments like 5K, 10K, that would have a guarantee that it was actually Bryn guaranteeing the money, not GG Poker. And that what would happen is if it was going to fall short of the guarantee that Bryn would have other horses join the tournament just so the guarantee be met and that uh, at sometimes these uh, additional players that he would send in there would chip dump to preferred players so they would win. So as you can imagine, this whole thing looked very ugly, if true. And Bryn Kenny is the number one cashing tournament player in poker of all time. Not necessarily the biggest profitable winner. It's impossible to tell that because you don't have a record of every tournament someone enters. But there is a record of what they're cashing. So the one who's cashed the most is Bryn Kenny at over $57 million, very slightly ahead of Justin Bonomo. And a lot of other allegations there. One more about this uh, woman named uh, Lauren Roberts, who was uh, has, has since verified some of these allegations. Now, again, these are allegations that she and Zamani are making, so it's not necessarily all true, but it easily could be. And that is uh, Lauren Roberts, uh, it's alleged that Bryn befriended her and then used her money that she had from outside of poker. She made money in uh, in finance, apparently. She's an older woman. I think she's in her uh, mid to late 50s. But she apparently had a lot of money, and she lost $2 million in games where she was both bum-hunted, meaning Bryn would call his stake horses to go sit down with her whenever she was at the table because he, perce- he perceived that they were a lot better than she was, and and they probably were. And second, that they colluded against her as well, and that she lost $2 million on GG Poker while Bryn Kenny kept encouraging her to play, and that she was just shamelessly used this way, according to both Lauren and Martin. So a lot of bad things being said about Bryn, and Doug Polk, who did this 80-minute interview with Bryn, which you, you can listen to portions of it where I comment on it on last week's show, But this interview was done really quickly after Martin Zamani came forward with these allegations on Twitter. And as I said last week, I think the reason for that is because Doug Polk has a feud with Bryn Kenny. They they went at each other on Twitter, I think it was like two years ago, where they were arguing back and forth because Bryn Kenny was asserting that all these poker coaching 
programs, including Doug Polk's upswing poker, are basically a scam and they're useless. So that started the two of them arguing. And then various heads-up challenges were made. And Britt Kenny came off really ridiculous. Doug Polk definitely came off much better in that exchange. But they both came away from that disliking each other. So you can imagine Doug Polk was licking his chops to have Martin Zamani on there to make these allegations, given that it was about someone he really disliked and took great joy in seeing look bad. But I don't blame Doug for that. You know, uh, he was bringing on someone that was making allegations that were pretty explosive and they were worth hearing. So I, I bring no fault to Doug just because he was extra excited about bringing this to you quickly because of who it happened to be. And I even admitted last week that I would do the same thing if there was someone that I strongly disliked and there was someone making serious allegations about them. And if this person was well-known enough to where people would be interested, then I would jump on it very quickly too. I would take much more pleasure in doing that than I would be uh, reporting about something neutral where that's more kind of just reporting something newsworthy, but not taking any pleasure in it. So like when I report stories of scams and scandals, including this one, uh, there's no pleasure I'm taking. Like I'm not taking any pleasure if Bryn Kenny looks bad for my coverage here because I don't have anything personally against him. I, I believe he probably did a lot of things wrong here and was acting pretty shady in my opinion. But I don't have any personal hatred for him and I didn't have any problem with him prior to this. He was never my friend and I don't really know him very well, but uh, there's a big difference when it's someone you enjoy suffering because you already personally dislike them and just someone you just know of and then they're involved in controversy. And for me, it's the latter. For Doug Polk, it's the former. So it's a very big difference. Anyway, hope I've caught you up. If you're confused, go back and listen to last week's show. Otherwise, this won't make a ton of sense to you. But Bryn Kenny responded, and people wondered if he's going to respond at all. People thought maybe he's just going to ignore it. Maybe he's just going to let it die. Because I'll tell you something about news in poker over the last uh, month or so. is It's been coming fast and furious. There's been so many different big stories in poker that take people's attention from the previous story that it seems like if you just wait, the big story that is unflattering to you will die. This is kind of the perfect time to have an unflattering story about you come out in poker because it seems like days later something else happens and no one wants to talk about you anymore. For example, who's talking about All-American Dave now? Like, nobody. So, uh, even Ali Imsrovic. I mean, we're going to talk about him again tonight, but that really got brought down to a lot less discussion than otherwise would have had it not been for this Bryn Kenny scandal. And now we have this stuff about Phil Helmuth on uh, Hustler Casino Live, which is not about... Uh, cheating, but more about angling. But that was a big story, too, so that kind of uh, pushed the Bryn Kenny thing a little bit back. So I, I guess this is the right time to have an issue. So people wondered, is Bryn Kenny going to respond? And then Poker News teased that uh, something very big is going to drop. And indeed, they did have something pretty big to drop. They had an interview with Bryn Kenny, an exclusive interview that he would only do with them. This was on April 26th, and it was in the morning at 11 a.m. Pacific time. He did this with uh, Sarah Herring of uh, Poker News, and there was a reason why he did it with Poker News, and there's a reason he did it with Sarah, and that is because he and Sarah have been longtime friends. 
Sarah did disclose this, that she and Bryn have been longtime friends. So there was no trick to this. But immediately people were skeptical. When someone is accused of something, like Bryn was here, he's accused of a lot of things, and he's a big name in poker, and people were very interested in the scandal. And okay, you know, if he wants to give poker news the scoop for whatever reason, that's fine. Often when someone's embroiled in controversy, they will give the scoop to the outlet they like the most. That's fine. But at the same time, the outlet has to make sure that they don't softball the interview. Now, you can't come at the person really hard because then they just will shut down and not do the interview. Or maybe they'll only agree to do the interview with you if you don't come at them super hard. And it's a tough situation to be in. And you have to understand that. There was a lot of criticism in October of 2020 when Mike Matisau did that interview with Mike Possle. And people felt that Mike Matisau was too sympathetic to him on the interview, that he was way too easy on him, that basically the hard, tough-to-answer questions that would put Possel on the spot and demand answers from him were not being asked. And instead, Possel was asked some pretty easy questions, and he just kind of rambled in like a two-part interview that they, I think, did all in one sitting and just kind of split up. So a lot of people walked away from that Possel interview on Mike Matisau's podcast and said, what the hell? Mike, wh- what did you do? You blew it. You had one chance at this, and you threw him softballs. Why would you have done that? And you know what I said? I said, no, 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 no. You guys don't understand. Possel didn't want to talk to anybody. And Matisau got Possel to talk to him. And if he came at Possel really hard, Possel would have hung up. Or... If he said to Postle that he's going to come at him hard, Postle would not have done it. So it was either the type of interview that Mattisau did or nothing. And Postle actually said some things on that interview that were useful to me and the others being sued when uh, when we were sued. So it was actually in October 2019, not 2020, when that interview was done. It was, you know, it was right after the scandal broke. And it was a year later when we were sued. But I went back and listened, and I grabbed things that Postle said in his own voice that I knew if we went to court, which we ended up not going to court because the whole thing got dropped, and it would have been dismissed on anti-slap anyway. But had it gone to court, or even if we had to get an anti-slap ruling, I found several things in that interview that would have been very favorable to our side that Postle said in his own words. And that's very powerful in court, of course. So not only would it have been helpful to me, but I think it was helpful to poker that we got to hear Postle talk at all for two hours because someone just goes on and on for two hours there about a controversy they're in. They're usually going to say things that give away whether they're guilty or innocent. And often you can read between the lines of what they're saying and what they're not saying. So it's always good to get these accused people to get on and talk for a long time. And while it would be ideal if they agree to come on and just face any question and not hang up and go away, that's not reality because these people are not compelled to have these interviews. So I really thought there was a chance he would have no interview or he'd release some dumb statement on his own. So here he actually did an interview and he gave it to Poker News and he gave it to a friend. Okay, so that's an opening semi-defense of Sarah Herring here of uh, Poker News and the criticism she's been getting for uh, 
doing a softball interview. However, I will say, and we're going to listen to this together, but I will say that if you're going to do an interview with someone like this, you also have to be aware you're going to have a lot of people angry if it comes off as a softball interview. At least the Mattisau one did not involve two friends. Mattisau did not know Postle prior to this whole controversy. So at least Mattisau can say, look, I'm clearly not a buddy with this guy. I just had to not come at him too hard so he'd talk. And Sarah Herring is actually a personal friend of Kenny's, and that's where it can look bad. So I think what really should have been done is that the interview should have been done by somebody else. And then Poker News should have also put out that uh, they had an agreement about uh, the way the interview will be conducted that it was not going to be adversarial, but that they felt it was right to bring this to people anyway because something's better than nothing. That, that disclaimer should have been put out in some way. They shouldn't have had his personal friend interviewing him because it's just a bad look. And believe me, I understand this. I had that interview with Mickey Maz on here not too long ago. And while uh, most people enjoyed the interview, uh, some people asked me, why did you let him be so rude to you? Because he was rude to me several times. Why did you let him be so rude? Why, why were you not coming back and insulting him back? And I said, because this wasn't a pissing contest. I wanted him to talk. I, I had questions. I had follow-up questions. I asked them. But I was not going to argue with him like we're two enemies fighting. I want content for the show. I want you to hear him explaining himself. And then you, as the listener, can decide when it's all over, based upon my questions and his answers, whether he's telling the truth. And as you heard, I did ask follow-up questions, and I never told him that I believed him. And in fact, at the end, when he asked me if he's answered everything, I told him, well, no, not really. So you know, I was honest there. I wasn't softballing it, but at the same time, I, I wasn't coming at him in an aggressive way, because, uh, number one, that was not what was pitched to him. I told him that I'll have an interview and be respectful, and even if he was disrespectful to me, I was not going to be disrespectful back. And and second, uh, I wanted him to talk. I wanted him to answer it, and I, I put my ego aside. So I understand, but you don't have a personal friend do the interview, or it, it just looks bad. Anyway, we're going to play this. And then uh, I'll stop it, and we will uh, comment on it. I'm not going to play the whole thing. I'm going to jump around kind of like I did last week with the Doug Polk thing. So I'm going to quickly play the portion where Sarah talks about their prior friendship so you can understand in her own words how the two of them knew each other. I also think it's only fair to come out in the beginning and just say that I've been friends with Bryn for about... 10 years probably. And the whole time though, that I've been in this poker space, I've encountered lots of weird and dramatic situations and lots of things that came and went and always at the core of uh, who I am. I, I really want to be honest and I want to get to what the truth is. And, and I hope that, that Bryn shares those sentiments. I think that he does. And so we're just going to dig in here, folks. And I know I'm just going to piss some people off, but I'm going to do the best I can here. And um, and I know that Bryn will as well. So let's just welcome on the man of the hour, Bryn Kenny. 
Hello, always nice to see you, Sarah. Uh, maybe not the most pleasant circumstances this week, but you know, life gives you what it gives you, and all you can do is manage that and not hope for something different. Well, that's very trite. You know, life gives you lemons, you make lemonade, and that's the way it works. <laughs> you can already hear that. Yeah, they sound pretty friendly, and they are friends. So keep that in mind as this interview plays. I, I don't think she was the best choice for this reason. They should have had somebody different do it. But let's ignore that for the moment, and uh, let's get to where she asks him about having a stable. So Bryn was asked, uh, what does it mean to have a stable of players? Because remember, that's kind of at the center of the whole problem, is that uh, while he is also accused of multi-accounting and collusion himself, most of the allegations of wrongdoing involve what he was commanding his stake horses to do. So that's why she gets into asking, uh, what does it mean to have a stable? And let's hear what Bryn had to uh, say about that. Going to about like the 7, let's try the 749 mark. For a lot of people that maybe we need to start in um, breaking that down first. Yeah, perfect. So throughout my whole poker career, I mean, I started playing poker in with friends at 15 years old and from 18 was really just loved, loved everything about poker and the experience. And I started to have success at an early age. And I guess I, I really like, I, I like action. I like helping people. So I started throughout my whole poker career, I've backed hundreds, if not a thousand or over a thousand people at different times and usually and how that works is is the backer would put up all of the money for that person to play the events that that they're that you agree that they're able to play and then there would be some type of split based on the winnings of what they made after all investments were paid to the backer so it's actually, I thought it was kind of interesting because for me, when I was very new to the poker community and I didn't actually even know who you were yet, one of the first things that someone said to me about you, you came in with like a very large stack, I think of cash at the time and were sort of dishing it out to people in the tournaments going through. And one of the first things anyone ever said to me about you was, oh, he has uh, a lot of guys. He has a lot of action. He runs a large stable, if you will. And this was was probably eight or 10, yeah, 10, maybe 12 years ago, actually now. Um, and this was my first introduction to that whole world. And so one of the things that I know from lots of high rollers now is that, you know, when people have a stable, they, it's their business, right? So they choose to run it however they want and different people do it different ways. Okay. So this is where she is already softballing. She's already kind of giving him an excuse before he even answers anything about the stable. Remember, the stable is really at the center of this controversy. And she's going, well, something I learned eight years ago is when you have a stable, you run it how you want. Everybody runs it differently. So you're choosing to run it a certain way. And I, some people don't understand that. Like, what? <laughs> this isn't just about him running the stable in a non-traditional manner. This isn't just about these weird requirements to have frog poison dripped into your wounds or acid dropped into your eyes. I mean, 
those are very weird requirements, and it makes him kind of look bad. But to be honest, if he was open with his stake horses, yeah, I run a stable, but I have some weird rules. And one of the things is you're going to have to see a shaman and do some weird stuff that may be painful. And do you still want to do this? I'm telling you right up front, this is what we're doing. And is this okay? And if not, go find someone else to stake you. And if that's what he wants to do, I agree that's his business. If that's his requirement to get staked, as long as it's not illegal, which it isn't, and people agree to it, then fine. It's not so good to start this uh, staking operation and have people join you, and then at some point in the middle, hey, if you want to keep getting staked, go do this, because then it's almost like a bait and switch where they're talked into joining you, and then you find out later the bad news about stuff you need to do to continue getting staked. Again, not illegal in any way, not cheating in any way, but it's not just about that, though. That's just kind of the funny, entertaining stuff. The main problems here involved all the collusion and the ghosting and the putting people into events to make guarantees and then chip dump, all those allegations. That's that's the big problem here. So that's not about how you're running your stable the way you please. I don't know why she's even saying that, but let's go on. But tell me a little bit about how you would choose the people that you would invest in and then what that would look like for them maybe years ago and then also now how have how have you managed this stable you guys might remember we had eric sheets haber on here who answered questions like this and he just volunteered to come on the show it turned out he was a listener of the show and he just came to me and said hey i'd like to come on i don't know if he still listens i know he listened for years and never said a word to me about it so maybe he still does but at the time he was a regular listener and i didn't know it and then he said yeah i'd like to come on And uh, so I had him on and I asked him questions like this just so people could get a view into a big staking operation. I thought that was interesting. But that's not appropriate here. Here we're not trying to learn about staking. We're trying to learn about this particular staking operation, which is mired in controversy. Well, just like being someone that's like completely entrenched in the poker community, me traveling to tournaments all around the world, you would wind up meeting people that you played with online or just meeting people live for the first time. And then like someone told you that it was known that I would have a big stable, other people would know that in the poker community. So sometimes it would be friends of mine at the time that I was backing would recommend another friend of theirs to me. And when I was young, I was really very careless about it all. I just had a lot of money coming to me. I started having a lot of success at an at an early age and was yeah, I was really acting careless and putting a lot of people into maybe events that, you know, wasn't necessarily a good business decision for me. And then at the same time, you wind up getting in just rough spots with people because the thing about backing is when someone gets down a lot of money, it, it's all about their mental composure and their ability to to accept what happened and to move forward in a positive or a better way, which is really difficult when everything is crashing down on you, especially at an earlier age when poker was just at the start of its popularity. Uh, Someone would be used to, they would win a tournament maybe and get a sensation from that. And they would maybe kind of like a drug would be hooked on that winning sensation a little bit. So when you go through long periods of losing, it can really crush your morale and, get you into that mindset of losing and kind of expecting that that happens. So 
I've actually, I've went, I mean, there's countless interviews that are, that's me talking about all the times that I went broke, like through my poker career. Um, almost, almost none of those reasons were from me personally playing poker. I kind of have always won throughout my whole career. And it's that like backing, let's call it an addiction even, or action addiction that I had for a while that, you know, plummeted the first multiple big million plus bankrolls that I had. And I would say throughout those years, you know, in the experience, you learn, you get smarter, you grow. So it turns into doing it with a lot of people and maybe. Okay, this is all a waste of time. And the reason I played this to you is because when you have like an hour with the guy, which is about what they had, they had like a little longer than an hour with him. You don't waste time with general stake horse questions. They can explain this on their own. If if Sarah wants to get on there beforehand or afterwards and explain how staking works and the potential pitfalls of staking, because what he's saying applies to a lot of staking operations. Sometimes they make the wrong decisions and they back the wrong guys or someone gets way down and doesn't play as well anymore and they just keep chunking off money and you got to make tough decisions when to cut them. I mean, this is all true. And I actually do believe that he busted through some bankrolls because he was spending too much on staking and not always being that prudent with who he was staking at in which events. I, I believe it. Fine. But it has nothing to do with all this. So they shouldn't be wasting their time with this. So I, I'm going to stop that and we're going to go forward to something more interesting. And that is his relationship with Martin Zamani. How he got to know him, where that all started. I think you're probably curious about that. So let's hear what he has to say about that. Why do you think he's decided to come out now and make all of these claims? Um, well, that relation. So he contacted me and he had done business with, um, with another person that I, I happened to do business to at the time uh, that, that that didn't really go well. So the way that he presented himself to me at first was really him being a victim in this whole relationship that he had and, you know, me being a person that really, I would say that I'm very sensitive and very caring and try to be, try to help others who might have had unfortunate scenarios. So uh, he didn't really, he, he didn't really have any friends that were connected to anyone that I staked. And at that time, I might have slipped a little bit and started. <laughs> Come on. A very sensitive, a very caring person. Like, don't say things like that, Bryn. Come on. I don't think anyone believes that about you, that you're a very sensitive, caring person. So don't say it. Like, you don't have to say it. Nobody's expecting you to be sensitive or caring. You don't have to be. You can be a jerk as long as uh, you're being honest, as long as you're an honest jerk. So you didn't stake Martin Zamani, who you admit was not a friend of yours or close to any friends of yours, because... You felt bad for him because he got ripped off by somebody else. By the way, what he's referring to here was that Martin said on his interview with Doug Polk, and this may be true, that convicted uh, embezzler Dennis Bleeden uh, ended up in federal prison. And what Martin was claiming was that he was owed 90 Bitcoin. And this is in 2019 Bitcoin uh, values, but that's still a lot of money. He claims that that Dennis owed him uh, 90 Bitcoin but can't pay it because uh, he was put in federal prison and I'm sure all of his, whatever remaining assets he has were confiscated. So uh, basically Martin was saying he got screwed over because he was dealing with an embezzler 
and now he's left holding the bag with nothing, so that he was then contacted by Bryn, and uh, that the two of them made a stake horsing deal, which is fine. If this is the way it went down, that's totally fine. If Martin had the bad luck of having an embezzler, and nobody knew that Dennis Bleeding was an embezzler, except for uh, Dennis Bleeding and his company. So uh, I, I would believe that this is possible this happened to Martin, and this may have been the beginning of the relationship. I don't think it's because Bryn felt so bad he's such a wonderful person. And in fact, even a good person, even a good caring person, is not going to be able to help every single stranger, is not likely to want to help every single stranger, especially in poker, where if the word gets around that you take pity on someone who uh, hits a bad circumstance, then you're going to have a huge line of people with their hands out. A huge line of people. In fact, over the years, I have been asked to stake people, and I've had to say no, but I'm not even known for staking. I don't even do it, but I have people coming to me, including back in 09, ACR money transfer scammer, who wasn't a scammer at the time, at least not to my knowledge, Floppy Bob, a.k.a. Brian Wojtek. I actually knew Brian Wojtek back in the 2000s, and I was okay with the guy. We weren't friends or anything, but we were acquaintances, and we talked occasionally on... Uh, Skype or whatever. He was just someone I happened to have uh, run into. I talked to him a little bit, and then one day he started coming to me, asking me for stakes. I'm like, oh, no, you got to be kidding me. I, I know nothing about this guy's game, but <laughs> looks like a broke guy who wants me to stake him. So uh, I, I said no. I was polite, and yeah, he, he was polite back. He didn't act picked up, pissed off, and then I find out years later that he uh, he's scamming people regarding uh, ACR transfers. But uh, he hasn't recently. I don't know what happened to him. Maybe he's in jail. I don't know what happened, but uh, he has not been scamming anyone in uh, the last several months, which which is good. I'd, I'd like to think that Wojtek maybe turned over a new leaf, but I doubt it. But anyway, I don't think Bryn Kenny was someone who just took pity on a stranger. I think he, for whatever reason, thought that uh, Martin Zamani could make him money and wanted to stake him. That's all he had to say. I, I heard this guy was a good player, and uh, he just... Got in a pretty desperate situation because uh, an embezzler screwed him over. So, all right, I wanted to give him a shot. That's all you have to say. And it might, might actually be true. That may be one of the few things here that is true. Let's go on here. It's taking a little more people than I would really like doing. And, um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's the way that I was introduced to him. And then I started backing him in some tournaments on... GG poker, a few on party poker and poker stars, a few live events like I would do with other people. Okay. And so then the transition for a horse for you would be, okay, I put him in a few things. Maybe we see how things go. And then, you know, he said he had to go to Mexico. He needed to train with people that you trusted. Uh, is all this kind of standard for, for how your stable would run? If you, bring someone into the fold, then this is what it's going to look like. Yeah. Well, like going to Mexico, that's because, you know, to legally play online, you've got to play outside of the country. So going to Mexico was like a personal choice of his because he wanted to play in the tournaments that were happening online at the time right then. And at the same time, you know, by me getting wiser and smarter along the process, I wasn't really putting in any money or time or energy into people that had no interest to improve their poker game or to improve their life. Uh, Martin's kind of Martin's a person that 
you know, through our conversations, he, he's someone who told me that he's actually never been happy in life. And someone like me, the way that I am, it, it makes me feel actually really sad for someone to, to really say that if, if that's their truth, because I feel like someone that's so fortunate that's had such a, a blessed, happy existence. And really something that I pride myself on is trying to bring some happiness or assistance to people that may bullshit, not have had bullshit, that same bullshit, fortunate bullshit, upbringing bullshit, and existence bullshit, that I have. Bullshit, so uh, recommending someone to eat healthy or, you know, here's a yoga instructor that, you know, I'm happy to pay for for you. No, oh, see, this is, this is, I can tell it's not true. Uh, I have no knowledge for sure that this isn't true. But I would be shocked if he's telling the truth here. Zamani presented this, that he was required to do these things. He wasn't looking to improve his life. He wasn't saying, hey, I wish I could do yoga, but I'm broken. I can't afford it. Oh, don't worry, Martin. I'll cover your yoga bills. Or, hey, you know, I'd like to see a, a shaman and have them put frog poison in my bloodstream and see if that'll help me. Okay, Martin, I got you. It wasn't like that, according to Zamani. And, you know, I, I mostly believe at least that part of the story. Why? Because you could tell by watching Martin Zamani that the guy's just a young degenerate. The guy wants to play poker, wants to make money, and wants to do it in whatever way possible. And he seems like the type of person whose main goal is to make money have fun, be a degenerate, and do drugs. And <laughs> that, that's the impression I got from Martin Zamani. He wasn't someone looking to venture on a path of self-improvement. Now, do I believe that he may have told Bryn Kenny at some point that he's always been unhappy? Yeah, it's possible they had that conversation. And it's possible that Bryn Kenny said, well, you know, what I do and what I did to improve myself as I went to this shaman, I went to, uh, I started doing yoga, I started eating much better, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's fine if you want to give advice, it will work for you. But Zamani claimed that he and all the other horses were required to do these things. And I think I read that Poker News independently verified that others admitted that they were forced to do this. So the, there's a big difference between recommending things to improve someone's life and requiring them to do certain things, especially certain non-standard things. It's, it's one thing to say, okay, if you want to play for my stable, uh, you can't drink excessively anymore. You can't drink before you play. You can't drink while you're playing. You can't do drugs. It's fine to say things like that. It's fine to say, I want a sober steak horse who's going to show up ready to play and have his mind fully in the game. It's fine to have requirements like that from a lifestyle standpoint. Uh, when it comes to diet, that already starts to get a little bit iffy because that starts to become overly controlling. Uh, diet is kind of more of a long-term sort of thing where uh, a good diet can definitely have good long-term effects on your health. You know, I'll say that, but a good diet is not going to do a lot for you short-term. It's not going to make you play poker better immediately to change your diet and start eating well. So, uh, yeah, he can have that requirement if, if he's open with them about it. But uh, it is on the controlling side. And then, of course, all this shaman and psychic stuff is crazy. So he's already, in my opinion, not being very honest here. And, and why not just say, you know what? 
you guys may not agree with this. You guys may think it's weird, but I succeeded in poker with this regimen, and I think it's very important. And I think for people who were kind of a little bit lost, like Zamani was, which, to be honest, he was. I mean, Zamani came to him broke by his own admission. He got you know, ripped off by an embezzler. Before that, he had a criminal record. He actually was uh, arrested for some sort of uh, Craigslist robbery. So the guy definitely has a history. And if you want to say, look, uh, someone comes to me whose life is kind of messed up and who doesn't seem to have much direction, I want that person to do X and Y to get themselves right. And if they won't, then I won't back them. And that's fine. But be honest about it. (laughs) I was just trying to help. And if they want me to pay for the yoga, I'll pay for the yoga. Now, come on. Here's a masseuse that I'm happy to pay for you. You know, here's an expert in this field that, you know, I'll here, this, you should meet this person. And, you know, that, then it's all up to an adult and a person to make decisions if they want to go ahead with meeting this person or doing whatever it is that's being recommended to them. And I, I would say I'm also someone that steers very far away of trying to put, I mean, at least my attempt, I know that I have a strong personality, so sometimes things can come across a different way, but consciously myself, I really try to steer away from putting pressure on anyone of what I feel like that they should do or that they have to do, as opposed to I would try to show them some tools that have helped me to to be better, to improve my poker game, to improve. Okay, you know what mistake he's making here? He's trying to just ramble to make himself look like a great guy. Just talk, 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 talk about what a generous and caring guy he is. You don't need to do that. To be seen as an honest and trustworthy guy in poker, you don't need to be open and caring and nice and sweet. You, you don't need to do this thing. You, you can just be straightforward and make sense and present to people that you're not shady. That's all you need to do. And when you start laying it on thick about how much you care and how just people need to come to you and you'll help, uh, when people know you to not be that type of person... And when you're accused of some pretty bad things, it just pisses people off. They don't even want to hear that from you. What they want to hear is you answering to the allegations. Either, yes, I forced my steak horses to go through this regimen, or no, Martin's completely full of shit. I never once told anyone they have to go to the shaman. I never dropped anyone to steaks because they wouldn't go to the shaman or the psychic. I never had a requirement for diet. Like, Just make it really clear. Either say, yes, I did, and here's why, or no, I didn't and Martin's completely full of shit. And th- that's the way to answer. If, if you lay it on too thick about what a great guy you are, uh, no one's going to buy it. And I'm not buying it. So let's... Uh, I'm going to skip forward now. I don't feel like hearing more of the rambling about Bryn Kenny humanitarian. Uh, let's skip forward here to uh, what led to the falling out. Because this is something I've been wondering. Like, why... Why is uh, Zamani coming out? Zamani wouldn't say. Polk tried to ask him, and Zamani admitted there was a reason he was coming out. So he wasn't saying, oh yeah, I'm coming out because I decided just, I'm going to be a good person and call out bad things that were being done that I was a part of, and I'm just going to do it to get this guilt off my back. Now, that's not what Zamani was doing. There's no chance that's what he was doing. And he even pretty much admitted that there was a specific reason that he came forward with this. So he wasn't doing this to help the community. So let's hear what uh, Kenny has to say as to why Zamani uh, 
at least had a falling out with him? Um, so for my, the way that uh, the business closed with me and him is uh, he was actually in like 350000 in makeup and was just continuously losing and having a negative attitude. And at the same time, uh, at that point, I think he owed me about somewhere in the hundred to 150,000 on the side from just things apart from the stake. And, you know, he still owes me um, and just decided that he wasn't going to pay me for that. So, uh, but another, like you're saying about that blackmail element. So on this Mexico trip that he talks about very much, uh, he actually spoke with one of my close friends and told them that he was going to blackmail me. So this is like one of the reasons why business closed like right after that, because, you know, you've got, I've got, here's someone that I'm trying to help and I'm trying to steer in the right path. And he, in his mind, he wants to, you know, find dirt on me to blackmail me and extort me really. And I think that what happened is in the past one and a half years, he's been trying desperately to find any proof of, these allegations that he's claiming, which really have have no proof at all. I mean, not proof. They have no truth to them at all. Whoops. Whoops. There's no proof. There's no pro- I, I, I mean no truth. Did I say proof? I mean truth. Whoops. <laughs> so what he was saying is he doesn't have proof I did these things. And, oh, 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 oh I, actually, they're not true. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. They're not, they're not true. There's no proof because it just didn't happen. I don't believe Zamani spent 18 months carefully collecting, quote, proof. In fact, we, even, we haven't even seen much proof. So really most of the proof we've seen has been stuff that's been corroborated from others. And that's not even 100% proof. That just makes it much more likely to be true. I don't think this was something that was premeditated for a long time, like a year and a half. In fact, that's not even the type of personality you see from Zamani. The guy seems very spur of the moment, live for the moment, seems just very erratic, seems like a young degenerate, as I already mentioned. This is not a guy who goes through a lot of planning. I mean, he couldn't even do an interview without smoking marijuana on the interview and admitting he's high as fuck. That was the big interview he did, watched by so many people in the poker world, and he couldn't even stop himself from getting high during the interview. So uh, this is not a guy who goes through a lot of uh, rigorous planning. So I don't believe that part. Do I believe that uh, this falling out had to do with money? Yes. I'm not sure. Of course, this is Bryn's story. Zamani wouldn't give a story other than that there is one, but he wouldn't say what it was. And Bryn is saying it has to do with money. I do think, if you ask me, do I believe Zamani owed money to Bryn, I would say probably yes. If you ask me, do I believe that Zamani was in a good deal of makeup to Bryn? Now, makeup, you're not asked to pay back, but you are way in the hole to where you're not going to get paid for any tournament wins under him until you get out of it. So that's uh, something that additionally had to be uh, an irritant to uh, Zamani. Yes. So I believe he probably was in a lot of makeup. I believe there's a good chance he owed money not having to do with a stake to Kenny, and I can believe that for whatever reason, Zamani convinced himself that he shouldn't have to pay this, and that they had a big fight over this whole thing, and it's even possible that Zamani did make some kind of threat of, okay, if you don't do what I want, then I'm going to come forward, 
and you're going to look awful. And Kenny probably told him, F you. And then Zamani came forward. And indeed, Kenny looked awful. However, that doesn't mean that this stuff isn't true. It just means that Zamani was no humanitarian, and Zamani was not a sweet guy trying to protect the integrity of the poker world. But we already knew that. I don't think there's many people out there that believe that Martin Zamani is an angel or was trying to help. I think we all kind of got the idea that this was self-serving in some way, and that either he was mad at Kenny for something, or that it was something like uh, a demand, you do such and such, or I'm going to put all this out of what we were doing together. And Kenny said, F you, and Zamani said, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to do it, and then did it. So it uh, very well could have been something like that. And that's why you can't give too much credit to Zamani or trust him completely because of the motivations here. If he was coming forward honestly because he felt he had done wrong with Bryn Kenny and wanted just everyone to know, even at his own reputation's expense, then I would say, yeah, you can probably mostly believe him if you really think that's his motivation. But if it's a personal motivation, which it seems likely, then you have to be careful about what you believe. But at the same time, just because someone is personally motivated out of uh, anger because of a falling out they had, uh, that doesn't mean that everything they say is a lie. Most of this could be true, and it could also be true that uh, what Bryn is saying is correct, that this was uh, kind of a blackmail attempt or uh, some way to get out of paying money that was owed was like, hey, I know all this stuff. And uh, and you may wonder, well, what would make Zamani just all of a sudden do this? Why would he just wake up one day when Bryn has been loaning him money and staking him? Why would he just wake up and say, hey, you know what? You better forgive all this or uh, I'm going to go tell the world what we've been doing here. Why would he just wake up and do that? Well, I'm sure there's much more to the story that probably that Bryn isn't telling and that Zamani also isn't telling. So, for example, I'm just making this up. But, for example, it could be something like uh, Zamani says, I, I want to be in some higher events so I can get out of makeup. And Kenny says, no, I, I don't, you've been losing too much. I don't think you're in the right frame of mind. And, and the whole thing with the shaman didn't work out. The psychic didn't work out every time. These people keep telling me you're not ready. So, uh, no, we're going to keep you down at some lower events. And Zamani's like, hey, look, I've been doing everything you've been asking me. I've been ghosting. I've been letting people ghost me. I've been colluding. I've been entering these uh, events to stop your overlays from happening. I've been doing everything you've asked. So this isn't a standard stake. So, hey, cut me a break here. Either either cut off some money I owe or uh, or cut off some makeup or, or put me in some bigger events so I can get out of it. And Kenny's like, no, no, you're not ready. It could have totally been something like that. And then Zamani gets pissed and said, look, asshole, if, if you don't uh, help me out here, I'm just going to quit this and I'm going to uh, come forward and, and tell everything about you. And say it could have been like that. So if that really was the argument, like neither side looks good. And again, I'm just guessing. I'm not saying that I have any information that's what happened. I'm just guessing from hearing both of them. Sometimes when two people have their side of the story you can kind of piece it together from what you know of each person, from the story they're telling, and kind of put together a conversation that you picture happening. You can put together the missing pieces out of it. And you can often put together the missing pieces if you approach it with a neutral mindset. If you come in with a mindset, let's make Bryn Kenny look as bad as possible and make Martin Zamani look uh, good, then you're probably going to get it wrong. And if you approach it with Martin Zamani, is very unreliable and looks like a, a career scammer, and uh, I, we think he's just uh, screwing Bryn Kenny here, if you approach it like that and think, well, this guy's unreliable, he's making up everything, then you're also probably going to get it wrong. So you got, you got to look at everything. 
And that's what I'm trying to do here. Now, sometimes you'll still get it wrong, but that's how you piece together the truth, and that's my impression of this. Let's go on. Uh, coming out with saying things like me using real-time assistance or me recommending this to my horses to use. I've never looked at real-time assistance in my life. I've never used any programs when playing any or, or at all. I've never seen these programs. I played my own style of poker, and I always have. And You know what? I think I believe that, or mostly believe that. And why? If you watch the Polk interview with Zamani, real-time assistance was not really much of the story. It seemed like uh, Zamani was throwing it in a little bit, but even he admitted this was not really a big thing here. And people are kind of uh, getting confused because two stories dropped so close together that had to do with a scandal with high-stakes online poker. One was uh, with uh, Ali Imsrovic and Jake Schindler. And then shortly after that was this one with Bryn Kenny and uh, Martin Zamani. And people are getting confused with all this talk about real-time assistance that they assume that this is a second story about real-time assistance, which, for those of you that forgot, is where you're using a helper computer program to tell you what to do and play optimally in hands. It's, it's essentially a bot that you're just uh, operating the, the buttons to press, but the bot is making all the decisions for you. So... Uh, he's saying, I never did this. I don't play with real-time assistance myself, and uh, nor do my horses. I'm not saying that nobody associated with him used real-time assistance, and I'm not even saying that Bryn Kenny would object to this if someone were to be doing it. I do believe that Bryn Kenny probably didn't ask anyone to use real-time assistance, or otherwise we would have heard a lot of that from Zamani in a lot of detail of, hey, Bryn told me use this program, and I use this whenever we played, and so did Cocksucker Mizikowski, blah, blah, blah. He didn't say any of that. So since that was not really part of the story, when it really could have played into the current outrage about real-time assistance, that tells me that most likely this really wasn't something that was going on, except maybe occasionally. So I think we can believe him here. I think if you were to speak with anyone who's played high stakes with me, they would tell you that, Clearly, I don't have a game or a style that incorporates any of any of this while at the same time accusing me of things like having my horses collude in satellites. The real funny thing about that is, is the names that he's listed. If you actually check up like their stats online, they're all huge losers like on GG. Like it's not like there's not money that. You know, these guys won that even you could see. These guys are clear big losers. Well, hold on a second. Hold on. That doesn't mean anything. Okay, now you might be right that these guys named lost. But something interesting that was being alleged by Zamani was that sometimes they were being used to collude or chip dump, such as in tournaments or satellites that had some kind of guarantee that wasn't being reached. And Zamani was alleging that they were told just register for these at 5K, 10K a pop with Bryn's money and then just dump to the chip leader, who's also a horse. So if you see a horse there that's doing well, dump them more chips. That's your function here. Why? Because Bryn, who would be covering the guarantee anyway, according to Zamani, would have to pay that money whether that person enters or not. So why not pay that money to give his own horses an itch? That was what Zamani was alleging so if the people instructed to do this are net losers, yeah, of course they are if they're instructed to chip dump. 
but that doesn't mean that his stable didn't benefit from it. And something we kept hearing in the Zamani interview was, do what's best for the stable, not for yourself. So unless we were to see a list of all players in the stable and how they did, and the hands they were involved with with other stake horses, this claim of his doesn't mean much. And the one thing I, to, to see, I was, I was in, the, in the start with GG helping them to grow their site, to grow their guarantees, to run bigger tournaments. So did I have horses that would start these satellites? Absolutely, but in no way, and you know, it could be, it's such so easily verified by, let's say, the 20 people that I've been doing business with since I started dealing with GG that there's not a single correspondence of me or an ask or of anything of me asking anyone to do anything uh, wrong in any way. For me, I would I see myself as the person who loves poker more than anyone in the world. And what I love about poker is its pure form. And, you know, I think that poker is meant to be a mind versus mind game. And that's what makes it the best game in the world. And at the same time, I hold myself to my own type of moral standards where I would say I look at myself in the mirror continuously and try to be the per- be the best person that I possibly can. So, you know, allegations like uh, me having my horses ghost other players on GG are completely false also. And all of the people that I've staked on GG would all say that, actually, I've went out of my way to say that it's something that I that I don't want anyone to do. That I uh, see. I don't believe that. Okay, so there's two different ways that uh, ghosting could take place among stake horses all in the same stable. There can be ghosting that is directed by the leader of the stable, where Bryn were to say to them, "Hey, uh, such and such person is deep. You're a better player than they are. So go tell them how to play. Go ghost them." and tell them what moves to make and how much to bet and when to bet and when to fold and all that, basically take over virtually for them. That's one way. Second way is they do it without your knowledge, where someone's trying to get out of makeup and they get to a final table and they say, oh, you know what? I need someone to help me. I need a better player to help me out of this final table. You know what? I'm going to call up such and such other stake horse and see if he can help me. So if Bryn wants to say he never told his stake horses to ghost one another... I'm not saying I believe that, but that's more believable than his claim that he told them not to ghost each other. Now, somebody who's running a stable for the purpose of making money, which is what he's doing here. He's not doing this for humanitarian purposes. So someone doing this for the purpose of making money, unless you believe this person is so ethical that they will leave money on the table by actually telling their stake horses, no matter what you do, do not ghost. You may be tempted to ghost. Do not ghost. Because the thing about ghosting is it's very hard to catch. Ghosting can easily be done without anyone knowing. Unless there's such a tremendous difference in play style between the two players, then uh, it can sometimes be guessed that maybe that's what's happening. But you could also just say, hey, look, I consulted this person beforehand, and I asked them for advice, and I'm, I'm trying to implement their advice. It's very hard to prove ghosting. Do you think, Bryn, from what you know of him from what you've seen of him, from what you heard described of him, do you think he is such an ethical, moral person that he said, nope, you know, even if you can make more money through ghosting, don't do it. Don't have your downstairs neighbor, who's also 
in my stable come upstairs and, and give you advice how to play. No, don't do that. I'm very against that. I'm super morally against that. Don't do that or you're gone. There's no way. I don't believe that for a second. I think uh, a more believable denial, though I'm not sure if I'd believe it, but more believable would be, I never told anyone to do that. I never once told anyone they had to or should or even were recommended to have people ghosting them. That I, I wasn't watching everyone playing, that I, I can't guarantee that someone who wanted to get out of makeup may not have uh, called someone they thought could help them. And I would have no idea if they did, but I never told anyone they should, they have to, I'd like them to, anything like that. That, that would be a semi-believable answer. But this, uh, I, I would not only would I not tell people to ghost, I would tell them not to ghost. And he, actually said, he told them not to ghost. Like, how would he even get this in his head that they're going to ghost? Hey, great, you're at the final table, but don't you ghost. Like, how often has someone running a staking operation put out that warning? Don't ghost. I don't know if that's ever happened. <laughs> so the fact that this topic even came up, it wouldn't even make sense. I have no interest in staking anyone if it's not going to be themselves playing. And I don't care if you're in a big, in a huge spot for a lot of money, which I have some close, some friends of mine who I staked for much smaller stakes that wound up playing for huge money and they played that tournament completely themselves and you know, it's. I would never get involved in any type of business that wasn't clean. And an important thing to remember too is, you know, I've I've been in the poker spotlight for the past seventeen years or so. Maybe completely in the poker spotlight for the past fifteen years. And through it, all the people that know and all the people in the community, I would say that if not the most, I'm one of the most respected people in the industry for my word, for following in my word. Uh, also, me being someone that's continuously been on a roller coaster in life, like financially. So there's a lot of people that just, you know, had a successful career and have never really been tested. Like I've been from rich to broke to negative millions back and forth all over again. And my word, everything has been tested throughout those years. And Anyone that I've been in business with that has maybe looked... <sighs> okay, see, th- this just makes him look more guilty. The, the, these long rants here about what a great guy he is. Nobody believes this. Nobody except anyone very gullible believes this part. And I, I think he didn't think this through of how he's going to come off. Okay, I'm going to move over to the 33-minute mark so we can hear about uh, his relationship with Sergei Reichik. This is the one who uh, Martin Zamani alleged the uh, Spaniard that was doing a lot of the ghosting for people that lived right below him in Mexico. That actually Bryn, he claimed, forced him to live above so they'd have easy access to one another. Um, he has since um, sent some things that Martin Zamani had, had sent him after um, the sort of showered this WSOP event, but do you want to just address um, some of the Sergey yeah, stuff? Absolutely, because Ser- Sergey's a good friend of mine, and I think he's a really honest and, and good person. And from my personal you know, view of him, he's someone that works as hard or harder than anyone inside the, inside the poker world. When, when he was playing in high-stakes tournaments, every hour that he wasn't playing, he would be studying on the side. So 
being someone that, you know, really I think is such a good person and has put in so much work to the game, you know, I, I've asked Sergi to do coaching for people because I, Sergi I see as uh, one of the best in the world, a world-class player, and I would ask him to give assistance to, of course, during group sessions that are accounted also that Martin's been a part of, there would be group sessions that would be set up once a week sometimes with with Sergi or with Bert Stevens, where these were the guys who were the best players who I staked. And I was trying to get, I would say that goes in line with trying to give the tools to anyone that's close to me or in business with me to be successful. And sometimes even the people that were in those calls were people that I wasn't backing at the time, but just people that I liked and wanted to help them progress in their poker career. Okay. So what do you say to the, um, allegations basically that Sergey was ghosting for Zamani. Before we get to that answer, that's the first follow-up question, I believe, in this interview. And so you may wonder, why am I not playing very much of Sarah Herring? Well, she didn't talk much. It, it was mostly Bryn rambling. She'd ask a question, which these were decent questions, by the way. So she'd ask a question and he would give long rambling answers and then she'd just move on. And you got to ask some follow-up questions. So at least we have a follow-up question here. And uh, then I'll go back to one part that I skipped accidentally, and that was about the, the team viewer thing, which is a very interesting part of the video. But let's hear his action. Let's hear his answer first about uh, was he ghosting for Zamani? Was a Sergi ghosting for Zamani at uh, Bridge Direction? Well, you know, okay, so when you're someone who backs like a lot of people, of course you can't be in every bit of conversation of detail. So on this trip, uh, Martin went. Martin was there and getting coaching from Sergi outside of the game. And on this particular night, and I'm I'm just saying what Sergi and Martin have said to me. Sergi was out with his his wife to dinner, and Martin sent him a message saying, "Hey, I'm deep in this tournament. You know, can you come over?" And I think they both admitted that that's exactly what happened. But that's like that's the at no point did I tell instruct that that's what he should do that either of them should do that in this circumstances i've said the opposite actually and you know it's something that happened between the two of them and from all that martin said it happened one night and over it might have happened between three to four hands or so so you know if, if that was something that was you know, prevalent that let's say on this trip, if I were to say, okay, this is what I want you to do when you're, when you're deep in a tournament, like, you know, call Sergi and have him help you. Then throughout that month, there would have been much more occurrences than just this one occurrence for a few hands. I've got a question here. If what Bryn is saying is true, that they did this on their own, this wasn't something that was uh, commanded by Bryn. I've got a question then. And it seems like everybody agrees here that at least this happened on one occasion. Now, Zamani said it happened on a lot more than one occasion, and I believe that too. But uh, even if it did, is it possible that Bryn did not ask them to, and in fact may have told them not to? Is it possible? Well, yeah, it's possible. But as I was saying before, I don't think it's likely. Uh, Zamani was very high during the interview with Polk, and he just spit out right away that Sergi was living below him and that he was told to live directly below him in Mexico. And I mean physically below, physically right under him. 
so he could come upstairs very easily in the event that uh, Zamani made a final table. And then he did. That was the allegation from Zamani. I think it's a little too coincidental that Suriki ended up in the apartment directly below in the same building where Zamani was living. Uh, you could say they did this on purpose because one was coaching the other. But there was there was so much detail to these uh, ghosting stories. Because not only was Zamani alleging that he had to be ghosted by Sergi, who was uh, the better player of the two, at least perceived to be by Bryn, but then Zamani claimed that he also would ghost people playing under him where he was the better player. So there, there was like sub-ghosting going on. And that's kind of a weird thing to make up. Yes, I guess it could have been made up, but boy, he spit out these details pretty fast without very much thinking when he was really high. That really makes me believe there's something to these allegations and that Bryn wasn't either blind to it or telling them not to do it. We have no way to know for sure right now, but uh, if you ask me what I believe, I would say that, yes, uh, this was something that was instructed. Um, And actually, the week after this hand, uh, Martin actually wound up three-handed in a 10K tournament um, and with three people left and having a good stack equal to the two other guys, he somehow got all in with seven deuce off suit or seven deuce suited. And it's like at these times you see when people are playing for like a lot of money and, you know, giving no care for your money and just outright playing bad or careless, you know, you start to rethink being in business with these people. Hmm. That's interesting because he was just saying what a great guy. That Sergey was, and now we're getting into that uh, he was careless and got all in three-handed in a big tournament with seven deuce. Hmm. So I, you can see he's setting up. That's why he was dropping uh, Sergey eventually as a stake horse. And uh, we'll get back to that in a second. Um, actually, let's get let's get to it right now. Let's get to that question about dropping Sergey as a stake horse. What was alleged by Zamani was that Sturgey was dropped as a stake horse once he got kicked off of GG for using real-time assistance. And then he was in like a million dollars makeup with uh, Bryn Kenny at the time. And that made uh, Kenny think, okay, well, he's useless. Not only am I going to drop him, but tell him that he owes me the money. That was uh, what Zamani said about uh, what Bryn did to Sergey that basically he had no use to him, so he dropped him and told him he owes him the money back. Who knows if that's true? Uh, Bryn does have a right as the staker to drop any horse at any time, so there's nothing unethical about that. Uh, And uh, even if it is just because that person got thrown off of GG for using real-time assistance, uh, I actually do believe, if you were to ask me, was Sergey using real-time assistance, I would say yes. And he even admitted he used a form of this called, quote, preflop charts, And second, I believe that Kenny didn't tell him to do it. I think that this may have been something that Sergey was just using without Kenny's input, or maybe Kenny knew and didn't care either way. And then when he got kicked off GG, uh, then Kenny was annoyed that the stake horse who owed a million in makeup can't continue playing because he was using these tools. So it could have been something like that. Like not, not that he was outraged that he was cheating, but more like, uh, you idiot, you got caught cheating, and now you can't make the money back. I think it was probably along those lines. But let's hear what Bryn Kenny claims is the reason that he ended up dropping Sergey after he got banned from GG Poker. It is 
agreed, by the way, that Surrey did get banned from TG Poker. There's no question about that. But let's let's hear what he has to say about that. Of. Not to say that, you know, I'm saying, oh, you know, it was so bad for you to use it. But at the same time, I had no knowledge that he was using any, anything inside the game. And if I did, him and anyone else that's close to me would say that I would have adamantly been against it. And so what was your response when he was kicked out of GG? And for what reason was it made known that he was not allowed to use GG anymore? Really, I didn't believe I, I believe I didn't believe any of it. And I started to ask for more information that I kind of didn't get any more information. And from the claims that he made, it seems that he asked uh, GG Poker for all the hands that he played because he was sure that he could prove that he wasn't using real time assistance with the game and the style that he has. So he's never really been been able been offered the opportunity to to clear himself in this regard and you know i i I haven't personally seen anything with my own eyes or heard anything from a reliable source that's seen it with their own eyes that he was doing anything like this okay oh my gosh there's still i know we're like deep in this and there's still so many things okay let's go to a little earlier in the interview, something I skipped, and that is the thing about the TeamViewer and NordVPN. Uh, let me explain what each of these are in case you don't know. And this was seen like in a screenshot, and people are like, oh, wow, what's TeamViewer doing there? What's NordVPN doing there? So TeamViewer is a program which is actually free. You can download it, and it can allow you to have access to somebody else's screen. So let's say someone's having a problem with your computer and you're very good with computers and they're not, uh, instead of going to their house, they could be very far away from you. Uh, another option is to have them download TeamViewer and then give you their code and their password for you to connect to their computer. And then you connect to their computer and then you basically have access to their desktop. It's almost like you're at their keyboard. So that's what TeamViewer is. It allows you to share screens and also interact with your screen. I have used TeamViewer before, not with anything poker related, I have used it with people who need me to help them with their computer, like my parents. Uh, my parents will sometimes have an issue with their computer, and uh, I will say, okay, well, turn on TeamViewer or download TeamViewer if they don't have it and give me the code, and I'll go on, and I can sometimes fix their issue without having to physically go over there. So that's a use of TeamViewer that's uh, obviously very legitimate and something that uh, can be very good to have. But TeamViewer could also be used for poker cheating, such as it's a very easy way to take over somebody's account, where if somebody's deep in a tournament, you can just start taking over playing for them by team viewing into uh, their computer. Now, the problem is that poker clients can scan for this. So poker clients that are looking for TeamViewer can see it right there. And then if TeamViewer is running, then they can uh, prove that you might be they can prove or suspect that you are using uh, some kind of assistance like uh, ghosting someone playing on your account and, and you can get in trouble. Now, it's not explicitly against the rules on poker sites to have TeamViewer running. So, for example, let's say another poker player says to me, hey, Todd, I think I have a virus on my computer. Can you look at my computer through TeamViewer? And I go, oh, sure, let's do it. So then 
I call them and say, okay, well, I have some time right now. And they go, oh, man, I'm in a tournament right now. I, I don't want to get out. And it's sort of the early stages. And it could be it could be many hours. And I go, look, if you want me to help you, it's got to be right now. So then they could turn on TeamViewer. And they could let me poke around with some things while they're playing. And that wouldn't be against the site rules because I'm not helping them play poker. They would be operating their own uh, controls. They would be making all the decisions. I would be uh, looking at something separate on TeamViewer. However, if they were already under suspicion for multi-accounting in some way or ghosting or whatever, and, and then there's TeamViewer running, then it could look bad. So it's like circumstantial evidence, TeamViewer. So you typically don't want TeamViewer to be seen if you're uh, thought to be multi-accounting or ghosting in any way. But uh, I mentioned last time, remember there was the allegations about the screen that uh, it was alleged that uh, Bryn Kenny could see everyone's screen through GG Poker, that he had access somehow through GG Poker's server to look at people's screens if they had GG Poker running, which something I, I said I didn't believe, even though Zamani insists it's true. And people did see TeamViewer, and I had suggested maybe there is something there like TeamViewer that he has installed on the state course's computer just so, just so he can keep up on them just so he can spy on them and see what they're doing. So uh, NordVPN is totally different. That's just a VPN that's just used to hide where you are. And why would that be there? Well, probably so you can play GG or other sites when you're in a jurisdiction like the U.S. that doesn't allow it. So that's not horrible, but that's why I'm guessing NordVPN was there. But let's hear what Bryn Kenny has to say about uh, NordVPN and... Team viewer, why that's uh, on his screen, and that is uh, kind of around the thirty-minute mark. What do you say to the accusation that you could see his screen? And I do think Doug like pointed out a few holes in his theory, but I just want you to address it. Could you see? I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, it's, it's. It's absolutely crazy. Okay. I mean, it's it's one of the craziest things that I've ever heard in my life and has absolutely zero truth to it. Okay, so then I feel like we also have to address this um, image of your screen, which contains TeamViewer and v- NordVPN. I think lots of people have at least VPN on their computer. Can you explain TeamViewer? Is there a good reason for you to have these things on and running? Well, like... TeamViewer just ha- like uh, when you have it downloaded, it's just something that like pops up when you turn on your screen, and you know it's a, it's a useful tool for you know being able to have communication with people. Uh, while at the same time, I was not u- I was absolutely not using TeamViewer. The people who do business with me know that I don't even have the time. I make that very clear that I don't even I don't have the time to really even coach them at all. Let Ugh. That's a bad answer. TeamViewer can pop up on your screen if uh, you have it configured that way. I'm not even sure if it uh, auto-configures that way. But I don't think that uh, he would just leave this unlogged in, this TeamViewer pop-up that would come up when you boot your computer. I don't think that's likely that he's just leaving that sitting in the background. He'd probably close it. I mean, this is the guy always on his computer, so he'd probably turn off that setting if that happens. And it's not like he's saying, hey, I installed TeamViewer a long time ago. It keeps popping up. I don't ever use it. I just don't feel like closing it. He's not even saying that. He's saying it's a useful tool, TeamViewer, in order to communicate with his horses that he uses TeamViewer to talk to people. (laughs) 
No. TeamViewer is not a good tool to talk to people. You know what's a good tool to talk to people? Skype, WhatsApp, any kind of messenger is a good tool to talk to people. But not uh, TeamViewer. TeamViewer is something where you see the other person's screen and can type for them. That's what TeamViewer is. Now, can you communicate through TeamViewer? Yeah, in a crude way, you can bring up like a notepad and type to them and they can type back. And I've done that. You know, like, again, let's bring up my parents. Uh, Let's say I need my parents to uh, turn off the computer or I need my parents to, you know, turn on and off the printer, whatever it is. You know, I can't uh, physically press buttons on machines if I'm TeamViewing into their computer. I can only take the controls of the computer with TeamViewer. So the way I can tell them without having to call them is I can have a notepad up and I can type on their, hey, turn on and off the printer right now or turn off the printer, wait 30 seconds and turn it back on. That I would type in the notepad and then my dad would type OK and then he'd say OK, done. And then I would go do whatever I need to do after that. That can be used for communication, but there's no way I would want to have any kind of real conversation. Not only that, it doesn't pop up any notification for people. So you can type on the notepad there, but it doesn't pop up anything. The other problem is you're taking the cursor away from people from their screen, which is a big deal. Because can you imagine playing online poker and you're, you're about to click raise and then someone moves your mouse for you who's team viewing in and you accidentally click fold? That would easily happen a lot if somebody's team viewing in while you're playing and you're both controlling things at the same time. So that's something that uh, really you wouldn't want going on while you're playing poker. Whereas like with a messenger, like Skype running in the background or WhatsApp running in the background, that will not interfere with your movements of the mouse. So this will not cause you to accidentally fold when you're trying to raise or vice versa. TeamViewer would be horrible to use to communicate. And given that this is his excuse as to why he's using it, he'd be better off just saying uh, it just pops up and I haven't used it in ages. Instead, he's saying, oh, no, it pops up and uh, I use it for communication. Yeah, that's bullshit. There's no way that's true. Bullshit! 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 Exactly. So I'm going to finish this little uh, segment up and then we will uh, go on to the next part of this. We have a lot more to do. I mean, these are things that people have on their computer. For instance, you know, going going into my my uh, my home computer because something's logged in there when I'm away from my house. It's something that can be useful and wasn't being used for any any type of wrongdoings at all. Okay, and so for you, you use it for that, and maybe sometimes you're coaching people, or I, I don't I don't have TeamViewer on my computer. I didn't even know what it was. I do have VPN software. So what would what are like reasons why people in poker would have this that are non-nefarious? For those who are watching who don't really understand, does that make sense? I need you to like I mean I'm I'm tr- I'm just really trying to think because I've I've given such little coaching to people like over the past few years because I really have, you know, been like uh, balancing my time with other stuff. So I've I've always I've made it so clear that you know hey if I'm going to back someone I believe in that person and I'm going to give them the the proper tools to try to be successful in poker but as you know the as anyone who I've dealt with recently can attest I've really given no time at all to to coach people outside a game inside a game absolutely not but what I would All right I mean, he changed the subject is what happened. 
he was asked, what would possibly be a reason that you would be using this VPN? And what would possibly be a reason that you would have TeamViewer? And then she said something like, well, is it possibly for coaching people? See, this is, again, an interviewing mistake. When you're interviewing someone about allegations against them, you don't present an excuse for them so they can run with it. You just ask the question and stop. Okay, I don't have TeamViewer on my computer, and I have a VPN software, but I'm not really using it much. So what are you using it for? What would be the reason that you'd have this stuff, and what are you personally using it for that isn't nefarious? That, that's a good question, but you stop there. You don't say, so are you coaching people? Are you doing this? They, don't hand him an excuse. Well, the funny thing was, he didn't even run with the excuse. He started rambling about coaching and didn't really want to answer the question about what he's using it for. I, I don't really remember, but I, you know, I don't do much coaching. Uh, you know, but I, I do coaching under this circumstance and that circumstance. Now, we, we don't want to hear about your coaching. We want to hear why was TeamViewer on there? Why were you using it to, quote, communicate? And, and what is the VPN for? And I don't think the VPN is a huge deal. I think the VPN, again, is just a play in the U.S., but the big problem is the team viewer. And that was one of the things that people really noticed in this interview that didn't seem was a truthful answer from him and was very suspicious. Now, what do I think team viewer would be used for? Believe it or not, I don't even think this is about him ghosting people. It could have been, but I don't even think that's what was happening. I think team viewer was used for control. I think it was used so he could look at anyone's screen at any time and always see what they're doing and see how they're playing and see every hand and see uh, what's going on in the background, maybe. You know, just a view into his horses. That And, and, and I think maybe Zamani left something out when he's saying, oh, you know, he's, he's viewing my screen through GG Poker. I think it's possible that Kenny even told people he put on TeamViewer for them. Maybe they didn't realize it. Maybe that it pops up automatically and he just connects. There are ways with TeamViewer, by the way, to where if you set up a trusted account with another computer, then you can just directly TeamView into their computer without them having to do anything. So maybe that's what he was doing. Maybe he had all his horses have that installed on their computer, maybe even without their knowledge, and would just TeamView in. But I have to think they probably knew and I think it was all part of the control. And I think maybe this could be where Zamani wasn't completely truthful. This might be where Zamani knew he was being watched, but Kenny told him, look, I'm not, I'm not watching this to spy on your conversations or anything. I, I'm just going to bring it up whenever you're in a big spot like a final table. And then Zamani may have been suspicious that Kenny was spying on everything he was doing, even when he wasn't at a final table. And then to test it, he had this fake conversation with his friend the gooch remember he mentioned the the gooch that he talked to about some incident that didn't really happen and wanted to see if Bryn would would uh mention it later and he claims that later Bryn approached him and said hey you know what about this you know this happens such as that happening to you and that's where he got it from the fake story that he told to his friend on his computer through uh, WhatsApp or something that Kenny saw, and that would be the only way Kenny could know about it because the Gooch was only friends with him and not with with Bryn Kenny. So uh, I kind of believe that story in a way, 
but maybe it was because of the team viewer. Maybe it was just Kenny trying to guarantee his horses that he's not going to be spying on them. And he's just he's not going to abuse the team viewer access. And Zamani started to get suspicious that Kenny was abusing the team viewer access and just acting like Big Brother and watching him all the time. And then did that. And then Zamani just morphed the story into being that uh, Gigi Poker is giving him access to watch you, which is much more dramatic. It could have been something like that. See, this is where you have to look at both people. And obviously, this team viewer here, there's a lot more to the story than what Kenny's telling us. But uh, I have a hard time believing that Zamani didn't know that he was being watched through team viewer. Like, I, I really think that Zamani probably was aware of it, but he was given some flimsy promise that it's not going to be abused. And he felt it was. And he put Kenny to the test and caught him. And then he was really mad. Like, I, I bet it was something like that, if I had to guess. So, OK, we're going to move on to the next portion of interest and that is about Lauren Roberts. Remember, Lauren Roberts was the older woman that Bryn Kenny talked into playing on GG, allegedly. And she lost $2 million. She acknowledges this. Martin says that people have independently verified through sites that track high-stakes action on GG. So it does seem pretty clear she lost around $2 million on GG. Now, that's not necessarily Bryn Kenny's fault. So the question is, how much fault did he have in the situation? And we're going to hear his explanations as to what did happen with uh, Lauren Roberts. Um, I feel like we at least I want to flush out some of the stuff with the stables and the satellites and things like that. Um, But I also want to. Um, tackle some of this Lauren Roberts stuff. And I feel like while we're on the subject of talking about ghosting and that this isn't something that you um, would have approved or encouraged in your stable, Lauren has made a lot of uh, allegations, one of which is you ghosting on her account. And she has said that you told her that she won a poker tournament and that suddenly she had less makeup or something along those lines. I think she said, um, magically our number went down after she won a tournament. Um, so what would you say to that allegation? And well, she's, she's, she's made another allegation that kind of, that doesn't, that doesn't connect to each other at all. So, you know, a, she has it here saying that I was ghosting on her account while there's a screenshot of her account losing, I think, 2.2 million on a straight, like, down decline, while at the same time making a claim that I was, whatever word, taking advantage of her being in games and having all my horses, like, kind of hunt her. So I don't understand how, you know, one side she can state that I was playing on her account, but then on the other side, I was having people hunt her because she was you know a a weak player okay i can answer that i can give an explanation i wasn't even there um she did lose 2.2 million dollars pretty consistently according to that graph he is correct about that and she admits that she lost a lot of money and so that's not in question but the graph wasn't straight down it was consistently down where she didn't have any protracted upswings, but she did have some very brief upswings, as you would expect most uh, fish in the game to have. And when I say fish, I'm not being insulting towards her. Uh, 
you know, I'd be a fish in the game against uh, better players than me, even though I'm not a fish in poker. So she was against better players than her. I believe that. I believe this wasn't just bad luck. And there's also allegations they colluded against her, but I think she would have lost against these people even without collusion, whether or not it happened. But as far as the allegation that he played on her account without her knowledge and then came to her and said, hey, guess what? I won a tournament as you, so I'm actually taking that off what you owe me. That's very possible. We have no proof it happened. But him saying that she lost consistently to get down $2.2 million, so how could I have possibly won a tournament on her account? Of course you could have, because there were some short upswings there, and one of those could have been you winning on her account. If she never won, if every single session lost, then you'd be correct. But that's not what we see. So that's kind of a dumb thing to bring up. I mean, I think the allegation is basically that you were like playing that, that you were having your horses take money from her and then also periodically taking money back from your horses. Yeah, but that's what I mean. It, It goes in line to be something so crazy because you know, inside that, Martin was saying that in these satellites, I would that he he should call like the players with any two cards, and you know th- this doesn't make any sense. You're not going to actually make money if you like em- employ this strategy. And you know- see again, he's not answering to the allegation. Martin said that Kenny instructed them to always play for the stable's own good, not for their individual own good. So if they were instructed to take Bryn's money and torch it in a satellite in order to chip dump to someone or in order to uh, keep the satellite going, whatever it might be, just because that individual player loses there and they're playing under Bryn doesn't mean it doesn't have an advantage for Bryn. In the very simple case here, in the satellite case, if there's going to be some kind of overlay and some kind of guaranteed satellite or even if there's not, and Bryn just wants to pump up the stacks, kind of like an add-on to his horses who are currently doing well, he could, I'm not saying he did, but he could have instructed people like Zamani to go on there, register, and dump chips to the people in the stable who are already doing well to give them a higher chance to win the satellite, which, of course, directly benefits Bryn if they're playing under him. So, even with these horses posting a loss, that doesn't mean that other horses aren't getting more benefit out of it. So he knows this. He's not a stupid guy. And th- that's where these type of answers bother me, where he's so condescending. Like, how could they say this? If these players are down, how could they possibly be colluding? That's not how collusion works. Collusion doesn't mean everybody at the table wins. Sometimes it does, but sometimes there's one person who is designated to lose so the other can win more if they're playing on the same bankroll. You know, why would I ever want to move money from one side to the other? And that would also mean that I had multiple people involved in you know, this complex scenario that really makes no sense, while at the same time... You know, me and Lauren for a period, I, I think it was four years ago, I would say that Lauren was my best friend like four years ago. We were we were spending a lot of time together. She was she was nice to offer me a room to stay in her house and she loved poker and we would we would talk about poker all day and we would have 
good laughs and we went on multiple trips around the world and I was trying to do the same thing. I was trying to recommend her people that could help enhance her life in terms of, of health and even doctors and try to offer her coaching from people who I was taking and I was giving her coaching myself for no, for no incentive. So the other thing is, well, see again, this isn't really answering the allegation. It's not being said that 100% of the time that you were an asshole to Lauren Roberts. If you were, she would have ditched you a long, long time ago. Uh, the allegation was that you pretended to be her friend. You pretended to do her favors. You pretended to have her best interest at heart. You even may have gotten her coaching, which would appear that you were trying to make her get better. But at the same time, it's alleged that you had people who played under you, your horses, come sit with her whenever she was in a high-stakes game and take her money because they were better than she was. You you alerted the horses to go over there and sit with her and beat her. And uh, it's also alleged that they would collude against her. And it's also alleged that you occasionally used her account to sometimes bring down the figure that she owed you because, of course, you were doing all the cashier services and you were letting her play on credit. And I, I know it was alleged at the end that she still owes you money and hasn't paid her tab here. So uh, this would all possibly make sense like there's no contradictions here i will say there's been not that much proof so i'm not saying that everything zamani is alleging is true it might not be and there might be partial truths here but at the same time you can't cite nice things you did for her and then not answer to the main allegation so when someone says, did you alert your horses to come sit with her when she was in the game? You don't answer like, well, you know, I was recommending her doctors and I was giving her coaching and recommending coaches to her. I was being real helpful. Yeah, but did you alert your horses? Well, but I was such a good friend. I was such a nice guy. No, did you have your horses sit with her? Like, that's the question. Did you tell your horses that she's in the game and did they sit with her? That, that's all you got to ask. And how did you feel when she's chunking off all this money there against these really good players that are at GG high stakes, several of whom play under you? Why did you not say to her, hey, Lauren, you know what? It's probably time to drop down in stakes. Probably this is not the right game for you. When you're losing as consistently as she was, which everybody agrees she was, which she admits she was, why as a friend would you even have her keep sitting in these games, even if you're getting her coaching? If you're a friend, you would say, Lauren, I know you want to be a great poker player and play with these great players, but they have an edge over you. They're just better. And maybe if you work with coaches or maybe if you let me coach you and I believe you're good enough to hold your own in these games, then if you want to play them, go ahead. Otherwise, you're just torturing, torturing money. That's what I would tell to any of my friends that were losing at that rate. And I've had friends before or friendly acquaintances that have uh, sat in tough poker games and lost. And I'm not an asshole saying, hey, you're the fish in the game. Get out of here. Uh, You know, if if on a one-time basis or occasional basis, they're going to sit in the game they want to take a shot at, I'm not going to be a dick and tell them not to play there. Uh, I'm not their dad. You know, these are just uh, other adults who are making a decision. However, uh, if I saw them routinely sitting in games and getting clobbered for a lot of money, I, I probably would tell them, you know, it's probably better to uh, play in some easier games. I'd even tell them, I've been there myself. I've been in high-stakes games where I'm losing, and I'm losing a lot of money, 
and I decide, I don't know if it's because I can't handle these players well or from just running bad, but it's not a good idea for me to be here anymore, then I step down a little bit. And so I would tell them I advise the same thing. But it looks like Bryn didn't do that. So that's what a friend would do in this spot. Lauren can't say that I ever had any piece of, of her at any point. So I had no financial gain by her in doing anything. And at the same time, when people make accusations of, you know, Lauren losing money, the thing is Lauren never actually paid the money that she lost. She still owes me a, a huge amount of money that I've, you know, she showed some some messages of me asking for it. And, yeah, it's, it's yeah, some, some, you know, life is humbling and sometimes you can't understand things because from her side, you know, she's she sees herself as, you know, this victim that I took advantage of. But in reality, you know, that, that couldn't be less true. I was, you know, I offered her to, to stake Sergi with me at one point because she was losing a lot of money on GG. So I started letting her have action that she never paid for either. Okay, you know what? I actually believe this. Remember, just because I think Bryn Kenny had a lot of wrongdoing in here, and I think that Zamani probably made a lot of valid or mostly valid allegations, I'm not saying I never believe Kenny. And this is one spot where I think I believe him. I do think that she stiffed him for most of the money that she owed him, believing that she was taking an adva- taken advantage of and screwed here and didn't want to pay. And this probably got him very mad. Because as far as he saw it, that this was a rich woman who was playing on credit because he was giving her chips on GG. He had that power as an agent on GG. He could just load whatever the hell he wanted on her account. But of course, he had to cover it. He had to cover this on GG's end. This isn't just funny money. He basically guarantees to GG that he's going to cover it for them. So I know there's allegations that he left owing money to GG, and that's a whole different matter. But that doesn't have to do with her. That's between him and GG. But I'm talking about when he gives her chips, he's giving it to her on credit unless she pays him immediately for these chips that he's giving her. So knowing that she was a rich woman who did well in finance, he extended her a larger amount of credit that he would not have done for someone who was uh, young and broke. So he, she probably had like a $2 million or more line of credit with him, of personal credit, where he assumed, okay, you know, she's good for it. She seems like a nice person. She has money. So, yeah, if she loses, I'm sure she'll pay me. And then she probably broke the news to him at some point. And you can even see in these screenshots that she posted of their text conversations, it was Bryn saying, pay me, and her basically refusing, and him threatening he's going to make her look bad. Now, he never came out and outed her. She basically uh, outed herself after uh, her name was brought up in the whole thing. But it does look very much like that she owed him a lot of money, probably more than a million dollars. So Bryn is sitting here. He extended her all this credit. She loses. He figures, okay, at least I'm going to get the money from her. She's totally good for it. She's not like a regular poker gen. And then he ends up getting stiff for over... One million dollars. So yeah, I see why he's pissed here. However, I see why she's pissed. Because she figures, and possibly correctly, that she was set up. That he was a fake friend that he was buttering her up so she would sit with all her wealth in these high-stakes games with her with his horses who would then clobber her, and he would give her a false sense of security that she's good enough to handle it. And yeah, 
like Zamani said, with friends like that who need enemies. So I can easily believe that happened, and I can easily believe that after she became suspicious that was happening, that she just said, F you, I'm not paying you now. And then a big falling out occurred. What we're going to hear in a second what his uh, story is about the falling out, but that's that's my theory about what really happened. So just because Bryn Kenny seems to be lying about some things here, that doesn't mean everything's a lie, and I think this is mostly truthful. So her the amount that she was losing of $2.2 million, I wound up making back for her about $1.5 million of our, our stake of Sergi, uh, her buying pieces of me. And she... I, I was also, she would ask me for large amounts of money on party poker. She would ask me at times to pay off her debts from, you know, this game or that game. And she really, she never paid any of the money that she actually lost from, from GG. So I don't understand, you know, the predator approach. And that's something that, you know, it's tough for me to see because, I mean, it's so it's so against my character to take advantage of of anyone. Well, no, no, I don't believe that. And what I do believe is you probably did give her some opportunity to get some money back. For example, maybe you did give her pieces of Sergi, who I, I thought was losing. So I'm not quite understanding here. Like if he was down like a million bucks, how how were pieces of him helpful? Unless she happened to own the pieces in the events that he did well, but. He said she had pieces of him. So, all right, it's possible that he gave her pieces of people that were profitable and that ate into her 2.2 million figure. But this is kind of similar to how casinos will give you lavish comps if you're shooting off in their casino. So, who do they give these beautiful sweets and expensive meals and expensive trips to? Who do the casinos give this to? Do they give this to low rollers or medium rollers? No. Do they give this to advantage players? No, unless the advantage players have them tricked into believing that they're whales. They give these to the whales who are chunking off big money there. And this does have a real cost to the casino, especially the food and the trips and the activities. But the casino eats this knowing that this will encourage the whale to keep losing. So, similar situation here. Is that Lauren Roberts is losing, losing, losing very consistently. And if he doesn't keep her happy in some way, she'd probably say at one point, you know what? That's enough. I'm tired of losing. This is no fun. I'm quitting. Because gamblers don't like to just lose. If gamblers just lose, 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 without much winning in between, and I'm talking about just about all gamblers, not pro gamblers, not addicted gamblers. That make all gamblers. It's, it's human nature to where if just about every experience you have is losing, you're not going to want to continue regarding gambling. The best thing that can happen to somebody who has the potential to be an addicted gambler is just to get clobbered whenever they attempt to gamble and just about never win because they're going to quit. What brings them back are the memories of winning, the memories of getting out of the hole the memories of jackpots they're hitting, the memories of big poker sessions. That gives them the belief that they can do it again. If they're just always losing, it it becomes really, really unpleasant, and you don't want to come back. It's kind of like the experiments of the rat in the maze, where the rat, if he runs into a wall that has an electric shock to it, he's not going to keep running into that wall, because uh, he realizes, don't touch that wall because it hurts. It shocks me. 
So the same thing. If you if every time you sit down and play poker, you lose, you're going to get enough shocks to where you're not going to come back and, and play. So since she was getting those shocks, he had to do something, very possibly, to butter her up. That's not necessarily him being a nice guy. It's also possible that uh, he was getting the impression she wasn't going to pay him. And so he was trying to find a, kind of find a way to uh, soften the number without just taking money off of it directly. Well, who knows? But I don't believe this is done out of the goodness of his heart. I'm always so generous and giving and caring. And during this time, me and Lauren would go on trips. I would pay for the rooms. She would fly on some private jets with me. You know, we would go to dinners. I would pay for it. So, I mean, even in my poker career, when I had no money and I was negative, it's like all the people that ever hung around me, like I would really pay for their life. And if they were struggling through hard times, I would loan them money for it. So, you know, it's like it, it, it's, it's messages that contradict each other continuously in these allegations where it's saying, you know, here's one thing, but here's the, you know, something that doesn't make, have this make any sense. So what happened with Lauren? I mean, that's what I think is confusing also. So you guys were very close friends and clearly something happened and she is pissed off. I mean, um, you know, I don't really like, I prefer not to talk about, you know, other people really, but you know, our, our relationship just, it, it changed a little bit. I, I met my girlfriend at that time and maybe in, Maybe it was about a month period where I was hanging out at Lauren's house and we were spending all day together, hanging out, laughing, you know, talking poker. And then, you know, she would kind of get jealous of of my girlfriend, of her not going on certain trips that, you know, she kind of thought that she should have an invite to every trip that I ever went on. And it kind of... It, it, it turned into something that w- that started to get much more uncomfortable for me. And at the same, for someone who, you know, I've always paid my own way. So when you say, you know, Lauren and her husband let me stay at their house, it's not like I needed to stay at their house. I just, I liked them and it was a nice, comfortable setting for me and it worked. But at the, then when I started leaving for more and not staying as much, it's like the the energy and the relationship like started shifting. In- I, I don't believe that. It's possible. I don't believe that part. I think it probably had to do with the money. Even he admits that she didn't pay him, that she never paid him, that he just kind of brought the figure down by giving her pieces of people that were profitable, and then uh, she still wouldn't pay him. So I, th- I think it probably had to do with money. We even see them fighting in text messages about money. Into somewhat of a, of a toxic way that... You know, anyone who is privy to our relationship and everything that happened, you know, people like my mom and and close friends that, you know, knew about our relationship and everything that was going on. You know, that's the the unfortunate way that that things turned. So she seemed to suggest also that you're fairly loose with the accounting within your stable or that it wasn't very clear um, what would you say to that? I mean, loose is, I don't know about loose. You know, when you do, when you're doing business with a lot of people, you might not have spread. I'm, I'm not a person, you know, an accountant would have spreadsheets and they would show every single date, every debit or credit that made it to result in the number that it is today. 
me, I would have I would have a number and I would update it any time that there was a plus or a minus from that number. I kind of believe that. He kind of seems like the type of guy who isn't going to run this in a really professional way. Not like a Eric Sheetaber, which I believe you know, ran his stable in a very professional and business-like fashion. I, I don't see Bryn Kenny doing that. I actually believe him that he just kind of kept rough numbers of people in makeup, that he wasn't looking to bring it down to the dollar, that just whenever they would enter something substantial or win something substantial, that he would add or subtract those numbers. And that probably why was why that he didn't have an exact number for what she owed him. But who cares? That's just splitting hairs. That's that's really not a major part of this whole thing or really all that interesting. So let's uh, get over to uh, another thing regarding uh, Lauren Roberts. This, for whatever reason, came later in the interview. But I'm going to, since we're on the topic, I'm going to do it in order. So we're, we're going to go to uh, the question of, was there any kind of romantic relationship that uh, he and Lauren Roberts had. I know he mentioned she had a husband, but that doesn't mean that much. You know, people can cheat. So is it possible that they had something going on and maybe that was informing the whole thing? Here's what he has to say about that. Um, There was no romantic element, but at the same time, she did make multiple comments and even actions that started making me more and more uncomfortable, which I would guess that from her side, there probably is a feeling of that of, of romantic relationship that absolutely nothing ever happened with that. Okay. So circling back to the conversation. So, okay. You know, that's very hard to tell. People were laughing at this. Like, oh, look at this uh, asshole, this misogynist who's saying that she wanted him and is bitter she couldn't have him. No, and and he wasn't even, like, saying that directly. He was saying that she was making some comments which made him uncomfortable. Who knows? She could have made some jokes, like some sexual jokes, and he was a little worried that he didn't have that interest in her because she's a lot older than he is. I think she's, like, mid to late 50s, and I believe he's, like, late 30s. So there's, like, 20 years between them, so... He probably wasn't into her that way, and he probably didn't even want her to begin to think that. I don't think he ever wanted sex from her. They probably never had sex. I I would believe that. It's very possible she didn't want sex from him and just was happy to have him as a friend, especially because he was a big name in poker and so successful in these high-stakes tournaments. And maybe she developed a crush on him. Maybe she would have messed around with him if he showed interest. Maybe she wouldn't have. Remember, she was married, so it's very possible that she would have never cheated on her husband. I don't know her well enough to state this. Uh, It is true that sometimes when a male and female, who are both heterosexual, which they both are, uh, spending a lot of time together, that especially if it's friendship develops, that uh, sometimes it can translate into uh, romantic or sexual interest. And this can especially happen if uh, on one end, if uh, one is older than the other, sometimes the older one can develop an interest and the younger one's like, oh, no, 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 I just see you as a friend. You're just an old person I'm friendly with. What the hell? I don't see you that way. Like, sometimes the way you see someone and the way they see you are two t- totally different things. And when there's a big age difference, that can easily happen. So maybe she was just joking around sometimes. Maybe that's just her personality and she'd make some kind of sexual joke and then he'd feel uncomfortable like, uh-oh, I, I got to just ignore this because I don't want her to think that I want to have sex with her. And a lot of times guys are also bad at reading these things. Sometimes 
they can take friendliness to mean that the girl wants to have sex with them or is really into them when in reality the girl isn't. So it's very possible that Lauren Roberts never would have cheated on her husband and actually never had any romantic interest in Bryn Kenny and just liked him as a friend and as a poker player. It's also possible maybe she did develop a crush on him and would have done something if they were, uh, you know, if the opportunity came up. There's no way to tell. And it's not really important here because this is not really a major element of the story. And I don't think he really said anything this bad here. Like he said, oh, she said a few things to make me uncomfortable. Now, he probably should have left that out, but uh, it's not like he said she was constantly after his bod and he had kept, re- kept projecting her. He didn't say that. And he wasn't even trying to imply that. And he said nothing ever happened. We will uh, move on here to the next Lauren Roberts-related question, and that was why she ended up owing money to him, because that's what he's claiming. You know, how did this occur? And also, uh, was he ever ghosting on her account? This is addressed here, so let's hear about that. Dollar, I never made or profited a dollar from anything that she was involved in. It, these were, you know, it was... Yeah, I I really liked Lauren at first, you know, and it was me trying to to help someone who I thought was a friend who was very caring and giving. And he's explaining here why he kept giving her money when she kept losing. Because remember, he kept fronting her this money. Well, I can answer that. This wasn't a stake. This was a loan. That's the whole point. He said that she owed the money to him. She wasn't a stake horse. So, of course, if you've got this person who's dumping money, not intentionally, but dumping money because they're just losing, because they're not that good, to your stake horses and they're rich, of course you're going to keep loaning them the money, assuming they're good for it. His miscalculation was that she would cry foul about this at some point and say, F it, I'm not paying this, something's wrong here. And that's why I believe the fallout happened. But that's why he was investing in her. Because I believe from everything I've read and heard that this was a loan, not a stake. It's a huge difference. So let's let's go on here. And she ended up owing you money for what reason? Well, she was Because of the Sergei stuff? No, no, no. She actually, she won a lot of money on the Sergei stuff. She might have won like uh, somewhere in the a million to a million three range from the action that she free-rolled off of Sergei. So all so she she lost two point two million dollars on GG, of which she never paid. Then happened to win a bunch back on this action that I gave her, and she didn't pay her remaining balance from the losses that she had. Yeah, I mean that's a loan. It's not so much a loan; it's credit. It's here's some chips on credit. I'm the agent. I'm giving you chips. You owe me money for these chips. You just don't have to pay me right now because you're a rich woman who I trust. So her balance on GG is not her balance. It's on your balance. Yeah, I would loan. She, she borrowed money from me to play. So all of those losses that people document, she actually, she really didn't lose anything because she didn't pay that money. Yeah, but you also weren't continuing to give her this credit because you're a nice guy who cares. It was the opposite. You were giving her this credit because you thought she was going to pay you and you didn't mind her losing. I mean, that's that's clear as day to me. Okay. Okay. And you will categorically confirm or deny playing on Lauren Roberts' account. Yes. Deny. 
you definitely did not ever do that. No. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But it's hard to prove is the problem. Easy to deny that. Let's get over to some of this other stuff here, like the frog poison. And I feel like you have to address the uh, toad poison situation. I didn't want to focus on this, but questions have been asked. I mean, I've, I've never done any, I, I never did any of that with Martin. I've never done any psychedelics or anything with Martin. Uh, at the same time, I recommended him to, you know, I connected him to a person that, that was, um, was, that was recommended to me by another close friend that knew her for a long time. And this is someone that I recommended Martin to, to go see, to, to try to help him from, you know, just always being unhappy. And, you know, at that point he's going to go meet with someone and it's, it's his decision if he wants to go forward with that. It's just, you know, it's something like, you know, make a, a recommendation for someone to meet another person and, what happens there is, you know, an adult consenting of if they want to go ahead with it when they're presented with all the information right there. Okay, I don't know if I believe that. It's possible. It's possible that he talked uh, Zamani into going to this shaman, which now both of them are saying that that he hadn't previously met her and didn't have experience with her. And that uh he Zamani is saying that he was required to go to her almost like as a guinea pig. And Bryn is saying he just heard she was good from her friend and recommended it because Martin was unhappy with life and needed a new experience to turn him around. I think I believe Martin on this one. He just doesn't seem like the type of guy who'd say, yeah, okay, I'm going to go to this uh, shaman who's going to do all these weird things. It just doesn't seem like that's what Martin is about. And it does seem more like something Kenny would require of his horses. And this is one of these things. If this is what you require, just admit it. Just say, I'm kind of an unusual guy. I kind of have unusual requirements. But this is one of them. I think it's important to get the, the mind and body right. Okay? And some people won't agree with it. And some people make fun of it. But, you know, people are already making fun of it. So just, just own it. And you can even say, I didn't realize this shaman was going to do some of this really wacky stuff. And, uh, you know, so that's what happened out of the whole thing. And it's unfortunate, but this isn't that believable at the same time, though, we don't know for sure. I guess it's possible. It was just a recommendation. Okay. So let's uh, hear more about the shaman here. This is near the uh, 107 mark. Did you send other people to this shaman person? Uh, yeah, I myself, uh, saw her and some of my friends, some of my friends partook on, uh, ceremonies that I personally had in Hawaii and Costa Rica. Okay. Well, that's, that contradicts what you were saying before, Bryn, because you were saying that you just kind of heard she was good from a friend and you recommended him to go there. Now, it seems like you both agree that he saw her before you did, but then after he has this bad experience with the frog poison and that he wouldn't do and she was insisting and calling him a chicken for not doing it and wanting to drop acid into his eyes that would make him not be able to see and he wouldn't do that and they have this big argument, you would think after that he'd go back and say, hey, Bryn, you know, this shaman sucks and she wants me to do crazy things, so uh, that, that should be it. Instead, 
Bryn continued with his shaman, and they went to Hawaii and Costa Rica with her and, and, and did sessions with her and had other people do sessions. See, at this point, this gets away from Martin was a lost soul who needed help, and this is something I recommended. Now he had himself doing it. He had other people doing it who didn't have the same problems as Martin allegedly had. So this does make it look like that this was part of the stable. And this does make it look like that this at his direction. And by the way, this should have been a follow-up question by Sarah, but instead she got it out of the chat room near the end of the interview. That's why she sounded hesitant as she was reading it. She was actually reading it out of the chat room. And uh, that was a good question, whoever brought that up in the chat, to have him expand upon that. And now we can put these two together and get a good idea that it doesn't sound like he's telling the truth. If you want to see the whole thing, Go to the Poker News YouTube channel, or you can just go to YouTube and type in exclusive interview with Bryn Kenny, and it will show up for you. But I'm going to play this last clip, the final thing he was asked about if he could go back, what, if anything, would he do differently? That's a good question. Okay. Oh, I like this question, actually. If you could go back... What, if anything, would you do differently? Honestly, I think about that question a lot sometimes. And I'm really just so grateful for for all the lessons that I've had and the understanding that I'm at at this point in my life. And I think that, you know, if you go back and you change something, it's a ripple effect. And it would have a, a different effect on how your life is right now. And I've seen just constant growth and positivity and I feel like I'm I have a very positive influence on so many people's lives and I'm so happy the person that I am and I accept all my all mistakes that I've ever made and I look at it as a a learning experience and something that just makes me stronger and more prepared for the future that's coming. So I'm just I'm thankful for, for everything, good and bad, and just grateful for life. Okay, let me answer that for you, Bryn Kenny. That was a terrible answer. Let me give you the actual answer. If you could go back and change something, what would it be? Not bring Martin Zamani into the stable. Because if you did not do that, none of this would be happening right now. Your reputation would be intact. You would stroll into the World Series a month from now, actually less than a month from now, and say, hey, everybody, good to see you all again. Everybody would be saying, hey, Bryn, what's up, Mr. All-Time Cash Leader? Let's see how you're going to dominate this year. And everybody would look at Bryn just as a successful poker player a guy who ran up a huge bankroll and just continues to play nosebleed events and win at them. That's what most people would see. Yeah, some people didn't like him. Yeah, Doug Polk didn't like him. Yeah, some people thought he was a douche. But for the most part, his reputation was decent. I'll say that. And now his reputation is mud. And in fact, a lot of people are laughing at him. So all he'd have to do to have prevented this if he could go back in time was just get rid of his association, his ever association with Martin Zamani. He talks about the ripple effect, the, you know, which is kind of like the butterfly effect. You, know, you, do, you change something small in the past, even if it was something negative, and then it will 
eliminate positive things in the future. Yes, that is true sometimes. For example, if I went to a different college, then I would not have Benjamin right now. I would not be with the girl I have been with for all these years. All that would not have happened. I would have never known her. I would have never created Benjamin. I would probably have different kids and be with a different girl by this point, and I would not know any different. I'd think, okay, you know, great. I'm happy with these kids. But instead, let's say someone said I could go back and go to a different college and somehow uh, end up doing better in some ways, I would still say no because I, it would result in me uh, not having the things I, I like. Uh, so even if some things would be better, I would lose some things that are very important to me. So I would not do that. Similarly, like with poker, anything slightly different happened with my poker career, I wouldn't have won that bracelet in 2005. So there are little things that could be different that you don't uh, end up having some positive things that happen in your life. But still, say you have no regrets about anything when a current controversy you're in is a direct result of one person who is making it happen. I'm not saying that Zamani is wrong to be making it happen. I'm just saying that Kenny could have avoided it. So I'm actually going to play one thing I forgot to play. And that is about him leaving GG Poker. That's kind of important to talk about. So let's go back to him leaving GG Poker. It's a little bonus clip. That's around the uh, 58 and a half minute mark. Why did you leave GG? I just felt, I felt like it was time in my life. Um, you know, I just, yeah, I had other things going and I didn't, I just felt like that was, that's what was right for me. Okay. Um, I feel like I need to open it up to. Okay. No, you don't fit to open it up. What you need to do, Sarah Herring, is then ask a follow-up question. Did you have a falling out with Gigi? Did you owe Gigi money when you left? If so, why did you owe them money? Were you covering the guarantees? Like, I didn't play everything here, so maybe I, I missed some of these answers, but it wasn't time to move on. There was something that happened. It is possible that Gigi dropped him. In fact, I think it's more likely that Gigi dropped him, either because he owed them a lot of money, they thought they weren't going to get out of him, or because they just didn't need him anymore, or both. Because remember, he was an agent... He had control of their cashier, which is weird for a large site. This is usually something done for little apps that don't have a cashier function. But but for huge sites like GG, even in 2020, that's weird. So why would he have been the agent handling deposits and cash? I mentioned that last week. It's very likely because these were U.S. players, and they did not want a direct connection to that. They didn't want a paper trail to them buying in and cashing out U.S. players. Because that's the way... The U.S. always goes after illegal gambling operations is with the money in and out. They don't focus so much on the gameplay. Think back to Black Friday, if you remember, from 2011. These sites were not busted for running real money poker. They were technically busted for taking deposits and processing cash outs for poker. That's what they were technically busted for, was the movement of real money for gambling. So if GG Poker is not getting involved in that and 
Bryn Kenny, one of their agents, is just sneaking on U.S. players, even if they're very aware that's what he's doing, even if that's why they have him as the agent to do that, they have plausible deniability if they ever get into trouble for it. So that's why I'm convinced that he was on board in the first place. And I think by 2020, they didn't need him anymore because they grew to be very large. So I think that that was probably part of the reason they dropped him, which, of course, isn't his fault. And then the second thing is he may have owed the money, maybe from all this credit he was handing out that didn't pay him back. And then if he did owe them a lot of money, I've heard really large figures he owed them. I don't know if they're true, but I've heard really large figures, like over $20 million. If he really did owe them over $20 million, uh, why would they walk away and not pursue it? Well, because they're very big, because they're making a lot of money, and because him being an agent in the first place probably was to enable illegal real money play for U.S. citizens in the U.S. at the time. So their hands weren't clean either. And since they were doing quite well, they probably just chalked it up to a bad decision on their part and just walked away. Remember, back in 2010, I believe, there was the story of Daniel Svetkov, who scammed, I mean, just outright scammed Full Tilt and Poker Stars for $100 million combined. He was their payment processor and just outright stole the money. And they didn't sue him. They just chalked it up to a loss and moved on. Now, Poker Stars did kind of rat him out in a backdoor way, just let the feds know he was a payment processor and gave them some info to support it and pass this along to them in some way, and then they busted him. But this ended up being their undoing because he cooperated back against them. And then we had Black Friday. That's something often lost in that story. But putting that all aside, uh, it's, it's believable that he could have owed them a lot of money and they just walked away from it and didn't bother to try to collect and that's just the cost of doing that type of business. If you're, if you're going to play funny games with having these weird agents sneak players on from markets which aren't allowed, then if it goes bad, you just have to accept it and deal. And if that happened, that is why. But again, I don't have any facts on this. I don't have any proof on this, so I don't want to state any of this definitively. I'm just telling you what some possibilities are from my knowledge of the industry. It was not because it was just time to move on and do something else. Usually when someone says it's time to move on and do something else, it's not true with anything, not just this. With really anything in any sort of industry or any sort of really activity in life, when someone says, I'm just done, I'm not going to do this anymore i'm moving on there can be some truthful element to it that the person is just sick of doing the same thing for several years but usually that is combined with some sort of dissatisfaction so it can be i'm kind of sick of this and i'm not getting along with the ownership or with the other owners or, or there's some sort of uh scandal or controversy that hasn't gone public yet and i need to walk away like there's so many different reasons people walk away from things. It's usually not because they just want to do something else. Occasionally it is. I mean, this even happens in sports. You'll have players that just don't come back and they say because they want to spend a lot of time with their family. And I go, yeah, that's BS because they're going to have plenty of time to spend with their family once they're 40 and can't play anymore anyway. So when they're walking away 
at age uh, 36, it's usually because either they're in a lot of physical pain or because uh, their skills are declining and they don't want to have an embarrassing final season before they're pushed out so they want to leave on their own terms. It's usually along those lines. It's not just because it's time to go do something else or time to spend more quality time with the family or just to do something different. There's usually a good reason for people moving on. And I'm sure with Bryn, there was some kind of good reason. All right, so that's it. What is my overall impression of this interview? Well, first of all, while Sarah Herring did ask a lot of questions of things that we wanted to know, so the questions she presented to Bryn actually weren't bad and were pretty well thought out. The follow-up was almost non-existent. She did a few times. For the, for the most part, there was not much follow-up, and some of them actually came from the chat room. And Bryn didn't seem very truthful to me. And there were times he seemed truthful, and I pointed those out, but there were several times his answers made no sense, and he also seemed to hesitate a lot, and you could tell that he was hiding a lot. So I didn't believe most of what he had to say in that interview, but there were some snippets where he probably was telling the truth and some snippets which probably gave away that Martin Zamani was not telling the full truth with some of these stories. But I didn't get any real gotchas there where I go, oh, wow, that's a proof that Martin completely made this up. Like, if you think about all these stories that Martin told, they all seemed to have some grain of truth to them at the very least. You didn't hear very much where Bryn just said, I don't know where he got that. That's just insane. I never did that. Like, let's take the frog poison thing. He ended up admitting in the follow-up that came from the chat room that other people in his stable visited this this shaman, and, and so did he. It sounds like Martin was telling the truth then, right? Like, where was the lie in that whole thing? It sounds like he wasn't. So I really think that Martin just probably got on Doug Polk's show and for the most part just spewed and spewed mostly the truth. And maybe he morphed a few things like the team viewer. I think that uh, may have been a lie on both ends, as I explained. He may have embellished a few things. He may have even misunderstood a few things. Or maybe he attributed certain motives to Bryn, which didn't really exist, or certain actions to Bryn that didn't exist that just uh, appeared to him like they did. So some of this may have been Zamani legitimately believing Bryn had done some bad things, which he hadn't. But I I think uh, for the most part, after watching both of these interviews, I am much more inclined to believe Zamani for the most part. Okay, so we're going to move on from this topic here. Maybe we'll have more next week. Maybe we won't. Let's talk about the Ali Imservik rumor. Now, this isn't going to be a long topic. This is going to be a short topic. But there is a rumor that Ali Imsrovic got turned away from EPT, the European Poker Tour, Monaco, because he is banned from poker stars. Now, why would that have happened? Well, EPT is owned by poker stars. And according to these rumors, which have not been verified, if you're banned at PokerStars, you're banned from the EPT. So the rumor is that uh, Imsrovic and Jake Schindler are both banned from PokerStars for using real-time assistance. And that 
as a result of that ban, it extends to any live event which PokerStars runs. So once you're banned from PokerStars, you're banned from anything associated with PokerStars that they have control over. And that apparently Ali Imservic did not know this and <laughs> showed up in Monaco only to be told, uh-uh, you can't register here and you've wasted your time coming to Monaco. Now, if that's true, okay, great. I actually think that's good. Well, I don't support a blacklist in poker for reasons I stated last time, that it's, it's too hard to maintain, there's too much potential for abuse, they, you know, who's the one really in charge of it. I think an organized blacklist is not a good idea. There's just too many ways it can go wrong. But I think an informal blacklist where just people in the community who are believed to have cheated and who will not defend themselves, who will not prevent present evidence to the contrary, who are accused of pretty serious cheating, and they just shut up. They won't answer it. And they're banned from, from more than one site, or even just one major site, for alleged cheating. And there's a number of people who come forward with uh, stories about them cheating, people who are not known to make false allegations. And a lot of this may not hold up in a court of law, but the average person following it would say, yeah, looks like this problem, this person likely did it. Looks like these allegations are not made up. Looks like this person probably was cheating. That's what the average person would believe if they were to follow those type of stories, like the one with Ali Imsrovic and Jake Schindler with the real-time assistance. So if poker tours, if poker tournament series like the EPT, like the World Series of Poker, like the World Poker Tour. If they just say, you know what? We don't want these people with this cheating reputation in our tournament. We don't have to prove it. We're not going to put out a bulletin that such and such person is banned for cheating. We're not going to put out a press release. Hey, everybody, John Smith banned from the WSOP because he's a big cheater. That could get them in some legal hot water because they're making an allegation that hasn't been proven. But can the World Series of Poker say, you know what, we just don't want Ali Imsrovic here. We just don't want him in our tournaments. We don't like him. He has a bad reputation. It upsets people to see him here. We just don't want him. Of course they can do that. That's within their rights to do. That's basically their right to refuse service to anyone. They could get in hot water if uh, they refused someone entering a tournament because they were black or because they were gay or because they were trans or because they were old. These could be reasons that they could get in trouble if that was the reason they're turning someone away. But it's because someone has a bad reputation as a cheater and that it upsets people to see them or just because they don't like that person. They could just say, you know, what? we don't like Ali. We just don't care for the guy. We don't want him on our property. They can easily do that. And I think that's what needs to start happening, is that if it becomes pretty clear to the community that someone in the community is no good, especially one who's been actively, allegedly cheating, not someone who did it 16 years ago like Justin Bonomo and has been straight ever since, but I'm talking about someone who seems to be actively doing it or very recently doing it, and that reputation is what is sticking to them right at the moment here, and that people seem to believe it. Uh, I see no problem with 
these major poker tours just saying, nope, we don't want you here. And how many people do you think are going to stick up for him? You think, you think there's going to be a lot of people coming out on Twitter saying, no, you got to let Ali Imsarik play. We want him here. We, we, we want to see him here. No, no one's going to say that because it's generally believed that these allegations are true by the community. And he's also a good player. So it's not like they're like, oh, wow, you're killing our fish here. No, he's not a fish. He's the opposite of a fish. So there's really no benefit to having him there. He is a good player who also has a bad reputation, and people believe he's been doing things that are unethical. If he were to be shut out from poker tours for that reason, I'm sure there would be very few people crying about that, yet a lot of people cheering. And yet they don't have to announce it. They can just either say nothing, or they can just kind of put it out through backdoor channels that Ali's not welcome there. Like I've heard, I don't know for sure, but I've heard that Russ Hamilton is banned from the World Series. Not for anything he did at the World Series, but for what is said that he did, and I think just about sure that he did, and we have him on tape talking about it, with UB, with the Super Using, and the World Series, and they didn't put out a press relief, were, were, were banning Russ for Super Using on UB and cheating the community. They just took down his banner. You don't see Russ's banner there as for main event winners, even though he did win the main event in, in 94. You don't see his banner anymore? And you don't ever see him play. So I think he's quietly banned. And they probably put this out to people who they uh, trusted to get the word out that Russ isn't welcome without directly announcing he's banned. Let's say word got around more. I mean, it's not that well known that Russ is banned, but that's kind of what's believed. But let's say it really got around that Russ is banned. Do you think there would be an outpouring of support to let Russ back in the World Series? No, there'd be just about nobody asking for that. And yet there'd be a lot of people saying, great, thanks. We're happy to see that. This is one of these high upside, low downside situations for casinos. So people get banned all the time. And the way they will get unbanned sometimes is when the public demands that the ban is reversed. For example, uh, Richard Brody was banned from Caesars Properties, meaning the World Series as well. He doesn't play much poker anymore, but uh, Richard Brody, who is inventor of Microsoft Word, he played a lot of poker in the 2000s, and uh, he was playing video poker at Caesars, and all he was doing was just playing video poker with good pay tables that weren't even positive expectation, but they banned him because I I think they believed what he was doing was uh, trying to play very low minus EV games and then would play this at high stakes because he, he can afford it. He has a lot of money and then would earn a lot of comps doing this when in reality he wasn't really providing much value to them. So they banned him, which which is very stupid. They should not have done that. That's if, if they offer him too many comps for the action he's putting in, then that's their fault. So he really wasn't doing anything wrong, but they, they banned him. And he put out a plea through his blog that people speak up for him and get him unbanned. And it worked. He had enough friends in poker at the time who spoke up for him and said, this is screwed up. Can this get undone? And Caesars undid it because of the public outrage about the unfair ban of Richard Brody. So that's an example of the public stepping up for someone who they feel was unjustly banned. Now, there's some people who are banned that the public supports that don't get any kind of help from Caesars. For example, uh, Luke Vrabel, 
known as uh, Slaya Beads or Slay Dog on Twitter. And he was banned in a situation that I think wasn't fair to him. He didn't act perfect, perfectly, but he was at a final table for a lot of money. And Matt Affleck's girlfriend and friends were shouting and mocking him as he's playing. And instead of telling Matt Affleck's friends and girlfriend to leave Luke alone and stop hassling him, uh, apparently this kept continuing. And then Luke started getting nasty with the floor man about it and then became a battle of egos. And uh, and eventually, and then when uh, Luke kept pressing the matter on social media later, they they banned him. So uh, was Luke probably overly rude and outspoken about this as it was happening? Probably, but uh, the whole thing wasn't his fault in the first place. The, the fault was really with the floor man for not controlling the crowd, harassing someone who's playing for a lot of money at a final table. That That's what should have been done. And even if he overreacted to it not being done, you have to look at the root cause here. And that's why I've always been supportive of Luke, even though he can be abrasive on Twitter and rude to people. He's been rude to me before, but I've still supported him because th- that's the right thing to do from everything I saw. And uh, he, even though a number of people who have tweeted in his favor, either he hasn't gotten to the right influential people, of which I'm not one of them, by the way. I don't have that type of influence there. But uh, he hasn't gotten to the right influential people, or they just hate him enough there where they, they don't want him back. So it doesn't always work, but if it is going to work, it's because the, the public is supportive of it. But no one's going to be supportive of someone who the community mostly believes is, is a cheater. Whether they're a cheater or not, if the, com- if the community believes it, which, by the way, they're usually right about, but if the community believes it, then no one's going to support them and the community will be happy to see that person not allowed to continue playing these events. No one's going to say, wait, he hasn't been convicted in a court of law, so you better let him play. You're going to get very few messages like that and anyone who says things like that is going to be berated. In fact, that girl Lynn, hello, it's Lynn, L-Y-N-N-E, remember I said last week that she took a lot of heat for defending the this uh, situation with Ali Imsrovic. And she was basically run off Twitter for a short time because uh, she was defending it in ridiculous fashion and people really went off on her, especially because she's kind of new to the community. They're like, you know, <laughs> what are you doing here? What are you talking about? And they did not appreciate that at all. So she deleted her Twitter and then she came back and she reverted to just posting nudes and semi-nudes to kind of change the tone, which I guess kind of worked because no one's really bothering her anymore. Too bad I can't do that. Too bad I can't just leave Twitter for a while and come back and post nudes. I don't think that would help me. I don't think that would get people to uh, stop being mean to me. That is something as a 50-year-old dude, you don't really uh, have that weapon in your arsenal. In closing, I think that not only am I happy that the EBT might be banning these two, again, this hasn't been confirmed, but if this is true, even if it's because of a technicality, because of them being banned from Poker Stars, I'm happy to see it. I do hope the major poker tours start considering, like, really thinking about who the undesirables are in the community, and and just to ban them. Just, just say, we don't want you. I, I think for the most part, you're not going to get many or any false positives. 
you take situations where it's pretty damn clear, even without proof that is good enough for a court of law, you can look at everything as a whole. If it's pretty damn clear that the person probably did something and they're not defending themselves and they don't seem to want this uh, looked at in detail. Because if you're wrongly accused, you, you stand up and say, no, I'm wrongly accused, and let's bring it, bring all the evidence out and let's discuss it. If you just sit there silent in these situations where you're getting credible accusers, I'm not talking about some crackpot accusing you something online. You don't have to answer those. But uh, I'm talking about the you know, credible people who are making allegations, especially ones who don't normally make those type of allegations, and you're just sitting there quiet. It looks very bad. People that are widely believed to be scumbags in the community, if, if they are banned from these major tournaments, I support that without any kind of formal blacklist or anything like that. I think that would be the best solution. Okay, so let's move on to another controversy which does not involve cheating. It does involve possible angle shooting. And in fact, a debate has come up about this. Was there angling or was there not angling? And I can kind of see it both ways. This is kind of a tough one to decide, but it involves Phil Helmuth on Hustler Casino Live in what was a very interesting stream with some very high-profile people, most of whom had nothing to do with poker. So in August, we had Ryan Feldman, who is the producer of Hustler Casino Live, on this show. He told us his story. He told us about how he was previously at Live at the Bike and how they screwed him over there, and how the bike itself screwed him over there, and how he ended up moving on and starting a similar show at The Hustler, which is another L.A. area casino. And that show was to be called Hustler Casino Live, and he was working on developing it. Ryan Feldman was very instrumental in building up Hustler Casino Live. And he has a real talent and I've said this before many times, for getting people into the game who you want to watch. Just very good at at hustling up action in these games. And that's one of the reasons Live at the Bike did so well for so long. And it's the big reason that Hustler Casino Live has easily passed Live at the Bike in popularity to the point where Live at the Bike just reinvented itself in a stupid fashion, which maybe I'll tell you it's a bonus topic. But they've easily passed them very quickly, despite being the new product. Usually the new product has a hard time passing the established product. But nope, this really quickly happened, where Hustler Casino Live took over, because Ryan Feldman was involved. They they let the real talent get away there. So he brought his talents to Hustler, and he's put together some very interesting lineups. And it seems like people just want to watch to see what happens next. And there's been a lot of controversial and interesting situations that have sprung from there. Some of them, not all that good. You know, some of them involving uh, cheating, some of them involving uh, bad behavior and other things that some people haven't seen as very positive, but nevertheless, interesting. He put together interesting lineups and they don't get stale either. He doesn't rest on his laurels saying, okay, we've got a group of people, people like watching. So, Let's just leave it this way. No, he keeps bringing in new people, some of whom have nothing to do with poker, and they play these very high-stakes games, and it's interesting for the public to watch. So listen to this lineup. This was like the social media game. Now, there are some people from social media, 
from YouTube mostly, who make a lot of money. These are young people who have huge followings and they make a ton of money in various ways. They get it from ads that YouTube will run and give them a piece of. They get it from products that they promote, sometimes even in a backdoor way. Sometimes they'll just have the product sitting on their desk and they get paid a lot of money. It's insane how much some of these people make. They get these followings of millions of people who love and admire them, who can't wait to see their new content, who are very dedicated to them. And these people are very powerful as endorsers. So they make a lot of money that way. And they even make a lot of money from the streams themselves and the, and the videos themselves. So some of these people do really well. And it's very hard to break out into becoming one of these people. It's much easier said than done. Oh, well, hey, I want to be an influencer. You know, that's not that easy. There's a lot of people who attempt it, and uh, almost all of them fail. But the few who succeed really can make a lot of money. So I don't know how he did it, but Feldman got various people on this stream who are known in the social media world and who made a lot of money. Uh, one of them has been on other poker shows before, and that would be Mr. Beast, who's a very, very big YouTuber with 94.6 million subscribers. He's uh, arguably the biggest YouTuber there is right now. So he's also been on Poker Go in the past, so that's not a completely new thing, but that was a good person to have on the game in the game, obviously. And uh, Mr. Beast, a uh, ton of money this kid has. Then... Uh, Another person on uh, YouTube who goes by Ninja, has green hair, a young guy. Also, uh, lots of views, not as big as Mr. Beast, but still a uh, big guy on YouTube. Ludwig, or Ludwig, I don't know how to say his name, probably Ludwig. Uh, He has uh, almost 3 million subscribers. XQ Cow with 2 million subscribers. And then uh, another person named Slime Machine, who is another uh, influencer. And in fact, he was involved in the controversial hand with Phil Helmuth, but the fault was really Helmuth's here. And then Alex Botez, who's female, Alexandra Botez, who has 800,000 subscribers, but uh, she's not just a YouTuber. She's somebody who is a chess player. She's a female chess player. And uh, is kind of semi-famous. So she was in the game, too. A rich guy named Alan Keating, who has played Hustler Casino Live in the past, was in the game. He's uh, not one of the influencers, but he has been in the game before. He's a big whale and uh, plays very loose. And then two poker pros that are very, very well known. One, Phil Helmuth and Tom Dwan. That's some lineup, isn't it? You have... Six influencers, including one being a uh, chess player, female chess player, and one being probably the biggest YouTuber there is. Then you have this uh, whale, Alan Keating, and and then you have uh, Dwan and Helmuth. That is some lineup there, and they were playing uh, 100-200 blind, no limit hold'em. And people really enjoyed this, and as you might imagine, this was not your typical 100-200 no limit hold'em game. This was a very, very loose game. Tons of money going into the pot when people didn't have very much. Uh, Mr. Beast was just firing off. I mean, he was just firing, firing, firing. 
and just running ridiculous bluffs all the time and just putting tons of money in pre and post with nothing. And uh, Alan Keating also playing crazy. So a lot of money splashing around in this game. Not a lot of strategic poker being played by most of these people because they really don't play a lot of poker. And they're rich and they're young and they're having fun. So this is something people wanted to watch because these are known people on YouTube and they're playing with two poker pros and they're you know throwing money around and having fun. People were enjoying it. This was uh, a stream that people really liked watching, both people who were uh, really into poker and ones who were just casual fans. There also is the belief that this is exactly what poker needs, because what is poker missing right now? Poker is missing youth. Poker has youth that isn't youth anymore. Poker has former youth, the young players of the 2000s. Well, the 2000s were not very recent. The 2000s ended 12 and a half years ago. The 2000s began 22 and a half years ago. So young people at the beginning of the poker boom in 03 have aged almost 20 years. So even 21-year-olds in 03 are now 40. So the young people have not been coming in in the past decade, mostly thanks to Black Friday and partially thanks to just poker dying out as a fad. So college kids are not itching to get into poker like they used to be in the early 2000s. So poker is getting old. There's a reason the seniors event is the fastest growing event in poker by a wide margin. Every year, there's more and more people entering the seniors event because poker is getting old. And every year you have a new crop of 50-year-olds. And what do you know? I'm 50 this year. And I wasn't old when I started playing poker. I was still in my 20s when I first played in the beginning of 01. I wasn't in my 20s for that much longer, but I was in my late 20s. I was a young guy, young-looking guy. Now I'm 50. So I'm an example. I wasn't one of the young kids. I wasn't a college student then. But, you know, by the time the poker boom started, I was actually over 30. But I, I wasn't old. I was, I guess, semi-youthful then. But now I'm 50. Now I'm definitely not one of the young guys. But there aren't young guys anymore. So maybe Mr. Beast and these others will bring them in if they see them playing a lot on these streams. So there is a value to having them playing streamed poker. Now, Phil Helmuth, he has a lot of money. This guy's got a lot of money from a lot of different sources, a lot of different endorsements. He's done well at poker itself. Sadly, some of his money came from ownership of UB before he bailed out shortly before Black Friday. And uh, Phil Helmuth is not one of these guys who spends lavishly. In fact, it was interesting to see Helmuth's house in Vegas that he was selling. Remember, he doesn't live in Vegas. He lives in Palo Alto because his wife is a professor at Stanford. So he lives in Palo Alto. He was originally from Wisconsin, but he lives in Palo Alto and has for a long time. And he's been with his wife for a very long time. But he would come to Vegas for long periods of time. And he wanted to have a house to stay in, which makes sense. And he has a lot of money, could easily afford it. So he bought a house in Vegas for his visits to Vegas, which a lot of times, especially during the World Series, are very extended. See, you saw his house, and it's totally not what you'd picture a guy like Phil Helmuth would have. It was a very ordinary house in a very ordinary neighborhood, 
and the furniture was very ordinary. It really looked like the house of like a typical middle class single guy at best. So some people are like, what? This is Phil's house in Vegas? We, we pictured something lavish. But no, it was the opposite of that. Why? Because Phil Helmuth is really not about luxury. He's not about big spending. He's, he's actually fairly frugal. So Phil has held on to this money he's made over the years. So you'd think with all this money he has, I mean, what an opportunity, provided you have the bankroll to stomach swings in a game like this. Imagine being in a game with people like Mr. Beast just firing off five and six figures with nothing. And Alan Keating just playing tons of hands and these other people who don't really know what they're doing. And you're this excellent poker pro with decades of experience, the all-time leader in World Series bracelets, someone who has won heads-up matches against very tough players recently, someone whose style seems to be timeless, and that even as people accuse you of being an old guy who can't hang anymore, you just keep winning, and you keep proving your critics wrong, at least as far as your poker play is concerned. Wouldn't you think that if you're Phil Helmuth, that you would bring your large bankroll to sit in this game, and if you happen to lose, if you happen to run bad, then so be it. That's the cost of uh, having a great opportunity that doesn't work out. But wouldn't you think he's massively plus EV in this game? Yes. What did he do? He brought uh, a whopping $50,000 to this game as a bankroll. And people are like, what the hell? How, how is Phil Helmuth like the smallest buy-in at the table? And he was playing so tight there that even the recreational players were making remarks during the game when he would bet, oh, okay, Phil, you're betting we know you have it. Can you imagine these amateurs who are otherwise playing very poorly are still aware enough to see that Phil is the only guy at the table they don't call if they don't have something strong? Like, everybody there aware, was aware of that? <laughs> and not by studying him or watching him in the past, just from watching him at the table, that he's the only one not splashing around. And I'm not saying he should be going in with trash, but if you're in a game like that, what you can do is you can adjust to it where you appear to be someone who is splashing around with them, but you're doing it in a smart fashion. You're not just firing off stupidly. You're just making looser calls and looser raises because you know your opponents, especially some of them, often have nothing. And you kind of act in a manner, not just the way you're betting and calling and folding, but also just in your talks, your table talk, that you're having fun with the whole thing that you're just going nuts. In fact, I know this is a little different, but I played a 100, not 100, 200. I played a, uh, a 40, 80 game, but uh, limit hold'em, not no limits, much smaller than 100, 200, no limit, obviously. But uh, this was last year. I was at a 40, 80 game. And it, it actually broke down to heads up. And the guy who was playing heads up was actually very tight, even though he didn't seem like he'd be tight. And he was drinking, 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 drinking. And then... Uh, all of a sudden, like a switch turned on, he went from super tight in our heads-up match and actually playing fairly well to just being crazy. And then right around then, a third guy joined 
who wasn't drunk and didn't drink at all, but was just naturally a very, very crazy and loose player. So you had me, you had this super drunk guy, and you have this third guy who's just naturally super loose and aggressive who uh, just wasn't under the influence of anything, just liked to play that way. So what do you think I did there? Even when we got like a fourth and fifth person joining, what do you think I did there? You think I was waiting for aces? No. I was five-betting the flop with bottom pair against these two. And sometimes they'd show down a real hand and I'd lose a fairly big pot. But a lot of times I would get a ton of value out of them because they're raising with even worse. And I wasn't just firing with nothing. I was rarely bluffing them. And I was also not pounding draws that didn't have showdown value. So if I just had a draw that I knew had to hit something to win, and I knew they're not going to fold, there I'm playing passively. If I've got a hand I think is the best hand at the moment, or a such a massive draw that uh, I'm actually positive expectation to get there, then I'm pounding it. But while I'm doing it, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, great, this is a way for me to get un- unstuck on the game. Because I was down like $5,000 in this game at one point, uh, mostly from beforehand, mostly from a full ring game where I was just running awful. But what was in my head was, wow, this is my chance to get even. And I did, by the way. But outwardly, I was acting like they were. I was acting like I was having fun with all the raising and the crazy play. And it was kind of fun. But, uh, you know, I was I was embellishing it to fit in better with the atmosphere there. I didn't want to look like the tight guy. And I wasn't a tight guy there. But I especially didn't want to look like a tight guy or look like that I'm uh, waiting for them to just shoot off with nothing when I've got monsters. That wasn't even the most positive expectation way to play in that spot. So I just engaged in smart aggression against their aggression, which wasn't very smart. And uh, I got out of that big hole which was a big haul for 40-80. So you got to do that when you're in a game like that. And Phil definitely has the skill to do that, and he chose not to. He was super tight. It was weird. and uh, No one understood why he brought such little money to the game. Now, maybe he was tight because he brought such little money to the game. But then you have to ask, well, why? And why was he unable to get money fronted to him? I think they can trust Phil Helmuth to pay back. Like, do you think if Phil went to Hustler and say, hey, I want to splash around in here too, but I just stupidly only brought 50K? Can you front me some money? I'll sign a document right now. Like, I'm sure they would because it's Phil Helmuth. He's not going to stiff them. They know he has money. They know he'll promptly send it to them if he loses. So there's many ways Phil could have gotten money there. But for whatever reason, he chose not to. But that's not the big story here. That's just kind of an interesting side note is that Phil was uh, playing surprisingly tight. Tom Dwan, you're saying, what about him? I, you know, Tom Dwan's kind of degenerate. I'm sure he's splashing around. Well, not really, but not because he was trying to be tight. It seemed to be a combination of two things. First of all, he was like tired. I don't know if he was tired or drugged or what it was. There was something with Tom Dwan where he just wasn't himself. He looked like he was about to fall asleep. And the second thing was he was card dead. So he just got dealt shit over and over. And he was tired. And I've been there before, too. I have been at the table where I'm tired, I am low energy, and I'm just getting dealt trash every time. And I just totally do not feel like getting into it with the aggressive people at the table with trash hands over and over 
and when I'm tired. So I can understand why Dwan played the way he did. But Helmuth, I don't get it. I mean, it's it's one thing to be conservative with money, but that's kind of crazy. So that's not the big story here. The big story is the alleged angle shot. And whether it's an angle shot or not, this was something that you just don't do if you're Phil Helmuth and you're representing poker and representing your own brand. Now, you know what Phil Helmuth's brand is? Is a very good and successful poker pro who's been around for decades, the all-time leader by a good margin in bracelets, and someone whose game seems to be timeless. But behaviorally, he has the reputation of being a complainer, a whiner, obnoxious, a berater of both pros and recreational players, someone who has an abrasive personality, to say the least, and someone who is definitely a narcissist. In fact, I would be shocked if Phil did not have narcissistic personality disorder. So, And look it up. Go look up narcissistic personality disorder and tell me that's not Phil Helmuth. So he's known for that too. But something he's not known for is angle shooting or cheating. And even if you want to say, well, what about UB? Why did he stay as an owner all that time? And why did he not speak out against them? And you know, why did he tolerate what was happening? Well, that's a good question, but he wasn't cheating. And everything that came out about the UB thing pretty much showed that Phil was never super using, was never even aware of the super using as it was happening. And uh, there was basically no cheating done or approved by Helmuth himself. Now, where he was wrong was after it came out, he kept his mouth shut because he owned a piece of it and he uh, didn't want to uh, cause any issues for the company. So he was a good company man there and kept his mouth closed. And that is where I really have an issue with him. But do I believe he ever cheated on UB? No. Phil, aside from that, has a good reputation for integrity. Whereas Annie Duke, who is also one of the uh, owners of UB, she has a bad reputation for a lot of things, including that epic poker league that she put on later. But there's a lot of criticism of Annie Duke in a lot of different ways. Phil Helmuth, uh, his only bad reputation really is attached to his behavior at the table and the way he talks to people. So he's not at all known as an angler. He slow rolled me, by the way, on TV. But I think it's because I'd been talking trash to him about the UB situation. So he slow rolled me when I went all in with a set with a short stack against his flush in 09 at the main event, and he slow rolled me and knocked me out. But uh, that wasn't an angle. I think there's just being, him being a dick. But anyway, let's get back to this. So this clip was posted on Twitter of Phil Helmuth against this slime character. And again, slime is what the guy goes by on YouTube. That is not uh, me insulting him. I'm not, I'm not calling the guy slime. I'm calling him by the name that he went by on the stream and that he goes by on social media. So this guy slime has a six offsuit post flop on an ace eight deuce board with two spades. Slime has red a6, so no flush draw at all, but he does have top pair with a weak kicker. Mr. Beast totally airballed it in there with the old 7-4 offsuit. <laughs> and uh, Phil is in there with ace-9 offsuit. So Phil obviously in great shape, uh, 82% to win the hand. And honestly, Mr. Beast is probably going to let the hand go, even with as crazy as he's been playing. So 
it was going to really be uh, even better than 82% for Phil, because Mr. B technically has 3% where he'll never see the end of this. So listen to this. Slime, who probably thinks, oh, I have top pair. That's wonderful. You know, how can I lose this? A6 with ace, eight, deuce. You know, how can I possibly be outkicked here? So he goes all in, which is, uh, of course, a very bad move poker-wise because uh, when you're in a situation where you're either way, behead or way ahead or way behind, the last thing you want to do is go all in and then encourage people to either fold from way behind or call you with a better hand. The only way this can work is if you have the reputation of someone who's always just splashing in money with shit, then they may call you with a worse hand. So I guess this could be somewhat be defended here, but of course this isn't a good play. So let's listen to this, and uh, I'll describe what's happening, and then you'll understand what Phil did wrong here. I'm all in. Slime moved all in. So Phil has to make a decision which, when you can see the cards, is a super easy decision, but when you can't, and since Phil's not on UB, he can't, Phil has ace-9 against ace-6, and the ace-6 has gone all in on the flop. So Phil, on one hand, is thinking, you know, this guy isn't very good, my ace-9 may be good, but on the other hand, there's a lot of ways ace-9 could be losing here, especially against a guy who could be playing any two cards, so do I really want to commit this many chips, especially if he didn't bring that many, with the ace-9, or do you just give up and wait till you have a better spot where you're really feeling confident, you know, like a two pair or a set or something like that, where you really think you, you got the guy. Do you, do you really want to make your stand with ace-nine offsuit, even if uh, you think there's a decent chance you're ahead? So that's, that's what Phil's considering here. So listen to this. Fuck. So Phil says fuck. And he can say this because there's no action left. Mr. Beast has folded already. So Slime's gone all in. Phil now has to act. So he can say what he wants because he's not influencing action. I just have no idea what to do here. <laughs> and he's saying he has no idea because you know, Slime's an amateur and he knows it. And he's not sure if Slime is just overplaying a weak ace or maybe even bluffing or possibly has not beat. an ace nine is just really one of those type of hands. It's so hard to figure out what to do. I'd be thinking the same thing. Show the table. And Helmut just folded the best hands. Okay, so you think he folded, right? And you can't see this, but if you want to go look at the clip, I'm sure you can find it on Twitter. If you want to go look at the clip, it's actually also posted on the... Husser Casino Live thread, the official Husser Casino Live thread started on Poker Fraud Alert on the Flying Stupidity Forum. You can see this on uh, page one of the thread near the bottom. You can see uh, Positive Variance posted this. And it looks like he folded. Now, you don't see a full view of the table. You just see Helmuth and you see a small piece of the table, but it looks like he pitches his cards. And in fact, the announcers say that he folded. So, should be over. Okay, I guess the all-in worked Slime. Slime actually, I guess, inadvertently made a good play, or at least a successful play, because he's so unpredictable that uh, Helmuth did not want to call off the ace-nine there, where otherwise, if this were played by someone who is better, then uh, unless a six hit at some point then Phil would have ended up winning kind of a small to medium-sized pot. Instead, Slime takes it down. So, good job, I guess, but that's not the story here. He didn't take it down. Listen to what happened. Yeah, it's just you down a shot? I have ace-nine, yeah. Oh, my God, what did you do? You folded. Excellent. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, no. I thought you folded. No. Did you not fold? No, I didn't no, fold. I'm thinking. Did you see his hand? So, this was very unfortunate. Phil made a motion which really looked like he was folding. Now, Phil was showing his cards, he says, and it, it, he might have been. 
he was trying to show his cards to Tom Dwan. I have Ace Nine. You know, he wasn't asking Dwan for advice. Of course, that's totally not allowed. But he's just kind of saying out loud, "Oh, I've got this. What should I do?" Not asking that, but kind of out loud, "Hey, hey, look, look what I'm stuck with here, Tom. Doesn't this suck?" And Tom can't give him any advice, but that's what he claims. He's just kind of showing it to Tom Dwan, which again, showing his cards is not a big deal because there's nobody else left to act. So he shows the Ace Nine, but he made a motion that looked like he's folding. So uh, it looked like he had folded and then turned over to show he had ace nine, and that's what he's folding. So then uh, Slime turns over his hand, which he didn't have to do if he thought it was a fold, but he turns over his hand to show ace six. Well, then F- Helmuth is like, wait a minute, I didn't fold. So I'm still making my decision. So now, of course, Helmuth knows what to do because both hands have been seen. He knows he's crushing Slime here, who only has three outs to a six. So now, of course, it would be very unethical for Helmuth to say, I call, because then he'll very likely win the hand with this information he shouldn't have because he made this folding motion. He really did, like, you know, push the hand away. He threw his hand away, it looked like. And Slime was confused by this and then exposed his own hand, thinking he was all over. He showed, like, A7 or something. Or A6. No, dude. Uh, I thought you folded. No, he said oh, yeah. show your hand, oh, and then he folded oh, it over. God. Maybe, you showed me the worst hand. Maybe no, maybe I thought you folded. with a deal. Yeah, let's have a deal. Okay, let's have a deal. Okay, this is the first problem here. I understand why Phil was irritated because he was trying to just show his hand. I, people say, oh, he's trying to angle. I don't believe it. I, Phil isn't known for this. He's not known to angle. And if he's going to angle, he's not going to do it to an amateur on a super highly watched live stream. You have to understand, Phil Helmuth, he does not have cheating as part of his brand. He does not have angling as part of his brand. And you have to separate that from his behavior where he acts like a jerk. So this is the last thing he's going to do. I mean, he's been in poker since the 80s. And now he's going to start angling against an amateur on a stream where everybody can watch? There's no way. So I think this was an honest mistake on both ends. I think Phil kind of tossed it over to Dwan to take a look and was saying, you know, I've got to make this tough decision. Look at this. And this confused the motion of the tossing. It looked like a fold, enough to even fool the announcers. And then Slime, believing the hand was over, exposed the A6, kind of showing, ha, 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 look, I I ran you off the best hand. And then Phil's like, no, 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 I didn't fold. So... What do you do at that point? So Phil didn't mean to fold, but it's understandable why it looked like he folded. So what do you do if you're Phil Helmuth, poker champ, big time poker champ, arguably the best recognized poker champ in the world? There's a lot of very casual poker fans that if you ask them, okay, who do you think is like the most successful poker player? We mean like from poker itself, not someone who's super rich from other things like Harry Katz. Who's the most successful poker player? And a lot of people would say Phil Helmuth. That's what you'd hear from a lot of people. And he has been very successful. He hasn't made the most money in poker, but he has been very successful. And as far as bracelets, he has been by far the most successful player. Here he has this rep of this super successful player, and he's up against amateurs. He's up against people who will sometimes make mistakes and not understand what they're doing and that's what happened here and this mistake wasn't even that outrageous because uh it really did look like the motion of a fold this could easily happen with an experienced player but at least with an experienced player 
it would make a little more sense for Phil to say, okay, I see why the mistake happened, but uh, it's not fair for me to have to give up the whole pot, so can we make a deal here so I don't get screwed out of the whole thing? When you're against an amateur and you screwed up like this by making a folding motion to where it really appeared you were folding, you just give up. You just say, okay, this is the cost of being in a game like this and the cost of being a big-name player who gets all these endorsements. You don't try to squeeze every possible penny out of this. So listen to this. I don't think you should be punished for folding your hand. All right, so what kind of deal? I don't know. I don't think I should punish you for folding your hand. Hey, Phil, how about you getting punished for folding your hand? (laughs) What the hell? I guess just take your money back. Or put in 5K or something. Put in 5,000 is fair. What do you think is fair? Five? So Slime actually is talked into that... He was the one who folded because he tabled his hand and uh, and then threw it away, not realizing that Phil was just showing his hand of what of uh, what his decision was. So I guess Slime tabled the A6 and kind of tossed it. Oh, you folded your hand technically. So not only did they pull their money back, but they pull their money back and Slime is told and agreed to give Phil $5,000. It would have been much more reasonable to say he gets the pot slime. Phil should not be committed to call, but just whatever money was currently in the pot, just push it to slime and move on. And say, Phil, you, you don't make these folding motions like that. Now, some people say, oh, Phil put his cards past the line. The line is a myth. The line does not mean something that indicates action. But you know what does is forward motion. And he did make the forward motion of folding his hand. Even if he was kind of tossing the hand over to Dwan to take a look, he still made the forward motion of folding. So it'd be a very reasonable ruling to say, this is a fold, Phil, I'm sorry. Uh, don't don't throw your hand other, to others to take a look next time because this can be confusing to people, especially in a game full of inexperienced players. So this looked like a fold. The forward motion was to a fold, so you're folding. He's actually making Slime give up money. They're not even just taking back all the money or splitting the pot. Either Slime is actually giving uh, 5K. That, Five or ten or something. That is a little unlucky. I, I've just never seen someone show and then... We've literally no, no, no. the whole game. I know, I know. I'm it, fine. It was, I it. think it was confusing that the hands were... I'm in that yeah, yeah, yeah. I gave you a pretty good deal. All right, I call it. I gave you a pretty big deal. Yeah. I, come on. No, no, Phil's actually patting himself on the back. I gave you a pretty good deal. You're, no, you just showed oh, now conceding my action. the pot. No, no, no. What I just you pulled it up. Yeah, because he's already seen it. Oh, thank you. We're only charging 5K. I think that's generous. I don't know, whatever. I don't care. That's a good deal. It's generous. See, that's where you are making the mistake, Phil. You're the big poker star here. Own that you did something confusing and let the guy have the damn pot. It's crazy. Makes poker look so bad. He's taking advantage of these recreational players who are so much worse than he is. It's all good. Good deal for you. If you take advantage of them from the standpoint of beating them because your skill is superior, that's totally fine as part of the game. But not, not like this. I don't believe he did it intentionally. But it's not fair. Next so Phil did not fold. He did show his card, which is totally fine in the cash game. Slime thought he folded. Don't run it out. We'll get all pissed. And a uh, little bit of business going there. Oh my no way! <laughs> How lucky am I? Where do I? Oh my god! Nice fold. Fuck just happened. So then they dealt out the board as if there had been a call, and it turned out that uh, Slime would have won. So the funny thing is, even if Phil made the right move to call there, 
he would have lost and taken a bad beat. So he's laughing about that. How lucky am I? <laughs> how often does Phil ever say, how lucky am I? He's always whining about how unlucky he is. You know, Mr. All-Time Bracelet winner by a uh, wide margin. So unlucky. Oh, oh my he God. No, he would have won. He made aces yeah. and sixes. I mean, he had to hit a six on oh, the next no, I didn't see that. two targets. It's all right. And then he forfeited his hand. Wait, what was your guess on what you saw? You said ace what? Ace seven? Ace seven. I thought it might have been ace six or ace seven. Ace. I knew it was not. I knew I had the best hand. So what happened was Slime didn't totally table the ace six. He kind of flashed it and then tossed it, believing that the hand was over. And that's why... Phil was insisting that was a fold, but that was because he believed Phil had folded because Phil made the motion to fold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You knew you had the best hand? After he showed his hand. All that stalling was theatrics? Yes. No, after he showed his hand. Smart play for the best hand. Yeah. I was going to call. No, you're good. I mean, he did. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. I'm good. Yeah. I'm going to hear shuffling poker. Oh, by the way, I want to. Well, let me explain one thing for the view. For, I, I, I don't mind at all. This is top ten most controversial rules in poker. I'm in the highlights right now. <laughs> Are you it's allowed to, to show your it's hand? Totally it's totally fine. Middle? Let me just explain this uh, to the to the table and Alex to you too. So uh, normally I wouldn't show my hand, and then but Tom looked, and then Alex said, "Flip your hand up and show us all." Because uh, we've done it before already. Precedent's been set. Heating said, Alan said, Alan said, flip up your hand. And so then I showed it uh, at, at his suggestion just because I was thinking about what to do. So Yeah, so that's what he's trying to say is that he had initially just kind of was throwing it to Dwan to take a look. Then Alex, the girl at the table, said, hey, you know, just flip it up and show all of us. And then he flipped it up and then uh, he's claiming that's what confused Slime to think he had folded, but that's not what happened. Uh, he threw his hand forward as if he's folding it. That was really what confused him. Nothing really happened there. He assumed you ended Nothing up really you happened there. You got a good there. deal, except you ended up in the end getting fucked. Because which, which I shouldn't have known. I shouldn't have known about the... Yeah, so this did not go over well. A lot of people got on Phil's case. Many were accusing him of intentionally angling the novice and really taking advantage of the situation he was in. Here he's against all these social media stars who are rich but don't really know poker very well, and he angles by making it look like he's folding to get the guy then to toss away his own hand. You know what? There's certain shady players that I've played with over the years, like especially at Commerce, that I could totally see pulling this move on anyone. In fact, some of these guys would do it to their own mother. In fact, I knew some females like that who played at Commerce who would do this to their own mother. There were some really, really shady people at Commerce. Not well-known players, but people I've played with that I could easily see doing this to people. But Phil, no. He didn't do this on purpose. If you hate Phil and want to make him the villain, you could say he did it on purpose. But he was the villain here in how he handled it afterwards. Originally, it was a double mistake. His mistake with the motion that looked like a fold... And the mistake of slime by just believing it was a fold, you know, and kind of jumping the gun and tossing his hand. But one was a rookie mistake, and one was a mistake by someone who's been in poker for decades and has won a ton of bracelets. So, you know what Phil should have done here. Well, after Phil was getting clobbered on social media about this, he then quote tweeted the post which showed the clip and said, here's the hand. This was completely standard and normal. I did nothing wrong, says Phil. 
<laughs> oh my goodness, how tone deaf. I asked the other players how to handle it. They said to collect 5,000 or 10,000 from my opponent, who was drawing to three outs. Anyone impugning my integrity is way out of line. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. So he's acting like he's the victim here, that people are saying that uh, he is an angler and he's insulted and said, you're out of line to say this about me. Now, why I believe you weren't angling, number one, you handled it wrong after it. And number two, you can't get mad at people on social media for making allegations about this when you mishandle it so badly and take advantage of a wreck player. What are you doing? You can't even blame this now on, like, heat of the moment. At this point, he's back home at 5.15 in the morning, you know, many, many hours after this occurred. This occurred on uh, May 1st at night. Here, 5.15 in the morning on May 2nd, he's back at home or back wherever he's staying there in, uh, in L.A., and, and he's still saying, I did nothing in all caps wrong. And anyone impugning his integrity is way out of line. you got to be kidding me. So he got clobbered again by people bashing him, including Poker Fraud Alert Radio listener Matt Glantz. And Matt said this, Sometimes TV or streaming angles give a less than accurate representation of the whole story. It's understandable for people to jump to conclusions, but I find it hard for me to wrap my head around people who know Phil Helmuth well to actually think he would cheat in a poker game. Phil clearly tries to stop Slime from turning his hand. He gets out of the words, I didn't. There's nothing malicious here. I agree so far. To those watching the stream, it looks like Phil is pushing his cards forward to fold, but in reality, he's pushing them to Tom Dwan to take a peek. Okay, so he was on Phil's side here, but I have to say that I agree this was not an angle, but that uh, at the same time, it looked like a fold. It really had the motion of a fold. So then after getting clobbered, uh, Phil Helmuth says back, my last comment, listen to the players. When he flips his hand face up, they all say Phil didn't fold. I know the camera angle looks weird. Keating said, show the hand. Tom Dwan throws the cards to me and I flip them face up. I'm upset that anyone questions my integrity. So more, more crap about his integrity. He still isn't getting it. Well, then we had another Poker Fraud Alert radio listener get in on the discussion, and that would be Bart Hansen. And he was less kind to Helmuth than Matt Glantz was. Matt Glantz was saying Phil didn't angle here and was you know, somewhat defending that it really wasn't a fold. So I, I agree with the first part. It wasn't an angle. I still think it looked like a fold. You say, well, the camera angle is misleading. Well, so can the table angle. You know, not everybody in the table has the same view. So from where that guy was sitting, it probably looked like a fold. You know, someone in the hand with you tosses it forward. It looks like a fold. I'm sorry. So Bart Hansen then tweeted, and he's gotten 702 likes already to this tweet, plus 310 likes to his uh, continuation of the tweet. He said, if I do something that is out of the ordinary, especially if my opponent is new to the game, that causes them to expose their hand because they thought I folded, at an absolute minimum of offering to chop the pot, if not surrendering the pot entirely. Yep, that's what I said. Add this to the stage that this was on, meaning a very high-profile stream, and the fact that the cards were run out and my opponent would have won anyway makes this situation an absolute disgrace. The poker rules part on this, whether this is a fold or not, are entirely irrelevant. Good take, Bart. I agree. Forget about what the technical rules are. You're playing as an amateur on a big stream where a lot of 
potential new players to poker are watching. What are you doing? So he's saying that even if this wasn't on stream, Bart is saying that if this was a noob, at the very minimum, he'd say, okay, well, you know, it was confusion on both ends. Let's just take back our money and, and nobody wins. You don't take back your money and demand money out of the guy. And he's saying that often in this situation, you just give up the pot entirely. That's what I would have done. I mean, can you imagine uh, on a stream where you've got all these new people watching who may want to play? Maybe young people who want to play and they see this? Terrible. So this actually got through Phil's thick head. And later that day, on March, on May 2nd uh, at 8 p.m., Phil said this, I agree with this take, with his take by Bart Hansen. I think chopping the pot would have been the classiest move. <laughs> See, no, no, the classiest move would be giving up the pot and not accepting 5000 It happened so fast, I just asked what was fair and went with it. No, he said, what about 5000 Like, even someone said in the background, he was very happy to take 5000 and kept patting himself on the back for how generous he was. I guess I'll give Slime 5000 plus half the pot. I should have done this on a stream. So at, at least Phil is finally realizing after all the pressure, and I guess the one who really got through to him was Bart Hansen. So good job, Bart, for putting this in a way that made Phil think. After enough pressure... Phil capitulated and realized that this is a fight he shouldn't be having and he can easily afford to hand this money over to Slime. And so he said, even though he's not going to be doing it on stream since the stream is long over, he, he's announcing that he's going to give the 5000 back to Slime plus half the pot. So he's basically surrendering the pot to Slime, but still putting in the note that the classiest thing would be not to surrender the pot, but uh, just for them to each take half of it and uh, act like the whole thing didn't happen. that's not the classiest you're still missing it Phil not everything has to be completely equitable for you at the poker table you need to look at the bigger picture how you represent poker the fact that you're against amateurs the fact that you had a huge edge in that game the fact that new players are watching this the fact that this is going to do tremendous harm to your reputation that is not worth the money you're collecting. There's so many reasons not to take any bit of that pot. And he still thinks that the best he could have done there was split the pot. But at least he finally did the right thing. Now, why did Phil take this attitude? Like, why even when he's willing to give the entire pot after the whole thing's over, after the whole stream's over the next day, why still is he somewhat defending it? Well, it's because Phil has no self-awareness. It's, it's all back to this uh, narcissistic, narcissistic personality disorder he has, and I'm not making excuses for him. I'm just saying that's the reason. Also, I think that getting away with decades of berating people with zero consequence, plus pretty much worming out of criticism in the UB situation. Notice in the UB situation, a lot of people took hits to the rep. Russ Hamilton took a tremendous hit. Deserved, but tremendous. Uh, Mansoor Matluby took a hit. We haven't seen anything from him ever since that all went down. He just disappeared. Annie Duke took a hit. She took a hit from other things, but she took a hit from this. And she didn't cheat either, from what I could tell. Greg Pearson, who wasn't a poker player, but was very involved with UB, is hated by poker pros, and rightfully so. So a number of people took a hit from their involvement in the whole UB scandal, 
And Phil really got away with very little reputational damage, especially long term. So he got away with that. Even though he didn't cheat, he still didn't handle it well, and he was still a part owner of the company who kept his mouth shut. And then he's had decades of berating people, including recreational players, including not on TV or streams. You can't even say he's doing it for entertainment purposes. I've seen it with my own eyes. We're in a backroom limit hold'em event. He's berating some noob at the table who puts a bad beat on him. I've, I've watched it. I've made comments. I've talked trash to him after it's happened. I've told you guys about it before. So he does this with no consequence. They don't give him penalties. They don't tell him to stop. It's just Phil being Phil. You know, he's a beloved figure of the game. We're just going to take it. We're just going to tolerate it. So he's used to never having a consequence to bad behavior. And also, everything to Phil is really how it affects him. He doesn't see anything outside of his bubble. So he wasn't trying to angle. That's not him. He's not an angler. He just had a hard time understanding the way his mind works, even a day after the fact, why this was wrong and how this hurts poker and how this hurts his own rep. And only after getting just clobbered on Twitter does he back down and probably only to shut down the conversation because he can afford to pay it out and even has to throw in there that he doesn't feel he should have to go this far, but he will anyway. That's basically what he's saying. Like, uh, you know, the classiest thing would be to split the pot, but I'm going to go further than that. So that's really, really, really lacking self-awareness. A poster on Reddit, of all places, on R Poker, on Reddit, actually put together a pretty funny summary of Helmuth's appearance on that stream. You usually don't get good content like this from Reddit's R Poker, but here was an exception. So props to the person who wrote this. And this was reposted to Twitter. It says, final Helmuth scorecard for tonight's Hustler Casino stream. Angle shots for a rec, meaning recreational player in a 5K pot, he would have lost 70K in and then proceeds to dance around and gloat about it, which is true accuses the deck of being rigged and tries correcting two dealers for, quote, improper technique, (laughs) exclusively berates the only woman at the table all night, talks incessantly about the hands he would have flopped if he hadn't folded, including while a hand was still being played. Yeah, these were other things I didn't even mention. He, uh, He did berate this woman, Alex, who was doing very well and was the big winner on the stream. But uh, that was also believed to be something it wasn't. And you guys know I'm not a Helmuth fanboy. But something I also don't like is when misogyny is seen where it doesn't exist. Because sometimes people are just assholes. And they would be assholes whether you're male, whether you're female, whether you're old, whether you're young, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're gay, whether you're straight. Sometimes people are just going to be assholes. And I know this because I've had plenty of people in poker be assholes to me, despite not being gay, not being black, not being female, not being uh, particularly old or young. And yet I've had people mistreat me at the poker table, including Phil Helmuth himself. So why? Was it discrimination? Did they somehow figure out that I was Jewish because I was... uh, trying to be cheap when I was ordering food at the table? (laughs) No. 
No, there's no discrimination. People who have been nasty to me at the poker table, who didn't know me prior to that, are being nasty just because they're assholes. And not every time that someone is a jerk to someone else, it's because of some kind of discrimination. So again, Phil Helmuth is not known to, quote, exclusively berate women. He's not known for that at all. In fact, really think about who he berates, it's usually men. Why? Because it's usually men at the table. So it's not like Phil is a sweet guy to every dude at the table, and the second a girl gets there, he starts going off on her. So why was the girl berated the most? Because she was the one who was winning the most. And you know how Phil reacts when he loses hands, especially once he thinks he shouldn't have lost. He thinks the opponent didn't play well. He berates them. I've seen it myself. And when I've seen it, it's always been to men. And I've even been on the receiving end of it. So that's not misogyny. And I saw people saying, oh, you know, this is why women don't play poker, blah, 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 blah. This was not sexist. This was not misogynistic. This was Phil just being an asshole. If Alexandra was a guy named Alex, he would have gotten the exact same treatment. I can tell you that for sure. So I hate when that's thrown in there. You can criticize Phil's behavior without this. It's perfectly acceptable to say he berated a recreational player who happened to be doing very well. That's all you had to say. You don't have to say it's a woman. Then the person went on to write, not to mention whining about running bad despite his, quote, perfect play all night, including calling down an ace-queen-ten board with 9-9 and claiming he knew it was a bluff when Mr. Beast actually had a queen, pre-flop shoving ace-eight-nine offsuit after tilting from the above hand, (laughs) only playing premium hands all night with zero bluffs in his betting range at the splashiest table of all time, true, getting folded around when he bets because the recreational players correctly tell him he only bets when he has something. (laughs) Also true. Folding the best hand in position to a river bluff for his last 15K heads up against the guy with a 90% VPIP. That's uh, meaning uh, voluntarily uh, placed into pot, referring to... uh, a stat that is kept on players to determine on uh, how loose they are. And they're talking about uh, Keating there at the table. And uh, it's a, that person's down over a million on the night. And yes, this was uh, a guy who was down a million bucks, Keating, and obviously desperate and playing a ton of hands. So, so he, he bluffs against Helmuth heads up and Helmuth folds the best hand. Then the post continues, and you can't forget, getting chirped by the table for being such a nit all night. Favorite quote, don't be such a pussy and just call it, said someone, as Phil folds the best hand, and then proceeds to tell his hand to the entire table while the board is still live. <laughs> Whining about people not giving him action when he, does not, when, when he does make a hand because he's basically playing face up, referring to the fact that he's so tight and only betting when he has it, and mentioning that he's the best fucking player in the world after every lost hand. Highlight was the last hour or two when the entire table was not so subtly eviscerating him as he sits in front of his 30k stack folding everything but premiums and whining about the runouts. And then Keating beautifully induces a fold on the turn when Phil would have made a straight on the river for a final blow-up. Total lost, 96k. Dignity lost, priceless. 
<laughs> Pretty good burn. Aside from the false allegation of misogyny, that was a great post. That was a great post. That's true. Phil playing super tight in that game and then and then bitching that people aren't giving him action. Can you believe it? He's actually complaining to Rex, why aren't you calling me? Every time I have it, you guys don't call me. What's going on here? Well, because you're not betting unless you have something. You want these people to just hand you free money. Even the rec players at the table can see what you're doing. That you're waiting for big hands so they pay you off. So they don't pay you off then. So they say, okay, well, even we can see this. Oh, my gosh. What a bad night for Phil Helmuth. He lost almost 100K, which isn't huge in that game given the way it was playing. But plays super tight, doesn't adjust, whines, whines about nobody calling him, screws a recreational player. The whole whole thing is a disaster. Berates the recreational player who is doing really well. By the way, if you want to uh, hear the totals here, Alexandra won uh, 456,900. Mr. Beast, somehow, despite his crazy play, won uh, 438,900. Ludwig won 404,700. It's funny how all these... uh, Social media people, these YouTubers with two pros in the game were able to uh, do so well. Of course, it was mostly players at the table who were inexperienced. Ninja winning 144,300. Tom Dwan, who barely played anything due to being card dead slash tired, uh, won 26,500. Phil Helmuth lost 96,400. XQC lost 99,500. Slime lost 142700 though it should have been less had uh, Phil not screwed him there. And where did all that money come from that people won at the top? Well, that all came from Alan Keating, who lost $1,132,700. So over $1.1 1. 1 million for Alan Keating, who is a rich guy and can't afford it. So uh, that was the final results. Disappointing showing for the two pros at the table combined. Dwan and Helmuth combined for a 70k loss. Mm, who would have expected that with that lineup? I mean, it can happen, but I would not have bet on that happening. wonder what odds you could have gotten that those two combined would be a loser in that lineup. What did Slime say about this afterwards? Well, apparently it was bad timing. He got locked out of Twitter somehow, but he got back on Twitter two days later on May 3rd and said, sorry, was locked out of Twitter for 12 hours. I talk about the whole thing in depth on my show coming out in a few days, but Phil Helmuth, it's all good. I didn't think you angled and still don't, but if you want to chop the pot, let's make a deal. So Slime is actually saying, you know what, Phil, you don't have to give me the whole thing. I I don't think you were angling. I'll be happy to just split it. In fact, if you want to do nothing, it's cool. If you want to split it, let's do that. So keep in mind, Slime probably uh, does quite well for himself, so he's not hurting for money. He wouldn't have been in that game. But uh, he's saying, yeah, you don't have to give me the whole pot, and he's basically taking fault for his own mistake in that game. And he did make somewhat of a mistake, but it was an amateur mistake, and it's understandable why he thought that. So that was a classy thing for Slime to do. Slime could have just kept his mouth closed and said, okay, well, thanks to Helmuth for making this right. I I, I made a dumb mistake, but at the same time, it really looked like a fold to me, and uh, I'm not mad. It was just a confusion, but uh, thank you for Phil doing the right thing. He could have said that, but instead he said... uh, 
you know, it's all good. I don't think you did anything wrong. But if you if you want to split it with me, I'll do that. Even though you're offering to do more, I'll 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 just take a split. So nice response from Slime. I guess he's actually not living up to his name. Mr. Tickle, who is a listener to this show, he's a young listener to this show. He's still in his 20s. The show goes on long enough, we're going to lose our uh, 20s listener. He'll be in his 30s eventually, but uh, he's still in his 20s. He is a British guy who lived in Moscow for several years, but he said he left in March, uh, partially because of, partially, probably entirely because of the situation there with Russia being shut out of so many services due to the uh, Ukraine invasion. But uh, he posted a screenshot of Mr. Beast going all in on a flop of Queen Ace Nine with two clubs. Queen Ace Nine with seven deuce offsuit, no club. No pair, no draw. The ultimate no pair, no draw. Seven deuce offsuit. And he goes all in for 88K on a Queen Ace Nine flop with two clubs, and he has no clubs. He was up against Ninja, who actually had a flush draw, Jack High flush draw, Alexandra, who had bottom pair, and Keating, who had bottom pair. I'm not sure uh, what ended up happening there. I have to assume uh, that Ninja won that. Ninja probably called uh, with a flush draw there. Yeah, they're two probably folded. But wow, that, that's the type of plays that Mr. Beast was making. First he saw, he calls seven deuce pre. <laughs> and then he goes all in on, on a board where it's unlikely the three opponents missed. It's not like he did this on King 3-3 three, three rainbow. That... Uh, is one you could think if nobody has a king or a three, you've got it. But nope, it's a queen, ace, nine, two clubs. I mean, there's so many different hands that can call there. That is such a wet board. That is the one you don't bluff. In fact, that's the one where if you only have a draw, it's usually wise to play passively because uh, you're not going to get people to fold. And if your draw is not big enough to be positive expectation, if you think someone's going to call you, then it, it's a mistake to, to push it in at that point. The opposite can be true. If you've got a big hand there, that's when you can be aggressive. Number one, to charge the people drawing. And, and number two, because people will think maybe you have a draw and will call you lighter, where it's it's harder to do that when it's a very dry board. So uh, I think Mr. Beast goes with seven deuce of that board. But again, he's not a poker player. Like he plays sometimes, but he just has a lot of money and he's not a uh, a poker player. So uh, I'm surprised he won, but he did. Thanks to Alan Keating losing very badly and playing just about every hand. So Phil, you just need to realize where you are, who's at the table, and that you represent poker as a whole. Much more than I do and much more than any other person in poker does. I think I can say that confidently. Moving on, we unfortunately have yet another murder story to talk about involving a poker player. We had a murder story in the last show about uh, a player named Lauren Yelle, who was senselessly murdered at a gas station, just kind of wrong place, wrong time thing. We had another story on the same show about a Minnesota poker player accused of murder. And to me, it was really more of manslaughter, but he allegedly supplied drugs, which ended up killing 
someone who he knew, and they're charging him with murder, which I guess they can do in Minnesota. And now we have another murder story, and this time the story involves somebody who was murdered who is in the poker community. I will start off by saying that this was a tragic situation, and I'm never happy to hear about these stories. Of course, with the poker world being so large, you're just going to have a certain percentage of people who have bad things happen to them. It's just inevitable from the numbers. But still, it is sad, and you think about these people and their families, and you really feel for them. So this was a Biloxi area poker player named Mohammed Moini. That's spelled M-O-E-I-N-I, his last name. Mohammed Moini. He was 51 years old. And he was murdered at the motel he owned over a dispute involving money. He was not the only one who was killed. There were three others besides Moini who were murdered. And then the murderer killed himself. So five people were dead, including the killer. And this was a senseless slaughter. And it's very sad. And this has been reported in a few poker outlets, even though Mohammed Moini is not a well-known poker pro. In fact, he wasn't even a poker pro. He was just a local poker player who did have a World Series of Poker circuit ring. And I don't know anything about his poker game, but he was probably a decent or good player. So it's nice for him that he won the ring. And he was very well liked in the Biloxi poker scene. People said he was friendly. He was nice. Always a pleasure to have at the table. And looking at the picture of him, you can't always tell from pictures, but looking at the picture of him winning that ring... He looks like a nice, friendly guy. Now, yeah, he was in a great mood because he just won a circuit ring, but still, you kind of look at him, and I know sometimes it's inaccurate. You can look at someone who looks like an asshole and can turn out to be pretty nice, and you can have vice versa where someone looks nice and ends up being an asshole, but he kind of has like a, a the friendly, Middle Eastern, middle-aged guy look to him, and that's what people describe him as. So I'm one who will believe that he was very pleasant to have around at the table and came off as a very nice guy. So people in the Biloxi area who knew him from poker were very sad to hear about this. The murderer, his name is Jeremy Alessander Reynolds, or I should say was, because he killed himself after being pursued by police. But unlike the situation with... Lauren Yelley, who was just really in the wrong place at the wrong time and was murdered by a complete stranger, that does not seem to be the case in this murder. Because while the details have not been released, Jeremy Reynolds was there and arguing about money. And remember, Mohammed Moini owned this motel. Now, it's not clear if the argument was about money having to do with a motel stay or having to do with the motel at all, uh, there's a good chance that it did. The other victims were employees. Two, two of them were employees who were also murdered by this guy. And the fourth really was total wrong place, wrong time, 
where Reynolds carjacked a public works staffer on the street and killed him in the process while trying to escape. So this guy is just a contracted public works staffer who was doing his job and just got carjacked because Reynolds was trying to escape after killing three people, and uh, he ended up killing this public works uh, contractor as well, which is uh, also really tragic. These other three people, the two employees and the public works staffer, were not involved in poker, as far as I know. Of course, Biloxi's in Mississippi. There is a casino scene over there and somewhat of a poker scene. So Biloxi is east of Greater New Orleans, about uh, 90 miles. And I I went there once. I stayed overnight once. I didn't do very much there. I just kind of went there to see it. And I had a free night at a Caesars property there. This is a long time ago. So I said, what what the hell? You know, I'm in New Orleans anyway. So drive down to Biloxi. So I did. Anyway, he obviously was in some kind of argument having to do with money. And I don't know how well he knew Mohammed Moini. It's possible he was just arguing with him because... Moini was the owner of the place, and I don't know what the argument was about, but it had something to do, likely, with the motel. I say likely because this hasn't been released, but you know, what else would the argument be about? An argument over money at the motel, where the owner shot dead and two employees are shot dead. The shooter, I don't know about his criminal record, but a picture was posted of him that was a mugshot from somewhere in Mississippi that obviously was taken before, because by the time they got to the killer Reynolds, he was already dead. So this mugshot was not taken due to this crime. It was from a previous crime. So suffice to say, this Jeremy Reynolds was not a good guy. He had previous problems and he ended up murdering four people, one of whom just happened to be a person on the street who was doing his job. So obviously this guy is a complete piece of shit and the world is better off without him, this Reynolds character. And that is where really... All of the articles about this, both within poker and in Mississippi media, stop. And you would think, okay, that's a reasonable stopping point. I mean, what else is there to say? A mass murderer who just senselessly killed four people and then killed himself after he barricaded himself in a supermarket and they found him dead. Then what more is there to say, right? Well, there is more to say. And I struggled with whether I should say it. Because I have to balance newsworthiness with saying or writing anything that could make the deceased not look as good. Now, I want to preface this by saying that this murder was no one's fault besides Jeremy Reynolds, who killed those four people. 100% Jeremy Reynolds' fault. Nobody was asking for it. Nobody deserved it. I want to get that out. I want to make that clear. I'm not blaming anyone for this except for the murderer himself, who is a horrible person, and I'm glad he's gone. But it's too bad he's gone after killing four people. Nobody deserved to die or get hurt on April 27th when this occurred. However, I have some theories as to what was going on here. And I do have some facts which are not entirely flattering to victim Mohammed Moini regarding that motel. And I had to decide whether I bring them out. And I decided I'm going to bring them out because they're very relevant to the story. Had I found some personal details about Mohammed Moini that were unflattering to him, 
that I happen to find by Googling or something. I wouldn't bring them out here because that would be disrespectful. There's no point to bring up unrelated things that I happen to find when looking up stuff about him. That, I think, is disrespectful to those who have died. Unless I knew them personally. But like with strangers, I like you don't want to dig for dirt on strangers who are murdered. However, if things are found which probably had to do with the crime or at least had a good chance of it, then I think it is newsworthy. Otherwise, why report it at all? Why, why bring out a partial story? And I see that a lot in journalism these days, and I don't agree with it, where things are not fully reported because the journalist does not want you to know everything. He doesn't think you deserve to know everything. And I don't agree with that. I think you should know everything that's relevant to the story. So let's think about this murder. It occurred at Mohammed Moini's motel, and it was a dispute over money. This came from the police, by the way. But they didn't elaborate. What do they mean, a dispute over money? Well, of course, the first thing I did when trying to figure this out was to look up this motel, which is called Broadway Inn Express in Biloxi, Mississippi. So it's very easy to find the reviews of Broadway Inn Express in Biloxi, Mississippi. And let me tell you, these are some of the worst reviews I've ever seen of any business. It had 1.5 stars on TripAdvisor out of a lot of reviews. It's not like there were five people reviewing. There were 61 reviews. Usually you get 61 reviews, you get a pretty good idea of the place because outliers don't matter as much there. But if you think that's bad, the one and a half stars on TripAdvisor, there was just one star, the very lowest rating possible on Yelp out of 18 reviews, which isn't a ton of reviews, but 18 reviews, all of them so bad that it couldn't even get one and a half stars. It actually got one. And keep in mind, you can't rate zero on Yelp. The very worst you can rate on Yelp. So the 18 reviews and it still averaged one. It is hard to have one star on Yelp because you'll get a few people that give it a charity two or three stars. Here it says one, 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 one. And there were pictures of this motel showing dirt, mold, roaches. Just it really looked like a terrible place, this Broadway Inn Express. And the reviews just are brutal by everybody. Robert V. on March 19th of this year wrote, This place stinks and it looks like a crime scene. Furthermore, I would like to know how long it's been since they cleaned the sheets. Morgan C. about four years ago wrote, By far the absolute worst place I've stayed in my life, and Morgan provided several pictures. As soon as we checked in and saw the room, I called every hotel in town begging for somewhere else to stay. The room was disgusting. There was what looked like to be urine, blood, and some other bodily fluid on the walls in the bathroom. Carpet hadn't been vacuumed in I don't know how long. There was ash all over this, quote, non-smoking room, as well as evidence of marijuana on the floor next to one of the beds. The toilet and bathtub were so disgusting I wouldn't even touch them. And of course, they don't do refunds. I will never stay here again. I'll definitely make sure friends and family spread the word and all about this god-awful place. It needs to be shut down ASAP. Tiffany R. in 2018 wrote exactly what everyone else said. This is absolutely horrible. I can't believe this place. This has to be illegal, right? Isn't there a state board of health that can shut this place down? 
Mark L. from Wyoming in 2020 wrote, This dump doesn't have toilet paper or Kleenex or coffee. Had to ask the front desk for all of it, and the coffee pot didn't work. Negative five turds. SB from 2016. This hotel is terrible. There were roaches in the room. The sheets on the bed were stained and dirty. The bed frame looks like it was burned. The microwave was eroded, as was the fridge. Ended up booking another cleaner hotel for much cheaper. I'd give this place no stars and a health violation. Penny W. from Austin in 2018. And keep in mind, there's different dates here, right? I've, I've read you 2022, 2020, 2018, 2016. They're all the same. I've never given a reviewer before, writes Penny W., but I had to this time. The one star was given for its closeness to the beach. Well, actually, you couldn't give zero stars. You didn't realize that. Sorry to say that's the only good thing I can say about this place. The desk clerk was a bit strange, but nice enough. I could tell she wasn't interested in small talk. and just wanted my money and for me to leave. By the looks of the dirty, cluttered front office, that should have been my first clue how my room would be. I was very disappointed and misled by the online photos. I wish I still had the photos I took in my room, but I accidentally deleted them. Don't worry, there's plenty of others posted on Yelp. First thing to hit me when I opened the, do- the door was the stench. Clearly, potheads had stayed for some length of time here. Turning on the AC only made it worse. I'm so glad I carry Lysol and my essential oils with me wherever I go. It was the only thing that got me through my one-night stay. I seriously thought about sleeping in the torn-up hot tub for the night. The lock on my door is broken, so I placed a chair under the doorknob for safety. The bed was halfway made. Toothpaste and spit was still splattered in the bathroom mirror. There were hairs on my styrofoam cups in the bathroom counter, uh, not wrapped in plastic. Wow. <laughs> I saw numerous roaches. The fridge was nasty and thawed out fruit left behind in the non-working freezer compartment. The cabinets were about to fall apart. The Wi-Fi I was told I had did not work. The carpet was threadbare, in dire need of a good vacuuming, and there were cigarette ashes and butts behind and in between the nightstand and bed. The curtains were barely hanging onto the curtain rod and ripped. I had to use hair clips to keep them closed and left them behind. I did not go dare go barefoot. I wore my flip-flops all the time, even in the shower. I cleaned the toilet good with Lysol before using it. One of my towels had blood stains on it. I placed my luggage on the end of the hot tub and not on the bed for fear of bed bugs. Speaking of bed bugs, I brought a blanket and pillow with me on my trip. I spread my blanket out on the bed and slept on with my own pillow. I placed my blanket in a garbage bag and had and brought it home to wash it. I didn't get to sleep much because of the stomping around the room above me and the screaming and crying kids outside until 2 a.m. and the men standing outside talking loud and smoking. All I could pray about on my way home was, please don't let me get head lice or bed bugs. I paid almost $110 for this dump of a room. I stayed just a few days earlier in Fort Worth, Texas for $80. It was five-star compared to this place. It was so nice. After I saw my room in Fort Worth, I could not believe it was only $80. This is the kind of place you see in movies where hookers go. I was thrilled to see how much the Gulf Coast, referring to Biloxi, had grown and flourished since Katrina. I was there a year before Hurricane Katrina. It was in 05. And then there's this place. So sad. So much for expectations, lesson learned. I mean, so many reviews like this. This one was a long one, but there's so many reviews along these lines. Everybody pretty much agrees it's awful and posted pictures to back it up on Yelp and on TripAdvisor. And there's no refunds. You go in there, it's, it's it, completely a dump in every way. Dirty, roaches, you name it. Blood stains. <laughs> I mean, no toilet paper. And, and you complain, uh, you know, this isn't what I was expecting. Sorry, no refunds. And it's been this way a long time. I don't know if he has owned it all this time. I see some bad reviews in 2014 saying the same thing. But I don't believe he bought this recently. And even if he did, it it hasn't been cleaned up. So you have to wonder, okay, so who stays here? You have some tourists who just don't know better and don't check Yelp or TripAdvisor and get it like this girl did and 
the one I just read and uh, are shocked. But who else stays at a place like this? Uh, probably drug addicts and other and criminal types. Who, who, you know, you're going to have really scummy people staying at a place like this. Aside from the tourists, uh, you're, you're going to have some really shady people around there. So let's look at the murderer, Jeremy Reynolds. Do you think it's possible that he stayed there? In fact, there were some reviews complaining about weekly guests that were causing problems there. Is it possible that Jeremy Reynolds was a weekly guest? Is it possible that Jeremy Reynolds was not happy with his room and that after he had stayed there for some time, was pissed off? And this is a guy with a criminal record. This guy is a bad dude, obviously. This guy obviously was capable of murdering innocent people. Even if you want to say that he murdered, you know, he may have murdered uh, Moini out of a vendetta over something. Uh, definitely the guy on the street whose car he stole didn't do anything to him. And that guy was killed. I'm not defending any of the murders. I'm just saying that this is how bad of a guy that Jeremy Reynolds was, that he didn't just kill those he had an issue with. He actually killed an innocent man on the street, too. So this is a real bad guy. And he feels like he ripped him off. I'm not saying this is what happened, but I know there was an argument, quote, about money. Now, if it wasn't that, what was it? You have this bad guy, who the criminal record, who's 20 years younger than Moini, and looks like he has nothing in common with him. See, Moini's this uh, 51-year-old Middle Eastern business owner slash poker player. And then you have this uh, Jeremy Reynolds, who is a black 32-year-old with a criminal record, and I don't know how extensive, but I, it probably he probably has been in trouble a lot of times before, I'm guessing. What would these two have in common? Do you think that Moini made uh, business deals with him? You think that uh, they were friends? I doubt it. An argument over money that occurred at the motel that is horribly reviewed, I would think it probably has to do with the motel. And remember, People on Yelp and TripAdvisor are saying they won't give refunds. So at hotels and motels I stay at, I, I never have stayed at a place like this before, but I've stayed at some that are disappointing and, and are not meeting expectations. And I will bring this up to the front desk when I check out, and they'll usually give me some kind of break. Even occasionally they will give me uh, full money off the bill, which I don't ask for. I never ask for full money off the bill. But, uh, you know, I, I will asked for some kind of break if something didn't work that was important, like the toilet was only working half the time, or if uh, there's a lot of uh, plumbing issues otherwise, or or other problems with the room. There's a lot of different problems that could be with the room that uh, weren't easily fixable, or that they didn't give me the type of room they promised. There's a lot of different things that happen happen to hotels. I'm sure you've had this yourself. You know, I'll ask for some kind of allowance, and just about every time they'll give it of some sort. But here is like the worst motel possible, and they won't give you anything back. They say, sorry, no refunds. I think I would piss you off. You think you're getting like a decent motel that looks good in the pictures when you book it, and you pay over 100 bucks per night, and then you're all ready for your nice uh, Biloxi beach vacation, and you get this. And then you complain, and they say no refunds and no discounts. Who made that policy? Was it the city of Biloxi? No. Was it the employees of the motel? No. 
That would be the owner. That would be Mohamed Moini. So this was a case, and I've seen it before, where an otherwise nice, friendly person, just for whatever reason, when it comes to their own business, becomes like a Jekyll Hyde situation. And they don't even see it. They convince themselves that uh, they're not doing anything bad or wrong. You'd like to think that a guy who'd run a motel like that would be a jerk at a poker table and someone you'd hate, but not necessarily. Sometimes people, the way they behave in their business and the way they behave personally are two entirely different things, which I don't personally understand how that happens, but, but it does, and I've seen it. So I can tell you, without knowing Mohammed Moini, that this motel was and is awful, and there's no excuse to run a business like this. And if you are going to run a slum motel, then if you are going to have that, then don't sell it as something otherwise. Don't put pictures that misrepresent it. Don't refuse refunds of people who see it and want to leave. It's not like these people even stay the whole night and then want a refund. These are people who walk in, see it's awful, say, hey, this is not what I was sold. Can I have a refund and leave? Uh, no, you can leave, but no refunds. Like, it's really nasty. I'd be f- furious if this happened to me. I wouldn't commit any acts of violence, of course, and I'm not condoning acts of violence. But if you run a place that, number one, attracts a bad element, which people in the reviews were saying it did, and number two, you're not running the business very ethically, and I say this because it's not kept up to any reasonable standards of what would one would expect for a motel, and they won't give refunds for those that are misled from the pictures online, even if the person hasn't stayed there yet and just wants to leave, then you're not running your business ethically. And then sometimes you will run into one of these shady characters that's staying at the motel, and they won't just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to write a terrible review on Yelp, and I'm going to report you to the city, blah, blah, blah. No, you'll run into a type of person like this. And then tragedy occurs. And what sucks is it wasn't even just one person who got murdered here, is that uh, it was four people who got murdered. The two employees there, they didn't make this policy. And they, they didn't make decisions about the motel. They were just working there. And they were killed. And the guy on the street had nothing to do with any of this. And he was killed. That's not Mohammed's fault. That's the fault of the murderer. This should be a cautionary tale that if you run a business that attracts a bad element and you don't provide the service people are expecting and are very rigid about giving refunds, it can end in tragedy, not just for you, but for others that are associated with you or even those not associated with you. And that is something that you need to watch out for. So while I do not want anyone to come away with this thinking that I'm saying that Moini deserved this in any way, he did not. In fact, he didn't deserve any acts of violence against him. Had this all not happened, and I read about this motel, and someone asked me, what do you think should happen to the owner? I would say he should be cited, he should be fined, he should be sued, he should be shut down. I think these would be all appropriate consequences for someone who runs a motel like that and won't give refunds and puts misleading pictures up. I don't think they should ever have acts of violence against them. And not just murder, I mean anything. They should not be attacked violently in any way. But there should be some sort of uh, 
legal consequences for running a place like that. But unfortunately, you have psychos like Jeremy Reynolds that are probably hanging out at places like this and staying at places like this because they're unstable and they have unstable lives and this is where they go. And then when they get pissed off, they don't say, okay, I'm going to go home and write a bad review on Yelp. Or I'm going to complain about this in the city of Biloxi. No. It's important to uh, run your business ethically, not just act ethically outside of your business. And it's very easy to do a test whether you're running your business ethically or not, is that if people are getting what they're expecting, then you're running it ethically. If they are not, and a reasonable person would believe they're getting something that they end up not getting, or they don't get the quality that they're expecting, that a reasonable person would expect, then you're running it unethically. Now, there are many disputes that involve businesses where the customer is wrong. The customer has unrealistic expectations. The customer is entitled. The customer is too picky. The customer will not accept their own fault in the situation. And that comes up a lot. Whenever I have customer service issues, I try to separate myself from that type of person. I try to say, I'm not asking for such and such, or this isn't my attitude, or I know a lot of people approach you like this, or with this sort of complaint that I don't think is valid, but here is why this is different here with me. And I explain it without them even bringing up what other people might do. I, because I know, I know businesses will deal with unreasonable people. And can you imagine at this type of place who they deal with? But that doesn't mean these people are always wrong. If you run a slum motel that's in horrible condition, that isn't even that cheap, and people think they're getting something else, and then they're pissed off, it doesn't matter what type of person they are. They, they actually have a right to be pissed off. They just, of course, shouldn't uh, commit crimes against you because they are mad. So this aspect of it about the motel, I mean, go read it yourself. Go look up on Yelp or TripAdvisor. Go look up the reviews going back eight years for Broadway Inn Express in Biloxi. So do I know for sure that had to do with a murder? No. Do I think it's likely? Yes. Regardless of how Mo was at the poker table, which apparently was very nice, regardless of how he was with his friends and family, which probably was very nice, he did not run his business responsibly. And I'm afraid that indirectly resulted in this, where a uh, psycho person took the law into his own hands to an extreme and did a very bad thing to four people, with Mohammed being one of them. It's a very tragic situation. Joe D., a former member and radio listener, wrote, I've never understood why people who own one or a few motels don't try harder to keep them clean. I once read the Yelp reviews for some of the motels and hotels here in Orange County near my office and the beach. It was pretty disgusting, including drug needles found under the mattresses, etc. If I invested ma major money in a hotel, I'd be there nightly with a vacuum and brew myself if necessary just to protect the investment. Anyway, RIP to Mohammed. Yeah, I don't get this either. I know it's easier said than done to keep a hotel or motel looking good. Because over time, they naturally degrade just from wear and tear. And there's a lot of rooms to clean. And of course, it costs money to hire help, especially these days. I understand that there's not always the highest margins with these, these businesses. If you are not making a ton of money there, it can be easy to cut corners. The problem is 
that eventually degrades and it's worth less anyway. So you're not even saving yourself money in the long run. He may be charging extra money here because some people don't know from out of the area who think they're getting a decent motel by the beach, but all that does is create more problems when people aren't getting what they're expecting. So as Joe D said, it's not that hard to keep the place clean, to hire the proper help to make sure the place does not fall apart and isn't full of bugs and dirt everywhere and blood and what have you. So I don't get that either, especially by the beach like this was. This wasn't right on the beach, but it was pretty close. It was like walking distance from the beach. I don't get that either. I've seen some of these places and I wonder how they get this way. But I think some of them just kind of get set in their ways. And sometimes business owners will get the king of the castle syndrome going on where they feel this is my place. I'll do what I want. You're a guest here. You'll do what I say and tough luck. And I've seen this before, unfortunately, and it's unreasonable. You have to think of the other side of what they're paying for, what they're expecting. And I'm a believer that if you're a business owner and you drop the ball, if this is a problem on your end, if you misrepresent, if you screw up, if something happens that doesn't give the customer the experience they're expecting and should have expected, then then you eat it and give them some kind of allowance. And if they're being unreasonable and just demanding things for the sake of demanding things, then say no. So a very tragic story all around, and I just felt it needed to be covered completely. I didn't want to give you half a story. I wanted to give you the whole story of the murder, of the terrible guy who did it, of the tragedy of the victims, including Mohammed, and the motel where it took place and the story behind that. And when you see the reviews, you'll see why I wanted to bring that out as part of the story. The only way that this situation is not something that Mohammed could have helped is if he just bought it. Let's say he bought this thing a month ago with plans to really renovate it and clean it up and the previous owner just let it completely fall apart. Okay, you know, you can't snap your fingers and a place like this gets all better immediately. But it doesn't look like that. It kind of looks like he's owned it for a long time. And it didn't say he just purchased it, which I think we'd probably have read about. All right, so next I'm going to talk about Phil Ivey and his lawsuit. You may say, oh, I don't want to hear about the Borgata again. Well, good news. You're not going to hear about the Borgata because this has nothing to do with the Borgata or Crockford's or Ed sorting or any of that. It's a completely different lawsuit about a non-gambling matter. So what is going on here? Why is Phil Ivey suing someone? Which he is. He's actually suing a company. Well, I don't know if you've paid attention to this. I've mentioned before on the show. But Phil Ivey stamps his name on a lot of things. It is not that hard to get Phil Ivey as the face of your project or business. I'm not saying it's cheap. I'm not sure what the deals are. But it kind of seems like that Phil Ivey will be very open to being the face of whatever you've got going on as long as it looks kind of, sort of okay and it doesn't look like he does a lot of due diligence to figure out if he's getting behind winning projects. There are other poker players like this. Michael the Grinder Mizraki is one known for that. Johnny Chan is known for that. There are others. Even Phil Helmuth 
to some degree, is known for that. You probably see Helmuth wearing a Bitcoin Latinum, not Platinum, but Latinum. You see him probably wearing that hat when he goes on these streams or anywhere else that he's pictured. And yet, if you look up Bitcoin Latinum, you'll see that it has declined in value from $184 per coin to $10 per coin since mid-December of 2021. So we're talking about four and a half months here. And it's lost most of its value. Yet he's still wearing that hat. (laughs) I'm not saying it's a scam. I'm just saying it's something that you would not have wanted to have invested in. And I'm sure that Phil knew relatively little about it when he elected to take whatever position they gave him there. The creators of Bitcoin Latinum, I'm guessing, probably gave him a number of the coin. And then he wore the hat for it, and then it just collapsed. This is unrelated to Ivy. I'm just mentioning it. There's a lot of Bitcoin offshoots, what this is. You know, Bitcoin Cash, that was an offshoot. It's called a hard fork, which creates uh, new types of Bitcoin from the original Bitcoin. So this is one of them. There's been a number of them. Bitcoin Cash has been the most successful and the best known. But Bitcoin Latinum is one of the more recent ones, and like most of the others, it has flopped. But Ivy's still wearing the hat. He's wearing it at Hustler Casino Live a few days ago. But Phil Ivy, he seems to be even uh, less scrupulous regarding uh, what he'll put his name on. It's not that he wants to promote scams. It's not that he's a scammer. He's not. But at the same time, he takes the attitude, it seems, that if some company wants to pay him to be the face of something that he will uh, gladly do it. Also, it looks like in this case, he wasn't uh, putting his face on it so much as actually investing in something. And that's not surprising either because Phil Ivey is the opposite of risk averse. He's known to be a big gambler, even in negative EV spots. Now, the whole edge sorting thing was positive EV, but he's also been seen gambling in very negative EV spots. And so it doesn't surprise me that also if he is convinced that a business might really take off, that he'll invest and own a piece of the company. Usually in these deals where Phil becomes face of something, if he's not investing himself, if he's more of kind of like the face that they use to promote it, then uh, I'm guessing they probably give him just a a piece of it for having his face be part of it, which I think when Helmuth promotes something, it's probably along those lines in a lot of cases too, depending on what it is. Now, he was promoting the Aria for a while, which he didn't own any piece of the Aria, of course, but I think Bitcoin Latinum, I think he probably got a bunch of coin. And you know, with Ivy, I think it's a combination of him investing in things and just getting a piece of things for his face being part of it. Now, since a cannabis dispensary is not something associated with poker or gambling, that his face is less valuable. Phil Ivey is very well known to fans of poker, but if you're not a fan of poker, you probably have no idea who he is. So the typical pot smoker is not going to see Phil Ivey's face and go, oh, wow, Phil Ivey, oh, cool, I'm going to buy this, because he just isn't widely known enough outside of poker, even though in poker, he's one of the best known players. So in this case, Phil Ivey actually did invest and the whole company has failed. Now, keep in mind that 
pot is legal in Nevada. And it was legalized uh, some years ago, but not as far back as when this whole thing started. So I'm not quite understanding uh, what he thought was going to happen when he invested in it. He put his investment of $1.9 million into NuVeda LLC, that's N-U-V-E-D-A, in 2014. Again, that was before marijuana was uh, legal for everyone to purchase at dispensaries in Las Vegas and in Nevada. Now, it's, I think maybe it was, it was medicinal was allowed back then. So that's probably what they were doing. It was probably starting off as medicinal and then hoping that it would be widely legalized. And it actually was in Nevada and currently is. Despite that, the company failed. So they actually just filed for bankruptcy. And this is uh, almost two years after the lawsuit against them. So on uh, April 11, 2022, NuVeda filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. However, in June 2020, almost uh, two full years before that, Phil Ivey was part of a lawsuit against NuVeda. And there were two other investors, uh, Shane Terry and Dotan Milach, who were seeking money that was uh, owned from a uh, both a loan and an equity stake in the company. And... Ivy was given a 3% equity share back in 2014 and gave them a $2 million line of credit. So it kind of sounds to me, I haven't read the lawsuit, but it kind of sounds to me from this article that uh, he gave them a loan in exchange for 3% of the company. So they were expected to pay back the, uh, it was actually $1.9 million, not two, but close to $2 million. They were expected to pay him back for the loan that he gave them, he gets 3% of the company. That seems to have been the deal in uh, 2014. And they ended up failing. The lawsuit states, Ivy's significant business experience and financial resources not only provided a solution in support of Nuveda's business strategy, but also provided critical proof of financial viability in support of Nuveda's competitive application, including the amount of taxes paid. And Phil Ivey was listed and approved as an owner of Nuveda when they got their six licenses in the state of Nevada. This guy, Shane Terry, I don't know him. I don't even know if he's in poker or not, but uh, I guess he was promised $1.75 million for his 23% of the business. I guess he sold it and was promised $1.75 million and then uh, never got most of it. He claims he only got 250K. Also, they are claiming that co-owners Pejman Badi and Puya Muajur just stole the shares that were owned by Ivy and Terry. So Terry's uh, 23% and Ivy's 3% were just both taken by these two guys, the lawsuit alleges. According to the lawsuit, Ivy actually got his money back but he lost his equity stake in the company. And that's what the lawsuit was about. That while they did pay him back, they also took his 3% they gave him of the company. And he's saying, wait a minute, that's not the deal here. If I loaned you this money, I keep the 3% in perpetuity until I sell it. There are actually two dispensaries called The Sanctuary 
in Las Vegas. One's in North Las Vegas and the other's in downtown Vegas. And I think those are still operating. And Ivy believes he owes 3% of those, but they may shut down as a result of this bankruptcy. So uh, I don't know if Ivy's ever going to see anything here. His 3% may be worthless anyway. This may render the whole thing moot if the company goes under then you basically own 3% of nothing. And since Ivy did get his loan repaid, he can't even sue them for that. So that that may really put an end to this suit, at least from uh, Ivy's standpoint. The other guy, this Shane Terry, I'm not sure what uh, Dotan Milach, what his claim is, but uh, this Terry guy claims he's still owed $1.5 that he actually sold his interest of 23% for $1.75 million, and they only gave him two fifty k. Surprised they paid Ivy back everything they borrowed, but this other guy got screwed. It's kind of weird. Then they took everyone's shares. It's a very odd story. There must be more to it that I'm not understanding. Anyway, I'm not kidding about Ivy. If you've got some poker-related or even non-poker-related business and you want Ivy to be part of it, there's a decent chance he will agree. There are some players who say, look, I don't want my name associated with something that I don't really, really believe in. Now, this one, he actually gave them credit, so he probably really believed in this one. But there's been other projects I've seen him part of. They're called Ivy This, Ivy That, and you almost get the impression like he's the owner, and it turns out he's really not. He's kind of just someone who allows them to use his face, and he gets some kind of equity in it, I'm presuming. But in those cases, he probably doesn't invest any money. I'm talking about like poker or gambling-related businesses that he has agreed to be part of over the years. I'm not talking about full tilt. That's a whole different matter. But the other ones that never had any success. If I were a Phil Ivey type, meaning a very big name in poker, I would not do this. My name would be worth more to me than any benefits I might reap by getting free shares of these companies that claim they're going to become so big. Because every time one of these companies starts up, they always have these grandiose plans about how huge they're going to become. And they talk a good game. But really, if you look at them critically, and Ivy knows a lot of people who give him good opinions too. It's not like he's just isolated. Like He has a lot of people he can go to and say, hey, what do you think of this business? And I think a lot of them would probably give us a pretty good advice of what looks like it has a future and what doesn't. I'm not even saying this marijuana thing looks like it was a bad idea. They're probably doing medicinal marijuana in 2014, and there was talk even back then of legalizing it in Nevada, and then that happened. So you would think, okay, that's like printing money. But no, (laughs) apparently not. You also have to run the business properly. So that one I don't blame him for getting involved with, though the big line of credit I'm not sure is a good idea. But he got that money back. But some of these things he's put his name on, I go, this is going to be a fail. This is going to be awful. And it is. And I'm not saying these are scams. They're just dumb ideas that don't go anywhere. And then you do have the problem of what if people get ripped off. So you not only have to believe in the business, you have to believe in the people you were partnering with. And that ended up burning him here as he's alleging that these two owners, Pejman Badi and Puya Mouajer, ripped him off and ripped off that other guy. So if their claims are true, then they were in business with some shady people. 
And you can't always predict the future of how people are going to behave, but it helps to go into business to people you trust, and especially if you're going to give them a $1.9 million line of credit. I'm guessing he's never going to get anything because I think these businesses are about done. It will be interesting to see if somehow they pull this out and survive, and maybe if they even sell the business, if Ivy will collect anything or have any claim. I don't even know what these guys are going to say as to why they believe they have Ivy's 3%. Like, what could possibly be the answer to this? If he has it in writing, which I'm assuming he must, how can they claim they just appropriated it? I'm going to start our next topic, which is about Lake Mead, which is the lake near Las Vegas. Lake Mead is actually a lake which spans the border between Nevada and Arizona and is fed by the Colorado River and Hoover Dam is right there. In fact, Hoover Dam is what uh, creates Lake Mead. So it's not a natural lake, but it's a very important lake. It is a lake that supplies water and electricity to a lot of people, especially in Nevada. So there's two stories about Lake Mead that I want to talk about, and they both have to do with the extremely low level of water. If you don't live on the West Coast, or in the Western U.S., it's not the coast in Nevada, of course, but uh, if you don't live in the Western U.S., you may not be aware of the drought, which has been going on for quite some time where most years recently have had below average or far below average rainfall, which, of course, is a big problem when you need water. So Lake Mead has been affected by this. The Colorado River, which is going to uh, get lower and lower and have less flow if there's not enough rain feeding it, not enough snow feeding it. A lot of it's melting snow, but that's still pretty much the same thing. It's just in the winter in frozen form. But uh, if there's not enough water feeding it, then it is going to get lower and lower. And this has been happening over the years. And the water level of Lake Mead keeps going down, down, down. It has lost 152 feet from its peak and in fact, this can easily be seen if you go on Lake Mead, like on a boat or just like the pictures of it. You can see where the rocks surrounding it, instead of being brown, are white. And then you see brown on the upper layers of rocks, but the lower levels, and now not even that low, now you see like uh, in some places over 100 feet of white rocks, which uh, lost their color because they were once covered with water. So you can tell where the top of the lake once was and how low it is now. And this has been happening every year of the drought and it's getting worse and worse. Now, it was looking like the West was going to partially get out of this drought situation because December had record rainfall and snowfall in most places in the Western U.S. And You may not know this, but especially the southwest U.S., most of the precipitation comes between December and March, and the rest of the year, there's not very much. 
In fact, it's not uncommon for six months to pass with almost no rain in Southern California. You can have just really very close to zero rain in those six months between mid-April and mid-October, or sometimes early May and early November. The rainfall is all concentrated in those winter months of December, January, February, March. And that's true of Las Vegas as well. They'll get some showers sometimes in the summer, but uh, they're quick and they don't bring a lot of precipitation. Of course, uh, Lake Mead is not just affected by the water in the Las Vegas area. It's also uh, upstream of what's feeding it. It's, of course, affected by the snowpack. So after a very wet and snowy December in the West, as soon as New Year's came, that was that. And the water spigot from the sky got shut off. And there was very little rain and snow in January, in February, in March, and in April. Last year, we had a similar thing happen, except March and April were unusually wet, which somewhat saved the season. Otherwise, the same thing would have occurred. There was a very, very dry January and February, and people were like, uh-oh, this is going to be another terrible drought year, and then March and April were kind of unusual and saved it. But the same thing did not happen in 2022, where January, February, March, and April were all dry, especially January, February, March, which typically bring a lot of precipitation. So this compounded the existing drought issues, and now Lake Mead is at historically low levels. How low? Well, a picture was going around last week of an intake pump that was visible for the first time in Lake Mead. You may say, what do you mean an intake pump? Well, remember, Lake Mead does more than one thing. Lake Mead supplies water to uh, southern Nevada and also parts of uh, California, Arizona, and Mexico. And it also powers the area through Hoover Dam. So if the lake gets very low, then not only do you lose the water supply, and not only does the pump stop working, but uh, it also prevents electricity from being generated through Hoover Dam. So this can be a big problem. But the first problem will occur with the water that cannot go through these pumps. The lake's maximum level before it spills over is 1,219 feet above sea level. And what they did was they installed, uh, and when I say above sea level, it's, it's not actually starting at zero, so it's not a 1,219-foot lake. It's... Uh, but it is, uh, I'm talking about the elevation. So at uh, 1,219 feet above sea level is the highest point that Lake Mead can be at before it spills over. But we're nowhere near that anymore because uh, the current level of Lake Mead is only 1,056 feet above sea level, which is a big problem. Why? Because the, south, the Southern Nevada Water Authority's shallowest pumping station cannot pump water to Las Vegas if the lake goes below 10,050 feet or 1,050 feet above sea level. Uh-oh. The six feet away. And as I said, one of the intake pumps is already visible. But once it gets six feet lower, 
then they won't be able to use that pumping station at all. Does that mean Vegas will have no water? No, because being aware that this might occur, the Southern Nevada Water Authority installed two other pumping stations, one that can continue pumping as long as it stays over 1,000 feet above sea level, and one if it gets to 875, as long as it's above 875, uh, the third station can still work. So Vegas doesn't go completely dry, which of course would be an absolute disaster. At 895 feet, which is 20 feet above the minimum for the final pumping station, water cannot pass through Hoover Dam, which will cause all kinds of other problems that will end the supply to California, Arizona, and parts of northern Mexico that count on it, and it will not generate electricity anymore. Uh Uh-oh. Now, is it possible that we'll get some rain and it'll get better? No, because remember, the southwestern U.S. does not get much rain in the late spring and summer. gets very little rain. So forget it. It's not going to happen. They're not going to get much or any rain from May through September. In fact, uh, I have a Vegas resident right on here with me. Brandon Drexel Gerson, how often do you get significant rain in Vegas between May and September? Is this the, the, the Roe versus Wade show? No, we're almost there. This is the this is the weather show. This is the weather channel. You know, we went uh, one point over 400 days without any significant rain, which they consider an inch or more. Wow. We 400 days without over an inch. Over a year? One wow. Point. Yeah. So between so May and September, you, between May and September, you're, you're going to get like almost nothing, like a few showers and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So Correct. that's that's a big problem. And uh, and you may say, well, what about north of Vegas that will feed the Colorado River? No, it's really uh, a dry season in most places that are going to be feeding the Colorado River. It's not bone dry because there are places that do get uh, rain. But even Colorado, I went to Colorado last summer and it rained like every day. But uh, that was an unusual two weeks there. And this year in Colorado, they're having a big problem where it's been very dry there. So, they, so Colorado, this, is the, this is the drought show? Is that what we're on? That, that's what we're on right now, yeah. So yeah. you're a little bit soft, the by the way. Body, the dead body in the barrel? Well, well you're, you're getting ahead of yourself here, but you're a little bit soft. Is there a way you can uh, talk louder or turn your uh, – I've turned you up as much as possible. I'm using earbuds through Skype. I don't know how – what else can I do? Uh, let me see. Now there's nothing further I can do. I have you as loud as possible. Maybe just I'm talk just louder. Not, I'm just not strong with my voice. It's, it's, it's just sounding a little bit soft to me. And what I, I've been noticing this on recent shows where guests or your co-hosts that they're soft if, if they don't have that uh, strong enough microphone or don't talk loud enough wherever it is. And I have to then artificially boost it the best I can, like manually, whenever they talk when I'm editing. So anyway, just try to talk loud if, if you can. So okay. getting back to this, so that's one problem. And... What can they do about it? Right now, nothing, because the rain's not going to fall, and they're, they're not going to be able to just invent water out of nowhere. In Southern California, it's getting so bad, not just related to Lake Mead, but... Uh, I'm sorry. Hold on. Pardon the interruption. I took out the earbuds, and I'm just now speaking directly through Skype. Is that better? That's a little same? bit better. It's a little bit better, yeah. Okay. This is a... Okay. All right. Go on. So... Southern California has actually been making rules about watering your lawn only one time a week, and there are a lot of different rules that are coming out that have never been there before because of the historic drought. And they're, again, starting up with talk of desalination plants, which I haven't heard about 
being talked about seriously in Southern California. Not they, they can't do it in Vegas, obviously, because there's no ocean. But in Southern California, they're actually talking about the desalination plants, which they haven't talked about seriously in 30 years. And in fact, I'll give you a little bit of trivia here, not about Vegas, but about desalination plants in Southern California. In 1990, there was a big drought, and it was especially affecting Santa Barbara, where I lived at the time. And Santa Barbara was being fed exclusively by uh, Lake Kachuma. That's where they were getting their water, kind of their version of Lake Mead, except there's, uh, it's not due to a dam. And Lake Kachuma was getting so low that when you would drink tap water, you would actually kind of taste the sand. It was kind of gross. You were, the lake actually tasted bad because it was so low. And it was very close to running out completely. And so they were panicking there in Santa Barbara in 1990 and saying, we've got to build these desalination plants. They're very expensive, especially back then. But we've got to do it because we're about out of water. And environmentalists in the area were breaking the bad news to everybody that it would take 40 consecutive winter storms. And I don't just mean like a shower. I mean like real winter storms. 40 consecutive winter storms to bring Lake Kachuma back up to its proper level. So what happened there? Did they get their 40 consecutive storms? Well, obviously not. So how did they possibly get out of that to where these plants are never built? Well, the environmentalists ended up red-faced on this one. Because of the salmon, I bet, right? Let me just take a guess. The salmon? What? What do you mean salmon? There, No, there was a thing up there about the... I'm telling you, it had something to do with salmon spawning in the spring... And that's why they never did anything with that lake. I read an article about this. Go ahead and Google it. Something with the salmon. Well, okay, it may be something different. I, didn't, I never heard about salmon, but as far as this drought, I mean, you might be right about something with salmon, but I just never heard of this. What's the name of the lake again? Lake Kachuma. So How do you spell that? C-A-C-H-U-M-A, Lake Kachuma. Right. And so Lake Kachuma got filled up within months. How many storms did it take? Did it take 40? No. Did it take 20? No. Did it take 10? No. Did it take 5? No, it took 2. So how could they have been so wrong? How is it possible that environmentalists who are experts on this said it would take 40 consecutive storms to fill it back up and it took 2? Well, they overlooked something very big. It was surrounded by mountains and hills. So first, in March of 91, and I was living there when this happened, a big storm hit the area, and uh, the ground was very dry, and it saturated the ground. It was a big storm, but it didn't help Lake Kachuma because the water went right back into the ground because it was so dry. Sucked up all the water. So they said, up, told you, see, this is what we mean. It's going to take 40 storms because, look, we just got a big storm of a few inches, and... Lake Kachuma stayed at the same low level because the ground sucked it all up. See? Told you guys. A week later, a second similar storm came, and when it was done, the lake was full. Why? Because the ground was just saturated a week before. And when the ground is saturated by, and you're surrounded by mountains and hills, what happens? The water runs down, and the water fills up the lake. Oops! They forgot about the saturation thing that if you have back-to-back storms one which which saturates the ground that all the water in the surrounding area is going to run down the hills and fill the lake and they said oops we didn't realize this we didn't think of this sorry so then i just did a quick google 
and uh, it all had to do with the California steelhead salmon. What had to it do with it? 1987. It was called the Kachuma River Project through the Santa Ynez River. I don't know. Santa Ynez yes. River. Yeah, but yeah, and somehow it was going to affect the endangered steelhead salmon, and that's why they called it off. Okay, but that's a different thing. That's not about the uh, the lake. Yeah, it's close enough. Though. <laughs> okay, so that I learned something new. I lived in the area. I never heard about that. But I wasn't living there in '87, so that's probably why. Yeah. But anyway, the the it was called the March Miracle in Santa Barbara, and it left the environmentalists in the area red faced, and that was the end of the talk of desalination plants. And for thirty years, I have not heard them discussed in Southern California in any way, Santa Barbara or otherwise, until now. Now they're saying, yeah, maybe we need them, especially because it is believed that whatever form of climate change is currently occurring, that uh, it just has seemingly permanently changed, maybe not permanently, but at least for a while, I don't think it's just running bad. I think it probably did change, at least in the short to medium term, the uh, average rainfall that's going to happen in the West and uh, that might require these measures soon. So but let's get back to Lake Mead. Speaking, well, speaking of running bad, did you hear about the guy that protested in front of the Supreme Court two days ago about climate change? No. He set himself on fire. And this isn't a joke. He set himself on fire in front of the Supreme Court two days ago to protest climate change, and he just burned to death. No one had any water. And not only that, uh, that's not what everybody's thinking about at the Supreme Court now. That's the other part of running back. Yeah. Can you imagine that you, you you are that fanatical about something or something's that important to you that you set yourself on fire as a as a means of protest? I mean, yeah, and you know something. I don't want to get too much off topic here, but the climate change it's it's being approached the wrong way because they need to look at it as a long term issue. That whatever changes we make, even if we make the perfect changes, we're not going to see benefit of these changes for a while. So. You, you can't treat it like an urgent matter that we must do now. You have to handle the short-term matters first and then come up with a policy that deals with the climate change that's going to help in the long term. But if there's short-term urgent pressing matters, they should actually be ahead of climate change because climate change, no matter what you do, you're not going to change it in the short term. It's, it's a long-term thing. It's kind of like if, uh, if you're sick at the moment, uh, you want to treat the illness. You don't want to... Uh, treat uh, the fact that you've been uh, you know that you may want to quit smoking or that you may want to uh, lose some weight uh, these these are all kind of like long-term things that are healthy for you but you if, if you're sick at the moment what you need to do right away is treat the illness and, and it would be dumb to say you know what i'm sick but i think rather than treating the illness i'm just gonna i'm gonna start losing weight like uh, that would not I make any the, sense i think the damage is already done to be honest with you not to be too much of a pessimist but i think it's already done it's too late uh, you know what? You'd be surprised how it can come back and change. And there's a lot of things that is, that are not known. Like like this thing that happened with Lake Kachuma 30 years ago is a good example. They were convinced. Experts were convinced it was going to take 40 consecutive storms, which of course is impossible to happen, to bring it back. And it took two. So there are mistakes with this. And there, in fact, there were even predictions about uh, climate disasters that were made by Al Gore. Uh, 20 years ago that haven't even come close to coming true about consequences. I mean, if you look at the way it was said the world was going to be in 2022 or in 2020, whenever he said it was going to be, uh, it has not happened. And while we've definitely had climate change and there's definitely now some issues like this drought, 
it's we're, we're also not seeing the catastrophes that were promised 20 years ago if we don't uh, change our ways. Are you familiar with the fact that Indonesia – I mean this is insane, but it, it sounds like it's a joke, but it's not. Indonesia is currently in the process. It's going to take like 30 years, but they're currently in the process of moving the capital because due to climate change, they believe in the next 20 to 40 years – the capital of Jakarta is going to be underwater. Well, it could be, and that's why. And they, they would have to have do you it. Heard about this? No, but I, it's believable. And but, however, it may not be. But they they are probably doing like a better safe than sorry thing because they can't just pick up and move everything super quickly. But but also, it's possible in forty years we'll be looking at it and it's not anywhere near underwater. These things are very hard to predict, as, as the truth. But anyway, let's get back to the the Lake Mead thing. So that that was the first problem: is it's low and it's causing issues for uh, water and, and possibly power, and it's just going to get worse. I, I wonder what it's going to be like in October after very little rainfall, which is almost certain. But a second thing happened, and this was discussed before it actually happened. But when this story came out about the intake pumping visible and the lake being historically low, people started saying, I wonder how long until we start seeing bodies pop up that were dumped in the lake. Well, it didn't take very long. Because a few days after the story about the intake pump being visible, a body in a barrel became visible, and it turned out it was a barrel that has been there for quite some time. So here is the story with that. Uh, Before I tell this story about the barrel... You have to understand that Vegas was very different in the 60s, 70s, and 80s than it is today. There was a lot of mob activity in Vegas. The the mob basically ran Vegas. And then that changed in the early 90s due to the corporate takeover of the Strip. And the mob basically got pushed out. Which is funny because for decades, law enforcement was trying to do something about this. The FBI is trying to stopped the organized crime in Vegas and were unsuccessful. Nobody predicted the end of the mob in Vegas was going to be from just corporations buying and and building these uh, mega resorts and the mob just uh, not having the influence they once did. So it very quickly disappeared. I visited Vegas a lot as a teenager in the 1980s. I could not gamble then, but I was old enough to notice the presence of organized crime of the mafia. It was a very different feel in Vegas. Even as a visitor in the 80s, who was just a teenager, I could see the difference between then and what I saw like by the mid-90s when I was in my 20s. I, there, there was a very different feel. You could tell that things had changed and that the mob was gone. I going to walk into the coffee house in my teens, a coffee house, and get a steak and some snow crab for under seven ninety nine. That's a fact. Yeah, that was another unfortunate change though that's happened the to vegas shop. yes not no steakhouse the coffee shop get a good steak and a nice cluster of crab for about 7.99 yeah they that advertise it on the marquee where now they show uh celine or what's the <laughs> other girl the british lady uh, adele and we're going to talk about adele i held back that topic until you called in but yeah that, that was another casualty in vegas was the the cheap meals that were a loss leader and now restaurants are a big money maker rather than a loss leader. They've gone the opposite direction. But anyway, it was wondered, will we find bodies that were likely dumped in there by the mob 
during the time the mob ruled Vegas? And it looks like the answer is yes, because a body was found, a skeleton that is, in a barrel. And the skeleton is actually pretty well preserved. Of course, it's just it's just a skeleton, but it, it was actually pretty well preserved in a barrel that had deteriorated a lot to where you could actually see in the deteriorated portion of the barrel, the body sticking out or the skeleton sticking out. I kept reading, oh, this is so graphic, watch out. And it wasn't. It was just a skeleton. I mean, I don't know why people were so freaked out by it. it was, I, I can understand finding that in the in the lake is kind of unnerving, but seeing a picture of it, it wasn't like something gruesome. It's just a skeleton. But this was found, and they have not identified the person yet who was murdered, but they did find that the person was shot, so it looks like they were dead before being dumped in the barrel. And they dated the murder to sometime between uh, 1975 and 1982 based upon uh, clothing and shoes that the victim was wearing, that they still had that uh, in good enough condition to where they they were able to determine what it was and what was being sold at the time. So uh, it, it was sometime in the mid to late 70s or early 80s that uh, this murder took place. Now, had they found that this took place in 1995, I would say this is highly unlikely to be a mob hit. But uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, I mean, that was what I guessed. As soon as I heard that there was a body found in the lake, I guessed it's going to be one that was from the 80s. And then I read the article and it says that it's dated to the 1980s at the moment. I go, ah, I got it. So, you know, I, I figured it out. Well, I wasn't completely correct because it could have been late 70s or mid 70s too. But yeah, you know, it's, it's all around the same thing. In fact, uh, the movie Casino depicted mob life in Vegas between 1985 and 1986. So that the, the mob was really uh, influential and in power during those years. And uh, so presumably someone was hit and they were dropped into the... It's not that definitive that it's the mob. I mean, it likely is, but, you know, still people back then were still getting into domestic altercations and business and love triangles, and that would be an easy way just to dispose of a body. Yeah, it, I'm it, just saying. It, no, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, not, it's definitely not definitive. I think because it's a barrel and, and it was dropped in the lake, it just... It seems less likely that an individual who uh, like shot his wife dead or a wife who shot her husband dead or did a business partner who shoots another business partner dead, whatever. You know, just a, a murder that has nothing to do with a mob at the time. It, it seems less likely to me that they would actually have a barrel to put this uh, in and then drop you know, be able to get out to the middle of the lake and drop it in the lake. It's not impossible, but I would more picture that being one where they would uh, go to the desert – uh, you know, a good deal away from Vegas, and then bury it out there somewhere and hope it's never found. That's that's what I would expect. I wouldn't expect the the dropping it in the lake kind of seems more mob like to me. And of course, there was a ton of mob activity and mob murders during those years. So, as you said, it may not be, but I think it's pretty likely. Uh, if you want to see the actual skeleton, which I see is being blocked in a lot of pictures online. You can go to the article in the New York Post about it. They show the full picture. And uh, as I said, I don't think, even though this would be a lot more brutal, I don't think they put a live person in a barrel and dropped it in the water. I I believe the person was already dead. And uh, that was my original guess. And then it was later revealed that the person was shot, which especially makes it likely they were dead before being dropped in the water. Uh, Someone on VegasCasinoTalk.com, a sister site to Poker Fraud Alert, which I also own, 
someone named JP from LA said uh, his guess is that eighty uh, percent chance casino and mafia related, fifteen percent that it was something else, and a five percent that it was Hoffa, <laughs> which of course the last one being a joke. This is assumed that is not going to be the only body that appears in the coming months, that there will probably be other bodies that are being found in the lake. The shoes that were found were from Kmart, and that was how they dated the death. They found shoes at Kmart that I I believe were not uh, sold after 1982 and that uh, were sold from the mid-70s to the early 80s. Yeah, so that's, how, that's how they figured it. They claimed there were other, quote, personal items there, but it was the shoes were the big clue. Uh, so someone else said in the Vegas Casino Talk thread, and keep in mind, a lot of these guys are, are older guys, like older than me by a good deal, and, and spent a lot of time in Vegas in those days. So uh, one of those guys, whose uh, name is Bob Dietz, he's, he, you know, his real name is known, I'm not giving away personal info, but he said, I think the consensus is that this was either not a mob hit or a very sloppy mob hit. Regardless of what you see on TV, a proper dumping of a body would not have someone clothed or wearing a belt or anything that would serve as an identifier or even a clue as to the date. But then JP from L.A. said back the uh, lefty and Spilatro era was very sloppy at the end. So they're talking about Lefty Rosenthal and uh, Tony the Ant uh, Spilatro. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I still I still think this is there was a, this is a mob hit. I I think that. Yeah, if if they're going to dump this in a barrel that they're pretty confident is going to sink, they're not worried about it being found many years later. If if the lake were to go down, I mean, they they can get unlucky, I guess. That the person uh, that the that the barrel is found somehow by uh, someone fishing that they run into it with it, with their line or something like that. But uh, if you're dumping it deep enough or in a place you think that people aren't going to be fishing or whatever it is, then it, you know, it's probably going to be difficult to find. And indeed, it took at least 40 years to appear. And had we not had this drought, which nobody could have predicted back in uh, the time of this murder, it still would not have been found. It's not even like they were thinking, oh, what if the drought happens? Like back then, no one was thinking of that. Imagine they find some kind of DNA, like, you know, DNA under like the guy's nails, like, you know, the deceased body. Like he was fighting the guy off or something, you know, or just maybe not this case because he was shot, but maybe another. And someone actually gets arrested over like a you know forty plus year old murder, you know, because the lake dried up. Wouldn't that be incredible? Yeah, I don't think it could happen though because the DNA would not preserve itself that well. Uh, where where they are able to do this is when at the time of the crime they take the DNA and preserve it well. In fact, uh, the. Golden State Killer, the best-known case of this recently, they only were able to find him because of a crime he committed in uh, Ventura, California, where that lab had the foresight to get a good sample and store it very well that held up for the almost 40 years that there were until they identified the guy. All the other samples they took were not stored well enough or just not even taken and uh, or not stored. So the and they didn't have this uh, DNA identification technology. Forget these sites, these websites now that uh, do genealogy that allow them to trace back the family tree and figure it out, like they did with the uh, Golden State Killer. They didn't even have the ability to identify through DNA back in 1980. So they they were really forward looking to do this back then, 
and uh, thinking that maybe it'll be useful one day, and it was, and that allowed them to arrest that murderer before he died. He's quite old now, but that you know, eventually the technology caught up to where they're able to start identifying murders, murderers from the 1970s who may still be alive if they have well-preserved DNA evidence. But this one, it's unlikely for that to be the case. It would be interesting, though, if somehow they found the murderer, though there's a very good chance the murderer could be dead by now. But you know, maybe not, if it was 40 a years very ago. very good chance the murderer could have been murdered. That's true. I was thinking that. I was going to say it's not even just maybe 40 years past and the guy just died of natural causes. He could have been hit himself, as uh, happened to a lot of these mob guys at that time. So uh, this could be one of many that will appear. It's funny how so quickly after that article about Lake Mead being low, that just days later, the first body was found. And we're going to have many months ahead of us that are dry. And there may be more. We shall see, and maybe there will be further clues of other ones, maybe not related to this one, but maybe other ones will give even more evidence. I don't know if they're going to be able to identify this person, but they think they're going to be able to. And also, they probably have a list of people who disappeared in the Vegas area during those years, so they don't even have to look too hard, I'm guessing. They just have to go back to the records of those days of unsolved disappearances and see who might match this. And this, they said the skeleton was preserved pretty well, so they're going to be able to uh, figure out a number of things. I, I imagine we're going to get the identity of that person in not too long, and that might open up some investigations, and maybe that's how they'll figure it out, is by who that is and who they were associated with. I don't know about evidence. You know, That may be hard to prove. But who knows? We will see. Okay, so I want to talk about something else going on in Vegas. Brandon made a little reference to it already, and that is Adele. We've covered Adele on the show. We've covered Adele pretty uh, extensively. I'm not a fan. I'm not either, but she does have some very big fans. And I was pretty convinced after the debacle, which occurred earlier this year, that she was done in Vegas. In fact, I assumed she was done performing any kind of uh, concerts from then forward. Maybe a one-off here and there, but I thought any chance of any residency anywhere, not just in Vegas, or any kind of long concert series, that, that there's just about no chance. Because Adele, as I said on our previous segments about this back in January, she hates performing. She likes singing. She likes recording. She hates performing for a crowd. There are some very egotistical performers who enjoy the crowd cheering, who live for that. It's something that uh, excites them and makes them so happy as their dream come true. But just because you're a good singer doesn't mean you necessarily like to perform or that you don't have stage fright. So she apparently has terrible stage fright. She apparently feels awkward when they cheer for her. She doesn't quite know what to do or how to react to it. Even though she knows it's positive, it just feels weird to her and she's uncomfortable. And uh, she said that uh, she gets physically ill from performing and the anxiety she gets from it and actually sometimes vomits afterwards from the stress of performing and absolutely hates it. And she has backed out of a number of performances, both in the U.S. and in the U.K., always with excuses about health issues, which 
probably mostly aren't true or are exaggerated because she's just so stressed out regarding performing. While she hasn't acknowledged that these health issues are exaggerated or fabricated to get out of them, she has acknowledged that she hates performing and gets super anxious and doesn't even know why she continues to do it. And she doesn't do it that often. But as I mentioned on a previous show, even before she was big back in 2008, because in 2008, you probably didn't know who she was. Wait, when you say big, you mean... Like really famous, like she's been for... Oh, not physically, like overweight. Oh, yeah, she was big, bigger that way too, yeah. Well, but I, I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, back in 08, not only was she bigger physically, but she also wasn't that famous. She was kind of more uh, a, a, like a smaller act, uh, someone that some people knew but wasn't a big star. And she backed out of one of those concerts that could have been very beneficial to her career. So that shows you how much she hates it. It's, what, it's one thing to back out of something when you're very rich and very famous already. It's another thing when something that could really be... Uh, very beneficial to your career when you're 20 years old and back out of it. So this has been going on for more than a decade, for almost a decade and a half. So a lot of stories came out when she aborted her Caesars residency one day beforehand and screwed a lot of her biggest fans who flew in from the UK to Vegas just to see her, only to find out that she she canceled it. They get off the plane and find out that the reason they came is not happening. And she had a lot of excuses for it. And uh, l- listen to the- I'm going to play this again. I've played this before, but this is her uh, BS apology she gave at the time, blaming the whole thing on COVID. I'm so sorry, but um, my show ain't ready. We've tried absolutely everything that we can to put it together in time and for it to be good enough for you, but we've been absolutely destroyed by delivery delays and COVID. Half my crew, half my team are down with COVID, they still are. And it's been impossible to finish the show. And I can't give you what I have right now. Um, and I'm gutted, I'm gutted, and I'm sorry it's so last minute. We've been awake for over 30 hours now. She's gutted, she's gutted. Trying to figure it out and we've run out of time and I'm so upset and I'm really embarrassed and I'm so sorry to everyone that's traveled again. <sighs> Isn't she also pregnant? I'm really, really sorry. Not quite. Really we'll get sorry. to that in a second. Um, what you, not quite. Isn't that like a we're yes on it. No? We're going to reschedule all of the dates. We're on it right now. I'll explain shortly. Um, and I'm going to finish my show and I'm going to get it to where it's supposed to be. Now for you, I'm so, I'm so sorry it's been impossible. We've been up against so much, and it just ain't ready. Well, this all wasn't true, or at least it mostly wasn't true. There were various reasons this show was canceled at the last minute. She had a lot of creative differences with Caesars and with the set designer, who was a very famous set designer. She had a lot of differences with that woman and with Caesars itself. They wanted a big, spectacular show. She wanted to just get up there with a microphone and sing. They were constantly at odds. She also was having major issues with her boyfriend, whose name is Rich Paul, who's a uh, an NBA agent. And LeBron James' best friend. Yes, and LeBron James' good friend. And uh, she was having big-time relationship issues with him and was seen uh, like 
crying on the phone with him hysterically and you know, during rehearsals and they had to keep pausing the rehearsals so she could take calls from him that her mind was entirely on rich paul and not the show and then on top of that she didn't like the way the show was anyway what they were demanding of her and then also on top of that she doesn't like performing anyway so a lot of stuff was happening so what does she do she hides behind covid and says i'm good i'm good this show ain't ready it ain't ready uh, delivery delays and to some people it fooled them at first because this was when omicron was at its high and a ton of people were sick with omicron and there were delivery delays of things but she probably took something that was a real story that they you know they probably did have some delays and just made that the entire reason when that was probably a minor inconvenience at most and what also didn't make sense was that they canceled the entire residency of three months when uh, supposedly they just had some delays of delivery. You know, and it, even if her staff is sick, well, they're going to get better. So how can you cancel it three months from now? It didn't make any sense. So it was very clear there's more than that. And stories came out and she looked very bad. And a lot of people were very angry. And they were pissed that she didn't say something before. Because all she had to do was like three days in advance instead of one day is say, we're not having the show. It's not happening. And then people in the UK don't get on that plane. Even if they lose the money for the flight, at least they don't get on a long flight all the way from London, which is very long. You know, it's like 10 hours with a, with a stop usually too to get to Vegas. And uh, they don't do that. They they stay off the plane. Even if they lose money out of it, at least they don't take a pointless trip. There ain't no Concorde coming to Vegas, buddy. Yeah, there's not anymore. Yeah, not since that uh, unfortunate accident in 2000. So... People were really pissed off, and rightfully so. And I covered it extensively on the show. And you heard what she said at the end here. Oh, I'm going to make up the residency. Don't worry. We're going to get this done. I go, yeah, sure. This is someone who hates performing. And there's all these other issues. And she doesn't even like what Caesars wants of her. And I said, yeah, she, she was going to make a lot of money from this, but it looked like to me this was never going to happen. Well, it actually might. And when I say might... I really mean might, despite what's being said right now. So apparently, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Well, Caesars has made another deal with her. It is being reported for her this time to perform at Planet Hollywood in what is known as the Zappos Theater. And supposedly, while no dates have been announced, this will take place either in late 2022 or early 2023. Now, Brandon mentions that she's pregnant, and I said not quite, and he wondered why I said that. It is true, you can't be uh, half pregnant. But she is not pregnant, but she says that she wants to have a baby in 2023. So she wants to get pregnant. And uh, she's targeted 2023 that she wants this to occur. Is she still with the LeBron James? I believe so. She's with uh, the the friend of LeBron James. Not with LeBron James himself, but with a friend, a Rich Paul. I think she is still with him. And uh, they're still working out the schedule. She is going to get a, quote, large cut of the ticket sales. And this is going to help her, the venue change, because the Caesars Coliseum held 4,100 people. The Zappos Theater holds 7,000. So she's going to get a large cut of the ticket sales, and she's also going to have full creative control. One of the things that was said she was complaining about was that Caesars wanted her to 
rise out of a pond and appear like she's walking on water like Jesus. You think, you think like when she gets into a fight with LeBron, she comes out like in a gown and she's like, hello, it's me. Like, and you know, that like she does that whole thing to maybe, you know? Well, did you hear what she said about that pond back then in January? That she no, didn't, didn't. She said. I, I find her obnoxious. She said. Honest, I'm not going to rise out of this. It's a baggy old pond. It's a baggy old pond. I'm not going to rise out of a baggy old pond in my I mean, shop. She's got a gorgeous voice. It's just not for me. Yeah, that's how her I feel. Voice is amazing, but it's just not for me. That's how I feel. I, I really not enjoyed her music, but yeah, I, I see the talent she has. Well, I will tell you something very, very interesting. Uh, now, I don't know. Maybe this means something. It probably does, I guess. So Caesars announced today. Did you see the Caesars news? No, I actually did not. Uh, so what kind of fraud show is this? You don't even know what the hell's going on out there? I have had a lot of big stories to cover here. I've had to do a lot of research. So Caesars announced or confirmed uh, in some call with analysts that they are already in this early stages. Or actually, I'm sorry, not even the early. I guess the, the mid stages of selling a property. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah, I, know, but I, I just didn't on, announce it because they, they haven't said which one yet. They wouldn't go on record and say what it, which one, but they've already confirmed that they're past just initial exploratory talks. So I guess my point is a lot of people just assumed it would be Planet Hollywood or, or, or you know, there's a decent shot that it would be, it's, you know, wouldn't be Bally's, you know, because of the World Series. It's not going to be the link because they spent so much money on that on that. So anyhow, people just assume. But with this being announced, does it make it less likely that it's Planet Hollywood? Unless something in the unless they are there so much money. Well, unless they are planning to have the sale be finalized after the latest possible date of this residency. Maybe since she wants to have this baby in 2023, that maybe that uh, if she is going to be done with this by the end of 22 or the beginning of 23, if they think that the sale won't be through until like March all of right, 23. Well, stop the train for a second here. What do you think? Which casino? when all is said and done will be the one they sell. Well, I've talked about this before out here because I've heard this rumor for a long time and I've said I think it's, not it's a rumor, they're saying it's true. No, I'm saying before when it was a rumor and I was saying okay. that I think it's going to be Planet Hollywood and I so said the I. reason is because it, it doesn't really it's all the way on the side so it doesn't break up the whole block of Caesar's properties and it doesn't even quite fit in with everything else they have. They can basically drop it. It's just something off the side they can drop that's not going to really interfere with what they have going on there in center strip so that's why i thought it was going okay, to be sold. so if it wasn't that one what would be the most likely secondary one see that was so, right yeah. so that became a very tough one there were ones i could eliminate it wasn't going to be caesar's palace and yeah you know, bally's in paris were unlikely for the, what you just harris, said maybe could it be harris it, harris was the other was the second most because that's <coughs> on the other side that they right. could drop off so Harris is one, and the Flamingo's being talked about, but that's kind of sort of in the center. So what are they going to do? They're going to have this one property in the middle of that whole group of properties surrounding right, so that what link. What about the hotel? No one's talked about this. That's on the busiest intersection, they say, or the second busiest. It always rotates in the whole United States, which is Tropicana and Las Vegas Boulevard. Yeah, but they don't own that. The, the Cromwell. No, but it's not on Tropicana. It's on Flamingo. Or I'm sorry, Flamingo. That's what I meant. Flamingo and uh, and Las Vegas Boulevard. That Cromwell's worth a lot of money. That real estate on that corner. Do you think that that's a possibility? It is that. somewhat because uh, at least it's it's not directly connected to that uh, Link uh, open air mall area that they've uh, invested a lot of money in. I just would feel weird for me for the Flamingo, which is directly connected to it. 
that there would just be this one property that they don't own in that whole group of them. At least the Cromwell is right there on the corner, so that's not uh, directly connected to all that, and it would be a little less weird to be just to have that be something else. I still think it's going to be Planet Hollywood when all said and done, but we'll see. Yeah, I think so too. I think it'd be Planet Hollywood. I think Harris is probably second because they can drop that and not have it interfere with everything else going on on that block, on that set of, a group of blocks there. But uh, yeah, this may be happening soon enough to where they can get rid of it. And, and maybe then they would move her back to Caesars if she wants to come back a second time, if somehow a miracle occurs and this is successful. And when I say successful, I don't mean they won't sell tickets. I mean her getting through it. So the, I, this is what I don't get. And I compared it to a root canal, believe it or not. Have you had a root canal before? I had one. Okay. One ever. That's it. Twenty years ago. So, and it wasn't pl- wasn't no dude, no joke. Those things aren't fun. Yeah. So I said, let's say you really hate root canals, but you know you've got to get one. You say, okay, you know, I'll just tough it out and deal with it, and you go get it. But what if you heard that for twenty consecutive weeks you have to get a root canal every Saturday and Sunday? You, you would say, what? I, that would be torture to every weekend to do this. Like that's how she feels about performing. So she can force herself to get through one and vomit afterwards and so everything like she, that. I don't understand. She don't need the money. Why is she doing it? Because they are paying her such big money that even for someone rich like her, it's something pretty major what she's getting. So she keeps forcing herself to do it. I, I don't. I'm not in her head, but this is my assumption. But she That's has known. That's the same theater that that Britney Spears was at. I saw her there once. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw Jimmy Fallon there. Um, I wonder if she's making more than Britney. I mean, Britain, oh yeah, she, yeah, she, she's got to be. So, and now this is not an everyday residency. This is presumably going to be just like the deal before, where she performs every Saturday and Sunday, and that's it. So she does have five days off in between. But still, this is someone who hates performing so much that that one performance stresses her out. If you told her, "Hey, you're going to have one performance in August," she would sit here dreading every day about that one day in August she's got to perform. So she's, she's going to do a residency here. I mean, I don't get it. I I don't know why Caesars didn't understand. I mean, the first time. I felt that they just didn't do their due diligence and, and research her repeated dropping out of shows with flimsy reasons and realize she just she's gone on record before saying she hates performing and you just don't invite someone to have a residency unless you have a really strong contract with major penalties for backing out, which apparently they didn't. So I thought this was just typical Caesars fail, but okay. They, well, there's, they, definitely, there's definitely an insurance carrier for that. Uh, but I wonder if they won't even, because of her history, you know, they won't even insure her. No, I bet. I bet pre- it wasn't insured for this. I bet it was something like if if a disaster happens that prevents the theater from running or something like that, or maybe like another COVID thing. But I, I bet just her deciding that she's it, it ain't ready, it ain't ready. I'm got it. I'm got it. I bet. I bet they won't get covered. So I, I think they just took it up the ass on that one and just didn't see this coming because they were stupid. But okay, so lesson learned. So now how do you do this again? Now maybe they're going to have a better contract this time with with penalties and everything to where they're not going to get as fucked if she backs out of this. It's just hard to picture she's going to do some kind of real residency for months, even just on weekends, and get through it okay. She's the same person. How much is she going to change? Now maybe her relationship won't be in as bad a shape. And uh, maybe with creative control, she won't have that stress that she had with this. I know this was a number of things together, but this is still someone who hates performing. This is not someone who loves performing that just was in a bad spot at the time. This is someone who was in a bad spot at the time and hates performing. 
and I think the second thing is more uh, significant. Yeah, I'm seeing in this article on TMZ, she is still with Rich Paul, and in fact, uh, she has been going to NBA games with him and even went to a London gay bar <laughs> with him. <laughs> I don't know why they're going to a gay bar together, but I, I think she has a lot of gay fans. Maybe that's probably why, but um, they, they went to a gay bar together. And uh, But yeah, there will be people still paying a ton of money for this. By the way, did you hear about how Caesars lied the first time around about how you cannot get these tickets comped, which never made yeah, any sense I to me? Yeah, I hearing that. And then it turned out it wasn't true. They just said it to make it sound more exclusive, but they yeah. they were sending... Not only couldn't you... They claimed you just can't get a comp, period, which I knew was complete bullshit. But not only could you get them comped, but they were sending them out to just kind of like medium rollers as offers. It wasn't even like going to Wales. It was going to Wales too, probably, but it was also going to the, like, you know, middle stakes players who regularly played at Caesars Properties were just getting offers in the mail. People were posting them on Facebook groups that were part of. So I laughed at that, that they just outright lied about that. But whatever. I really uh, think this has a much higher chance to have some kind of fail than to succeed. I can't see her getting through all these shows. Unless they're going to really cut down how many she does. Maybe if they bring it down to six shows, she can do it. But if it's like 20, forget it. I just can't picture it. You had to give it your best guess. What do you think she's getting paid per show? Uh, provided they or, or the whole deal or whatever. Yeah, it, you know, it's got to be over a hundred million dollars. I think the last one was. It was a lot of money. That's why she put herself through it. That's why, yeah, you know, because you have to be like like a billionaire to where you're going to say a hundred million. You know, I'll pass because I don't like it. Even if you're very rich, it's hard to turn down $100 million. So is Elon Musk going to do something he doesn't like for $100 million? Of course not. I mean, he's plunking down $44 billion for Twitter. Or $54 billion, not $44 billion. That's incredible. Or no, it's $44 billion. It's 54 is the stock price, $44 billion for Twitter. But uh, So you, you offer Elon Musk $100 million to do something he doesn't like, zero chance he takes it. But uh, yeah, there's Elon Musk rich, and then there's Adele rich. And She's probably you know, richer than every single person listening to the show by a wide margin, but still, a hundred million plus dollars for doing twenty performances—it's hard to turn that down, even if you hate it. Now, you probably—if you do want to see this show—it probably is just going to be a singing show where she just gets up on stage and sings. By the way, the gay bar here—you you know that. Uh, that old picture that we have on Poker Fraud Alert that says G-A-Y? Yeah. I think it's actually that bar in London. I think it's actually that exact bar. I'm seeing a picture in the background like where that's up there next to her. That's funny. It all, come, it all comes back. There was a picture that uh, started using on Neverwin Poker back in the 2000s because I would type G-A-Y in the chat when I would uh, take a bad beat, which at the time was not... Uh, politically incorrect like it is now it's a, d- a different day in the mid-2000s that's the latest adele news we will continue following this and see if there's any further developments which i'm sure there will be and i'm sure there will be a lot of fail and seizures will look stupid and you know how that goes all right so uh, before i do the editorial about the roe versus wade and i'll ask you your opinion on that as well but uh, before i get into that we're uh, done with all other topics that we had on the schedule. So do you have 
any topics of your own that you'd like to discuss? No, I don't. Hmm. Okay, well, that's good because, you know, I'm not all that energetic at this point. I'm getting tired, so to get to the final thing, and that is something that has nothing to do with poker or gambling. It's the big story in the news, the likely end of Roe versus Wade, something I didn't think was going to happen. I don't just mean like recently. I mean like I didn't see that changing any time in my lifetime. It just has been there for 49 years. And while there were people on the right who did want to do away with it, I just didn't think that Republicans would want to touch that. It could be political suicide. And I still think it's political suicide. So let, let me explain how I feel about this and ask Brandon how he feels. And my opinion on this is going to be different than you hear from most people, whether on the right or the left, it's going to be different. First of all, my first reaction when I heard about this was, oh no, this is going to really throw a wrench into what seemed like a almost sure major Republican victory in the midterms, which I've been looking forward to. And now, who knows? I think they're still going to win, but uh, I thought this was going to be a beatdown, a 1994-style beatdown in the midterms. And now I'm not so sure, because this really, really changes a lot of things. And I don't understand, even though, yeah, the Supreme Court is supposed to be nonpartisan, and they're not supposed to worry about how it's going to affect the Republican Party when they make a decision, still, there is influence. There the court is really not nonpartisan, even though it's supposed to be nonpartisan. Right. So what are you going to say? No, I said right. I'm agreeing yeah. with you. Yeah. So believe me, if there was uh, pressure from within the Republican Party, like, okay, you want to do this, fine, but don't do it till after the midterms, uh, they would have held off till after the midterms. Because that's how these judges got there. They got appointed by Republicans. So they, they do feel in a way they owe them a little bit, where they, they're not going to fuck the party if the party doesn't want to do something in most cases. And the, the same is true of the, the the left-leaning judges for the Democratic Party. And you may say that sucks, and I'll agree with you, but that's just the way it is. So, apparently, the Republican Party was fine with this, which I thought was weird, because what do you do when the midterms are coming up, when everybody's pissed off at the opposition party, at, at the Democrats, everybody's pissed off at them, when inflation is very high, Gas prices are high, foreign policy is all messed up, and everybody's pissed off about a lot of things the Democrats are doing, and they're out of touch, and even their plans going forward are things people don't like. And and, and they're, they're, Democrats are arguing for things that are not popular among moderates and independents, things such as uh, taking parents' voice away from what's taught to their kids in schools, to the... Uh, uh, to the whole uh, extreme transgender uh, ideology, to the COVID restrictions, to the dumping free money to the economy, and, and nobody wants to work, and uh, the supply chain problems and the inflation. A lot of this is, is connected, but I mean, people are really unhappy about this. And I'm talking about moderates and independents and people you know, who, who were voting Democrat for a long time, but aren't like super far left. A lot of them are like, screw this, this, this administration under Biden has been a disaster and we're voting the other way. And that's what it looked like was going to happen. So when that's going on and when the Democrats are not even taking corrective action, but they're just continuing to fuck themselves, the smart political move, if you're the Republicans, is do nothing. Don't do anything to change it. Sit back, 
let the Democrats beat themselves as they have been for the past year plus and just walk into an easy win. That's all you need to do. And you don't do anything to change that. You don't change the narrative. You don't do anything controversial. You just sit back and let the out-of-touch party that is pushing things that the middle-of-the-road voters hate, let them keep doing that and clobber them. And that was the trajectory we were on. Well, who knows now? Because now one of the most controversial things to possibly do is looking like it's about to be done. And that is the removal of Roe versus Wade. That was pretty shocking when this leak occurred, which that in itself is kind of disturbing too, that this type of thing can get out that's considered a huge breach of the court and it's never happened before. But uh, putting that aside and just discussing the uh, Roe versus Wade situation itself, there's a lot of poor understanding of what's really going on, of what's going to change, of uh, what this means, and also what might have caused it. So there is an inaccurate view of many on the left of the motivations of what uh, Republicans want. So Republicans who want to see abortion illegal are not doing it because they want to control women's bodies. They're not doing it because they want to keep the patriarchy going. They they don't do it so they can... uh, uh, keep poor people down, or whatever these conspiracy theories are that are always thrown about about the evil Republicans of why they're doing this. I always hear, oh, Republicans don't they don't care about about uh, the lives of the unborn. They care about control. They want to control women. That's, that's not true. That's not true for the vast majority of Republicans who are pro life. The vast majority of Republicans who are pro life are doing it because they believe that abortion is killing of the unborn. Now, you may not agree, but that is why the majority, religious and non-religious, feel that way. And those that are trying to do it to, quote, control women are the extreme, extreme, extreme minority to the point where it shouldn't even be discussed. Now, you can say that you don't agree with it, and you can say that uh, you feel that uh, women should have a right to do it, but uh, you have to understand the motivation first and not just attribute the most evil motivation possible in order to further your argument, because it's just not true. And I know this from speaking to other Republicans. I, I guarantee I've never had a discussion with another Republican who said, hey, you know, we, we can't let anyone know this, but isn't it cool how if uh, Roe goes away, we can control women now? Women are going to have less control and we can uh, not let them have abortions. <laughs> nobody, nobody has this conversation. Nobody thinks this way. So that, that's the first thing to understand before people get too angry about this whole thing. Second is that this is not outlawing abortion. This transfers the decision on what is legal and what is illegal regarding abortion to each of the states. And you may say, well, but that sounds awful because there are certain states that are controlled by Republicans, especially ones like in the Deep South, such as Alabama, that will make it completely illegal and maybe even completely illegal in the cases of rape and incest. And you may say, that's terrible, and how could you be okay with that? And my answer is, I'm not. I don't think that's right. I don't think that should happen. So then why is this uh, not something that I'm outraged about? Well, first of all, I will say again that I'm unhappy with this decision from a political standpoint. I think it's a huge mistake, just from the standpoint of Republicans' political chances. 
But as far as the standpoint of uh, right and wrong with this, I understand both sides of this, and I'm actually someone who was once pro-choice through about age 20. Through about age 20, there were two positions I took that were more with agreement with the left than the right. One of them was free speech, which uh, the party has since moved to, to agree with me, so I thank them for that. And the other one was abortion, where I was pro-choice, and other Republicans I knew mostly were not. When I was 20, a weird thing happened to start to change my mind. If I gave you a million guesses, you'd never figure out what it was. It was a dream. Someone on a BBS. No, it was not a BBS. It was a dream. Yeah. It was a good guess. That, yeah, that would have been a good guess. That would be an easy guess. But I'm talking about the, yeah. a very tough guess. It would be a dream. So right. what, what happens when I was 20 years old, I had a dream that for some reason I was supposed to uh, shoot a cow dead. A specific cow, and I was given a, a gun, I think it was a shotgun, and I was supposed to shoot this cow, and I kind of didn't want to do it. But, uh, and I forgot why I was under pressure to have to do this, but, you know, in dreams it doesn't always completely make sense. But I felt like I, I really was under pressure to shoot this cow dead. And the cow wasn't doing anything. Actually, I was supposed to kill the cow for some reason. So finally well, I decided. You decide, have known to like a steak dinner. Well, right. And it's, that's, uh, but it is true. I, you know, I wouldn't enjoy killing a cow. Now, even though I eat hamburgers and steak, so you know, to be the one to actually do it is different than eating the product that comes from it. But uh, I really didn't want to do it, but I, I finally said, okay, I'll do it, fine. And I, I brought the gun over to shoot the cow dead in my dream. And the cow looked at me, and I looked at the cow's eyes. And for some reason, I like saw into the eyes and I had this really emotional response that I couldn't do it looking into the cow's eyes and that I almost saw like a, a human soul in it. It was really weird. And uh, I, I all of a sudden got super emotional and then I woke up still feeling super emotional. I spoke to my then girlfriend that day, who, by the way, was uh, pro-choice, very pro-choice. And I told her this dream, not even thinking anything about abortion. I mean, who would think of abortion with this? And she said that this could have been a dream about abortion, because a cow could be a symbol of fertility and that uh, um, this could have been like how you would feel about aborting a baby. And I thought, I don't know if that's true, but that's inter that's an interesting interpretation. And she was basically trying to say that I was, uh, uh, that I was kind of pro-life and didn't realize it, which is weird because she was pro-choice and clearly pro-choice. But this actually made me think, rethink, shall I say, my position on abortion, which previously was that, while well, I don't like to see it happen, that it's just something that uh, otherwise isn't fair that, uh, you know, a, a girl gets pregnant, what if she's a teenager, and why should she have to ruin her life over this? And it's just, uh, you know, it's just a kind of clump of cells at the beginning. And furthermore, you know, it, since there's no way to verify whether an ended pregnancy was done intentionally or was a miscarriage, that it's it's not even uh, possible to really legislate this. So these were all the reasons I was pro-choice, and I started to rethink it. And uh, when I, I was thinking about it, I came more down on the side of being like personally pro-life to where I just would not want abortions to be done, even if I uh, caused an unwanted pregnancy. And uh, I 
decided for myself, even though this wasn't going to be my choice if it were to occur, but I decided for myself that if I did get a girl pregnant in the future, even one that I would never want as the mom of my kid, that I would just take responsibility, deal with it, not encourage an abortion, try to discourage one. And, uh, you know, as I said, it wasn't, wouldn't be my choice if she wanted to, if she could do it and I couldn't stop her, but uh, that would have been my position on it had this happened. And in fact, I, I, I had a scare at one point several years later that I thought I got someone pregnant. It turned out I didn't. It just uh, had a lot of signs like it had occurred, and it turned out it didn't. But that was still how I felt. So it wasn't even like what I said I would do, but then when it came down to it, that I wouldn't. I actually still felt that way when I thought this accidental pregnancy occurred with a girl that I really was not interested in being with any longer. So it was uh, not even someone I was really into anymore. So anyway, uh, I I then changed to being like personally pro-life, but legislatively pro-choice where I just felt that still it was not practical to outlaw early term abortion and the biggest reason is that it's too hard to actually police because about a third of all pregnancies end in miscarriage a lot of people don't know that but about a third of all pregnancies do end in miscarriage so if a pregnancy just doesn't go through if it just ends how do you know whether someone got an illegal abortion or whether it was just a miscarriage. There's no way to tell. It's not, it's not like having an actual kid and then the kid just disappears one day or is found dead and then there's a lot of questions and the parents have to answer for it. Uh, when there's a miscarriage, it's something very common. It happens to a third of all pregnancies. So there's no way to tell the difference between that and an abortion. And uh, it just isn't practical. And, the, and if you look at what was happening before Roe versus Wade, there were a lot of these uh, back alley abortions that were very dangerous for the girls and, and actually some women died getting these performed by doctors or even non-doctors in many cases who were not qualified. So uh, for all these reasons, I thought, you know, I don't like to see it happen, but I don't think this should be something that's illegal. It's not something I would want for myself, but uh, I don't want to make this illegal. I want this to be available. It just makes sense from a practical standpoint, even though I don't really like it. That was my position then. And that is still my position now. So when listening to the rest of this editorial, keep that in mind. You're not listening to someone who is obsessively pro-life. You're speaking to someone who actually was pretty much okay with the way abortion law was 30 years ago. Now, 30 years ago, something uh, fairly big happened involving abortion law that many of you may not know about. Most of you know about Roe versus Wade in 1973, but what you may not know about was the 1992 update to the whole thing. And uh, that's something important to know about because uh, that will explain the rest of my feelings in this whole thing. So Roe versus Wade was last seriously challenged in 1992. Some people, especially those on the left, have been saying that Republicans have been trying to uh, defeat Roe all along, and that there's been just frantic attempts to get rid of Roe versus Wade. The Republicans have been just concentrating for almost 50 years now to overturn it. Well, there's been some who would love to see it overturned, but that has not been a priority of the Republican Party or of Republican politicians for 30 years even if some have been unhappy about it existing, it just hasn't been a priority. It's been a background issue. 
It comes up in presidential debates, but that's about it. So in 1992 was the last time there was a real challenge to it. And uh, there was a case that uh, ended up as a landmark ruling known as the Casey case. Not Casey Kasem, but Casey case. Not Casey Anthony either, right? Not Casey Anthony. Hi, this is Casey Kasem counting him down, and uh, this is dedicated to a woman who's having an oh, abortion. That sounds actually pretty good. She writes, Dear Casey, I had a boyfriend. Can you do, can you do a shaggy? Let, let Casey finish talking here. Right. A woman writes to me and says, I had a boyfriend who got me pregnant eight months ago. I was very happy with him, and we loved each other very much. Unfortunately, we're both quite young, and we didn't have a lot of money, but we had our love that sustained us. Unfortunately, my boyfriend walked out on me yesterday and told me he was in love with another woman. I have decided to take the important step and the difficult step of terminating the pregnancy at eight months, citing anxiety. Well, I don't like terminating a baby who is eight months in the womb and viable outside the womb. Sometimes you just have to make tough choices. Casey, I would like to dedicate this song to my baby that I'm about to murder. Here's your request and dedication. So, uh, anyway. What th- about, can you do a Delilah after dark? No, no, that, that's, I can't do Delilah. It's much tougher. <laughs> I, I do remember Delilah, though. I think Delilah Hold had like, on. she had like, she had like 12 she's adopted on kids. The air. I don't ever listen, but once in a while, I don't know what channel she's on out here, but once in a while, you know, I, I normally listen to satellite radio when I'm in the car. I'll turn on the FM and I hear her old raspy voice <laughs> talking about, you know, somebody in Des Moines with a heart broken and here's, you know what I mean? They, just, yeah, she she has like a lot of uh, middle aged women that like listening to her. But yeah, I, I was uh, never a big fan of Delilah. So you know who else is still out there? I heard the other day on an internet podcast. Do you remember the fabulous sports babe? Yes. Do you even know that name? Yes, I do remember the, the ESPN fabulous babe. sports babe. Yes. Like she was like supposed. To, I guess she was part. Was she like the first like talk show host that was like syndicated at her own? I think she was. Like this is like in the early nineties. I yeah. think. I remember, okay, all right, go on. So in uh, 92, they changed the standard for what would be an appropriate time to have an abortion. So they previously had it from Roe versus Wade that they would do it by trimesters. And it was decided that the first trimester, that it could be elective. The second trimester, only if there's... uh, some sort of uh, health issue with the baby or the mother, and the third trimester only if it's a really exceptional case where the mom's life is in danger. In 92, they updated this because a lot changed in medical technology in those 19 years. And number one, they realized that fetuses could be viable at 23 or 24 weeks rather than 28, which was believed in 1973, And also they thought that the whole trimester thing just wasn't very good at deciding when you could uh, perform legal abortion. So what they did in 92 was they said that that abortion is forbidden after 24 weeks unless the mom's life is in danger or she's facing crippling health problems. That wasn't the exact text, but that was the spirit of the text that – 24 weeks was the line that the states were not supposed to cross, but 
that uh, they upheld Roe otherwise, that it was uh, supposed that abortion had to be available in all 50 states in uh, early term, and that uh, up to 24 weeks, that the states could kind of decide how they're going to handle the, the middle term for situations like if the baby has Down syndrome or whatever, they kind of let the states decide what they're going to do with that, but that after 24 weeks, uh, that it's considered a viable baby, and therefore, viable meaning could live outside the womb, and therefore is a human being, and uh, unless it's going to kill the mother or severely change the mother's life uh, with major, major health problems that would decimate her, that uh, abortion would not be legal. That was the ruling in 92. And that's the way it stood for 30 years. Now, I'm actually okay with that. I don't love the states being able to make whatever rules they want all the way up to 24 weeks, but... uh, For the most part, I'm okay with that because at least it is protecting viable fetuses. But there is one big flaw in this Casey ruling in 92, the updated row that stood for 30 years. And that was the text saying that abortions can occur after 24 weeks if they affect the life or health of the mother. Life or health. Well, life is pretty obvious. Either your life's in danger or it's not. But health, what does health mean? Does health mean really major health issues or any health issue? And does it mean physical health or does it mean mental health? So if a woman comes in at eight and a half months or even close to nine months and says, I'm feeling very anxious. I have a lot of anxiety. This pregnancy has brought me a ton of anxiety. And I don't know if it's going to go away. I want to abort this baby at eight and a half months. That could be legal if the state allows it, because that's health, right? So that was the problem. They didn't specify what health meant. And whenever you have a law that is too broad, then it can be taken advantage of. And that's what ended up happening. So what we have seen, and some people don't believe me, but you can go look this up. What we have seen is that a number of states, blue states, all blue states, I'm not saying all blue states did it, but all the states that did it are blue, have allowed either abortion on demand, meaning you can just go in for any reason and abort the baby after 24 weeks. I don't even know how that's legal, but somehow uh, Oregon allows that. Or, in most of the cases where it's allowed, that it must threaten the mother's life or health. Health can mean whatever the state determines health means. So there's a number of states. Here's a list of them, of states that allow abortion after 24 weeks, meaning all the way up to, up to birth. It could be a day before birth. As long as it threatens the mother's life or health, and health could mean anything, even a minor problem, if the state determines that. Arizona, California, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Illinois, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Nevada, New York, Virginia, and Washington. Every single one of them went for Biden, by the way, in uh, 2020. Idaho, Michigan, and Rhode Island say that it has to threaten the mother's life. So that's that's fine. Uh, and then several states allow it if it threatens the mother's life or physical health, but that still is too broad. So uh, really what they should have is uh, life or physical health to a certain standard, to where it would, it would uh, be crippling whatever term they want to use. So it can't just be, oh, it's going to leave me with back pain for a while. It has to be something very serious to kill a viable baby 
that uh, is developed enough to live outside the womb. That, that's the way I feel it should be. Otherwise, I feel it's murder. But keep in mind, that's, that's the way the law is in these states. You can walk in and get an abortion at any time, any time in Oregon. You can get an abortion in many of the other states by getting a quack doctor to rubber stamp that your life or health is in danger. Not life. They'll never say life. The doctors won't lie like that. But they'll say health because health can mean anything. So as long as a quack doctor, of which there's many out there, will rubber stamp that, quote, health is in danger, which can mean anything, then you can get a late-term abortion in a lot of these states, which is just, to me, straight-up murder. I can't even believe that this is legal, but it is. This is perverting the concept of Roe versus Wade. When Roe versus Wade was passed in 73, this was never intended. When it was updated in 92, this was never intended. If you had said either in 73 or 92, even to people on the left, that you feel that late-term abortions, when there is no physical danger to mom or baby, should be okay, they would treat you like you're crazy. Even left-wing liberals would have said that back then. That's how far we've come, and that's how much the original spirit of Roe versus Wade, including the updated spirit 30 years ago, have been perverted by certain states because they are using what I call the health loophole. So is this something that's gone unnoticed? No, conservatives have noticed this for years. And I know this because I read conservative Facebook groups. I watch conservative uh, YouTube programs. I speak to other conservatives. And every time that there's uh, an updated law that's more permissive about late-term abortion, conservatives get super outraged, even just amongst themselves. They can't believe this is happening. They can't believe that actual babies that can live outside the womb can be killed just if the mom changes her mind. Now, Pete Buttigieg made a famous uh, speech, I think it was on a TV show or something, an interview, where he uh, stated why late-term abortion should be legal. And he was saying that uh, it should be between a woman and her doctor. And he said a woman who is seven and a half months pregnant is not going to take it lightly. And she's probably already picked out a name for the baby and decorated the baby's room and then really anticipated it. And if she's going to abort it at that point, there's got to be a really, really good reason and we shouldn't interfere. And all these people on the left were sharing this everywhere on Twitter and showing what an eloquent speech that uh, Pete Buttigieg made. Well, little problem there. The late-term abortions that are done because the mom just changed their mind are not done by 35-year-old women living in the suburbs who are married and have a room ready for the baby. They're done by young women who are broke, whose boyfriends just left them, or ones they threw out because they were abusive, whatever it is, where they're now single, young, broke, alone, and they don't want this baby anymore. And they think, well, crap, that's not what I thought when I was going through this pregnancy. In fact, I even found a tweet from a blue checkmark Twitter account, which I know is just one person, but this is someone who really expressed the sentiment that is common these days on the left regarding uh, late-term abortion and why it should be okay. Uh, they, they weren't trying to make it about late-term abortion, but they inadvertently did. And uh, I'll read this to you here, and it really makes the point that uh, I've been trying to make for a long time, but this is actually someone who is trying to say why this Roe versus Wade decision would be so bad, and they didn't realize they inadvertently made the point for the other side. There's a woman named Stephanie Land. I don't know who she is, but she has a blue check mark. She said, losing access to abortion will be deadly for those who are in an abusive relationship. 
not only for the pregnant person who's now forced to be tied to their abuser, often drugged through court in endless custody cases, but maybe even the child forced into that situation. Even then, the blame will always fall on the pregnant person's shoulders for getting in that situation and for choosing the wrong partner. Suck it up and deal. You made your bed. Yeah, I've heard all that too. Then as a single mom, there will be non-existent housing, very little food, no reasonable access to health care, child care, mental health care, work, education, or transportation. This will force an entire generation deeper into poverty. But sure, go on about pro-life. Now, she was so proud of herself that she was making these points. And I said, wait a minute. She just made a very realistic point about how many women will justify aborting late-term babies. They'll say, I'm with an abusive guy. I don't want to be tied to him for the next 18 years. Even if I leave him, I'll be tied to him because you know, he's going to have visitation and everything like that. I don't want to see him for the next 18 years. I just want to make a clean break. And I can't do that if there's a baby with him. Or what if you get left? Or what if you're broke? You know, There's a lot of reasons women may need to abort a baby. So I said, yeah, this, these are exactly the reasons that get thrown out there of why women will abort babies late term. It's not just because their life or health is in danger. And these are not good reasons to kill a baby that's about to be uh, born, that's fully viable. At, at some point, you've just got to say it's, it's a human being now. You can't kill it. I watched my son be born. I watched him come out. He was not any less of a human being 10 minutes before he came out. He was still a baby. He was still a human baby 10 minutes before he came out, just as much as he was after he came out. Even if legally his time and date of birth was right when he came out, he was still just as much a human being 10 minutes before, the day before, the two days before, one month before. Now, when does that stop? I don't know. But if the baby can live outside the womb, there's no question it's a human being, and there's no question killing it is murdering it unless you're trading one life for another. You shouldn't make a mom actually risk her life to have a baby. It's also reasonable why a mom should not cripple herself having a baby. And if these problems exist, which are pretty rare, but if these problems do exist, then fine. It sucks, it's tragic, but then the baby has to be aborted. But aside from that unusual circumstance, you shouldn't just be able to because you're with a boyfriend you don't like. Even if he is abusive, then leave him, divorce him, whatever. You have to deal with custody. That happens all the time. People leave abusive relationships all the time. You can't kill your kids on the way out. That's crazy. But this is the way a lot of them think. So my point is here that states have been legislating abortion for a long time, especially recently. Recently, there's been a lot of these laws permitting late-term abortion that weren't there before. Last few years, some of them have been doing it. New York did it a few years ago. A very large state, obviously. And several others have done this in the last few years. So states are already making their decisions. This isn't a federal law. Roe versus Wade was a decision. This is not a law. And uh, states have been making laws, and they've been ignoring the spirit of Roe versus Wade. So you've either got to be pro-states making the law, or anti-states making the law. So if you want to say, I think there should be a federal law which is sensible regarding abortion, something maybe similar to what was the ruling in 92 regarding Roe versus Wade, fine. And I can be with you on that. But if you want states to be able to make the law only if it's permissive for abortion, to where late-term abortions can happen for any reason, but you're outraged when conservative states want to outlaw it, 
then you're not being fair. You're not being realistic. You can't say states should make the law only if I like the law. It's either states can make the law and should, or states shouldn't be able to. And there should not be an in-between. And for those that believe that this Roe versus Wade ruling that transfers it all to the states is such a tragedy, then you explain to me why you haven't been bothered that states have been making laws about abortion, including the legalized murder of babies right before birth. Why haven't you been bothered the states have been making those laws all these years, if states making the decision so bad? Now, something I've heard from a lot of people is that, well, this hardly ever happens. Late-term abortion is its only a small percentage of all abortions. And of the late-term abortions, a lot of them are ones that should be medically necessary. So why are you so worried about the small percentage that are women who are voluntarily ending a late-term pregnancy that don't have to? Well, because it's murder. It's legalized murder. The town I live in has very few murders. Does that mean that they should just permit murder in this town as long as it doesn't go over a certain number of murders per year? You could legally murder until we get to 10 murders a year? Like, like what, what does that mean? How can you say we can legalize murder as long as it doesn't happen too much? It's either allowed or it's not allowed. And right now in some states, all blue, where it's allowed, you can do it. You can walk in for any reason, get rid of your baby a day before birth, and it's completely legal. You don't even have to say your life's in danger. You don't have to get a doctor to lie for you. You can be totally honest about the situation and legally have your baby murdered a day before birth. It would be completely legal. And if you can support that law in these states, then I don't know what to tell you. And it doesn't matter how common it is. It matters that it's permitted. And you may say, well, why are you concerning yourself so much with such a tiny percentage? Well, why did they concern themselves with this in these blue states to allow it? Why is it allowed at all if it's something so inconsequential? Well, the truth is that a lot of people on the left are so obsessed with body autonomy for women and women's, quote, rights and and not having men control them that everything else goes out the window, including preventing murder, including preventing actual murder. It's so important that women can make the decision anytime because it's their body all nine months that even if they want to kill the baby one day before birth, it should be their right because it's their body. Absolutely not, because it's not their body. It's two people's body, two people's bodies in one. So once the other body is a human being, which for sure they are if they can live outside the womb, then it's two human beings in that body. It's not one. Just because this isn't super common doesn't mean it should be legal. Now, what does this have to do with the Roe versus Wade decision, though? I, don't, I haven't seen the, the full decision, but I, I believe it doesn't really mention late-term abortion. So why, why am I going on about late-term abortion? I'm trying to say that what has really gotten conservatives riled up in the last few years about abortion has been these late-term abortions. That is why there's been this push after 30 years of it being relatively stable, of not any kind of real challenge to Roe versus Wade for 30 years. That, that's why this is happening now, because there's been this increasing acceptance of late-term abortion like it's no big deal. So conservatives are finally like, you know, fuck this. Let's just make the whole thing illegal, which I don't agree with either. But that's been the attitude. And now you see the result. And furthermore, even if you don't believe that's the reason, you, you can't explain, you can't logically defend the aborting of, of kids that, uh, that that are viable outside the womb 
when the mom and kid are physically healthy. You can't. There's there's no way to defend that. So uh, as long as you support that, then you are not really understanding the abortion issue. Or if you are, you're extremely cold-hearted that you think it's okay to murder babies just because they technically haven't uh, exited the womb yet. What I feel about this here is that, one, I think this shouldn't be happening. I think they should just leave Roe versus Wade alone. They should leave it the way it was in 92 for both political purposes and, uh, you know, I don't support it going back to the states because there will be some states on the other end and the Republican end that will completely outlaw abortion. There will be some that may even outlaw abortion in the cases of rape and incest, which I definitely don't support outlawing that. So I wouldn't be happy to see that. But uh, there's something, if, if asked what I would want, I'd want them to keep the 92 interpretation, but add something to modify it again to outlaw late-term abortion. Anything after 24 weeks, outlaw it completely unless the mother's life is in danger or critical health is in danger. Otherwise, too late. And I would also require something prior to 24 weeks, I'm not sure at what point, which would require that there is... uh, some sort of issue with the baby, some sort of major issue with the baby, such as Down syndrome, whatever, that uh, sometimes it's only discovered in the middle term, but that it would have to be something like that. You can't just decide at the 23-week mark, yeah, you know what, I've changed my mind, I'm done. Like, that shouldn't be allowed either. So I'd be fine with a law that disallows things like that and definitely disallows the late term, except in extreme cases, but that preserves abortion in all 50 states early and that preserves the right to early abortion in the case of rape or incest that would be what i would like to see happen i think the late-term abortion is an abomination and uh, anyone who says that's about women's health or women's rights doesn't understand and there, there's these viral things going all around facebook and twitter about uh, all these different situations where abortion is uh, you know is, is something that's not bad and it's reasonable and okay you know i read some of these and i go okay you know i can can understand i don't agree with it personally but i can understand it but these are things that should be done early and except for the major birth defect situation which should be done kind of early middle there's no excuse for the late-term abortion in most cases and definitely not just because you change your mind or you're feeling a little bit anxious or whatever then for that to be legal you should never have a law I'm hearing background noise here, by the way, Brandon. But, it's not me. Well, there's nobody else. It's only me and you. Well, I mean, it's it's something. I mean, I'm just sitting here. Okay. There's nothing. I'm in the office. There's no noise. Okay. There's a ceiling fan. That's it. Oh, whatever. It's it, well. I'm going to ask your opinion in a second, anyway. But there should not be any kind of law for anything. Forget abortion. There should not be a law for anything, which counts on just people won't do it. You can't say, well. I don't think women will murder their babies in this way, so let's just make it legal because no one's going to break that law. No, no one's going to actually do it, so we, we don't have to worry about legislating against it. That's not how laws work. Laws prevent things that you don't want to see happening that are wrong. It doesn't matter how many people do it. It matters if it's right or if it's wrong. That's when you make a law. You don't say, well, we don't want women just murdering their babies because they don't really want to have the baby at this point now that their boyfriend left them at the eight-month mark, but... I can't see any woman doing that. So let's let's not make that illegal. That's not how laws should ever work. So that's 
how I feel about this. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of you disagree with me. But please think about this with an open mind. Remember, I'm not advocating outlawing abortion. In fact, I would not want to see states outlaw abortion. And you may say, well, but some of them are going to if, if this goes to the states. And I say, yeah, that might happen. And that's why I don't think this is a good idea. But the present way we're doing it is also not a good idea. It's an even worse idea that they have these uh, late-term abortion on demand or on rubber stamp from a quack doctor. That's horrible. So that shouldn't be going on. So, okay, you want the states to decide. You may not like what all states decide. That's the problem. And I, I think some conservatives aren't thinking of this either. The conservatives say, oh, great, they're getting rid of Roe versus Wade. Okay, well, if the states are all deciding, that's going to validate the, the states that want to allow late-term abortion for any reason. That, that's going to put the nail in that coffin, literally. So I don't know what you guys are celebrating about, and it's going to screw you in the November election, possibly. It's not a good idea to overturn Roe versus Wade, but not for the reason that everyone's been saying who's against the overturning of it. Brandon, what is your opinion on this whole matter? Um, I'll be honest. I came on here to talk about poker. I don't, okay. I no, no, I mean, I get it. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not putting, you know, disrespect to anything you're saying, but I don't really want to get into all that. All right. Um, that's fine. I mean, no, it's nothing personal. I mean, no, I, you know, I respect your opinion. I mean, I, I listen, I guess the best thing I can say is I agree with a lot of what you're saying that it's, you know, but, but listen, the only thing that, that I don't really understand or that doesn't make sense to me is, you know, I'm your age. I'm a little bit younger, but I remember living in an era where people, kids, teenagers, you know, adults would have to, like, drive to neighboring states to get abortions because it was banned in the state that they're in. So which, in essence, just circumvented the law. But, I mean, do you, you remember? I mean, maybe you don't remember it like, you know, like you had new people that did it. But, you know, I'm sure you read stories. and no, I, I, I don't remember that. I don't remember. I know this was happening before Roe versus Wade. But I, I didn't think that was still happening after that. Uh, I, I definitely didn't. Okay, I didn't hear about that. So there well, may have been some states that were. States that had, like, term limits on abortions versus other states. Oh, that okay. More... That, that's, that's a different story. That's, that's people well, who waited too long. And, uh. And we're getting it in it, well, you, too long for their state, but not too long for the neighboring state. Right. Or, or, right. You know, listen, I know people and I'm, I mean, I'm just saying I'm not making excuses, but I know people that even in this day that are adults are like are like two months pregnant and they and they realize they're pregnant. Like they're not. I mean, they just realize no, that's still know, considered but, early. That's still that's still early. I wouldn't want to see well, that not, outlawed. Yeah. So uh, anyhow, I don't know. I kind of the only thing is I, I think I've always been in favor of of a federal law in terms of like something like that, because it just seems silly to me. Like, even like, even like I was talking to someone about this today, even like capital punishment, it seems silly that I can commit a crime here in Nevada and I could, you know, be killed, you know, or I can be sentenced to to death yet. Now in California, I believe there's, there's still a moratorium on the death penalty. Is that correct? Yes. So I could commit the same crime in California. And I, I, it's just, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand. I mean, I understand, but it, it all that has always been odd to me how you can do certain things in one state and then in a different state, the ramifications are harder. So anyhow, the point is, if this becomes that where some states are legalizing abortion, others aren't, there's different rules. All it's going to do is, is this going to be an influx of people traveling 
you know, to different states as they see fit. I mean, that's really what it becomes. No? Well, actually, there, there's, there's a plan to deal with that. The states that would outlaw it would actually make it illegal to leave the state to get an abortion with, with a stiff penalty for it. But uh, as I was saying earlier, that's a hard thing to verify as long as you keep your mouth shut about it. And, and especially if you do this early, if the pregnancy just yeah. disappears, okay, well, I had a miscarriage. What can I do? And a, a third of the pregnancies yeah. end that way. So that, that, that's the end of prosecuting that, unless you're dumb enough to shoot your mouth off that that's it's what you did. It's strange to me. It's like all things old or new again, because, you know, a lot of people that are younger than us won't remember this, but people that are our age, our generation will <clears throat> in the nineties and eighties and, and, you know, probably up to like right around when maybe Clinton took office, this was like the biggest issue of social debate. I mean, I remember literally as a teenager quite frequently turning on the news or reading a newspaper and seeing abortion doctors killed and seeing – I mean, I lived in Florida where one of the most famous cases occurred. Do you remember doctor uh, – he was a, a doctor in, I guess, in, not in, in medicine, but anyhow, he was a, a Presbyterian minister named Paul Hill. He was the gentleman that assassinated – an abortion doctor and their bodyguard and a nurse in Pensacola. Do you remember? I mean, it was like a very famous. Yeah, case. yeah, I remember Maybe that. I'm, and I remember, I, I, I remember, remember that, that. And I remember some that. similar cases that that happened around the country. All, it was all over. Like that was a very common thing back then. I mean, people don't realize that back then, abortion doctors used to literally like have to arrive at like the you know by the cover of dark. They all had bodyguards. Like there was a real threat, a real peril to their lives. Like that was kind of like you know. Do you remember that? You don't, you yeah, don't no, I do remember that. that, and uh, it did, as I was saying earlier, after 92, that is really when the whole thing stabilized, and, and maybe partially because of that ruling, and that really, while it's been brought up sometimes, like in presidential debates, it has not been under any kind of uh, real attack, this uh, Roe versus Wade ruling, right. uh, nor, ha have, as you mentioned, the, the violence against abortion doctors has decreased, and the whole thing has kind of been pushed to the background. But tell me, how, it makes, how does it make sense that you can commit a crime or, or you can't do something in one state, but then the neighboring state you can't? Well, like, I, I think a lot of things I agree with that, because I, you have to think of the U.S. as not uh, one government, but actually as kind of a co-op of 50 different governments, and that they're just under one umbrella, but that uh, they are really 50 different governments that mostly function independently, but that you can freely travel between all 50, and that there's uh, a lot of cooperation between them on, on issues like national defense and things like that, which are all uh, under the same umbrella, but, but really, for the most part, it's 50 different governments, and the truth is, your day-to-day -day life is really dictated by your state government much more than the federal government. A lot of people don't realize that, but that, that is the case in general. So I'm, I'm actually for states' rights and for states uh, making their own decisions with a lot of things. In fact, I would, uh, I would really like to see that be the solution... Uh, I, I mean, for a long time, I was saying that not only should that be the solution for uh, gambling, which it is, you know, any state can make gambling legal, but for sports betting, I was saying for a long time, this should be up to the states, and now it finally is. And I was also saying it should even be up to the localities within the state, where localities that want it can have it, and ones, like I'm talking about casinos, and ones that don't, don't have to. So I, I'm much bigger on uh, more local and state rule on a lot of things, especially state rule. But uh, there are some things that do require federal law, and I, I think this probably should be one of them. But it, I think a lot of people on the left would not be happy with what would be a fair federal law. I think what people on the left would be 
picturing is a federal law that would just allow what they're allowing in New York or Oregon and and not something that is more resembling what was in New York and Oregon. Well, in, in New York, you can just get the rubber stamp of, of the mother's, quote, health being in danger and get an abortion at oh, any time okay. up to nine months. Oregon, you don't even need that. Oregon, you can do it any time. So I think they're picturing like federal protection for that everywhere. And they're saying, oh, that's what that's what we need. Women should just be able to do what they want when they want. And I say, no, that, that would not be a good federal law. A good federal law would be something that's kind of like a compromise, kind of like what this 92 interpretation was with, right. with some additional modifications that would protect early term abortion and would protect middle term in cases of, of major birth defects and, and would protect uh, rape and incest and would protect uh, any point when the mom's life or critical health is in danger, but, but uh, outlaws a lot of this other stuff. And I think the left would be very unhappy if they heard in all 50 states at the seven and a half month mark, if a woman uh, wants to get an abortion because uh, her life circumstances changed or whatever that she can't. I think they'd be very upset and say, oh, this is controlling women's bodies, blah, blah, blah. They, they'd be very upset. So for all this talk of, oh, this is a tiny percentage, let's not worry about this. I'm telling you, if, if that was a proposed federal law that is a compromise, most on the left would not go for it. They say, nope, we want the women to decide this with their doctor at any point. I mean, that's what Pete Buttigieg said, and this was shared everywhere by people on social media showing what a great point he brought up, and this is how they feel. And I'm going, no, this, this is saying all you need is a quack doctor to rubber stamp that you have some kind of minor health issue, and then you can get a legal abortion of a baby that's viable outside the womb. Uh-uh. Can't ever have that can't ever have that be legal you can't control when people break the law but you cannot legalize murder you just can't you cannot legalize murder this just, and that's what that is and people say oh it's not murder no, it is it's a, how is it different to kill a baby a day before birth than after birth how is that any difference if, if you have a baby and then uh just uh, murder it on the day it's born everybody would agree that's murder Everybody should agree that this would be a, a very, very stiff penalty for doing so. So how is that a terrible crime, one of the worst crimes possible, that would result in a tremendously long sentence, maybe a life sentence, maybe a death sentence? How is that resulting in that type of sentence? But if you abort the baby a day before, well, you know, we don't want to make that illegal. What? What? That doesn't make any sense. So a lot of times there's an attempt to move or hide the ball in this issue that, oh, you know, women who are getting abortions at eight months, it's, it's, they're only doing it because their health is massively in danger. And that's just about always why it happens. Okay. If that's what you think, then make that the only exception. No, we don't want to do that. Why not? It should be up to her and her doctor. Why? You're saying doctors always do the right thing. They're always ethical. They won't do anything just for money. They won't rubber stamp things just for money. Of course they will. There's a lot of shit doctors out there. There's a lot of greedy doctors out there. There's a lot of scammer doctors out there. You cannot allow a quack doctor and a woman who just wants out of a bad situation in her relationship to murder a human being viable outside the womb, even if it's not super common. You cannot legislate that's okay. Yet it has been done. So that needs to end. And if you don't want it to end, then you're not taking the whole abortion thing very seriously. You're not really thinking about what the other side is saying. Because I'm thinking about what the other side is saying. And I am because I'm not saying outlaw abortion. 
I'm actually saying don't overturn Roe versus Wade. I'm saying don't allow states to completely outlaw it. And there's listeners to this show who are on the right who are probably upset to hear me say that. They're going to go, oh, I thought Ruff was conservative. How can you say that? I mean, the, the late-term abortion and the support of it. It's not even like I'm even getting people saying, well, I'm very against this, but it, it, it's rarely going to happen, so let's not worry. I, some say that, but some actually say, well, it's rare, but oh, yeah, also it should be allowed. should be up to the woman. It's her body. And you know what else I hate? This is just something people say, which is stupid. Why should men determine what women do with their bodies? What? So you have to be like the person you are making a law about in order to make that law? You can't make a law about uh, seniors if you're not old yourself. You can't make a law about kids if you're not a kid yourself. You can't make a law about discrimination against black people unless you're black yourself. Like That's so stupid. Of course you can make laws that are about people that are not like you. And that also is assuming that men are the only ones who are pro-life and the women are all pro-choice. One of the people supporting this on the Supreme Court is female. So how do you explain that one? And some of the men against it, some of the people against it, they're they're male. So the gender should not matter here. It shouldn't be you don't have say because you're male. Also, I hate to point this out, but uh, it takes a male and female to create a child. And they have equal rights under the law. And that's something that's always ignored, too. Is uh, What about the father's rights? Yeah, it's not being carried in his body, but it's still his kid. And can you imagine how you would feel, for those of you who have kids especially, you can think about this. Imagine how you'd feel if the day before, or even the month before, or the week before, that your baby was to be born, that you had a fight with a mom, and she aborted your baby. How would you feel? I mean, you'd be furious. You'd feel like your baby was just murdered. You'd be right. But the left actually wants this to be legal. And it is legal in some places. That's my big problem. And that's what has outraged conservatives to go too far the other way. They're like, okay, this is what you're going to do. Watch what we're going to do now. We're going to do what we've really wanted. But we haven't because we haven't wanted to touch this. At least not seriously enough to do it. But okay, you want your late-term abortion? We are going to outlaw the whole thing because we don't believe in abortion at all. And that's how you get here, when you make excuses for the extremes. And that is my feeling on this Roe versus Wade thing. Abortion isn't going away. It's going to definitely be there in most states, even if this occurs. This just ends the uh, federal government uh, control of it. Really, I feel it's, it's either up to the states or it's not. I don't think it should be. But if it is going to be up to the states, then you've got to support it being up to the states that you don't like. You can't just support the states you like. It'd be like saying, I think casinos should be legal in Las Vegas, but only casinos that I enjoy going to. If I just don't enjoy a different casino, then I think it should be illegal. I think gambling should be illegal unless I like the casino. You couldn't say that. So then that should never be how laws work. It should, If you want it to be up to the states, I understand it, but then it needs to be up to all states. And you're not going to like the results of that on either side. All right, that's all I got. 
hopefully I didn't piss off too many listeners here that I'm sure I'm going to get some angry texts about this and I'm, I'm part of the patriarchy. I'm an old white guy who's trying to control women's bodies. I assure you it's not about that. I, I got a text here from the 507. Uh, not about this, fortunately, but about the uh, motel reviews of the guy who was murdered in Biloxi. Well, I made the mistake of happening to be eating while you're reading the motel reviews. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a mistake. I should have put a, an eating warning, a gross description disclaimer. I guess there were some people eating late at night or early in the morning, depending on where they were. Anyway, that's, that's all I got here. Are you done, Brandon? Yeah, I'm done. I'm okay. going to sleep. I'm tired, too. By the way, for those of you that want to get the Founders card to get Diamond at Caesars, uh, don't. You're probably not going to be approved. They, they have a massive backlog of applications. And it looks to me like they are prioritizing it based upon who's paying full price. I don't have that for certain, but that is my opinion of what's going on. The full price is now $595 for one year plus a $95 application fee. And the more you get away from that as far as getting it cheaper, I think the less priority you'll have. So uh, – they got so many applications because of the end of the Wyndham status match that they feel they can do that now is what I think is going on. So that's not really a viable option, whereas all the way up through uh, early February of this year, it was. So that's kind of gone away as a decent option to become diamond at Caesars Properties. So keep that in mind if that's the plan you're using or going to use. Anyway, I, I may have some news for you soon regarding another way you can possibly get Diamond, but I'm, I'm still looking into it. Stay tuned on that. And uh, I was informed that uh, there may be some other news dropping about a totally different matter, but uh, I'm not going to get into that yet until I really see it occurs. But there may be uh, some stuff that continues poker drama in the upcoming week. But I don't want to get your hopes up because, you know, sometimes I hear stuff and it turns out not to be true. Interesting. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, Brandon, and joining us for the end of the show. And I will talk to you soon. And I will hopefully uh, be on sometime next week. I'm back on my own computer. As I mentioned before, we shall go forward. All right. Sounds good. All right. Shalom. Shalom. Thank Good day, Brandon. Me on in, uh, what, when will the next show be? The next show I will be sometime next week. Maybe on Friday, maybe Thursday. I don't know, sometime next week, it's likely. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you for having me on. No, thank you for coming. We'll talk to you later. All right. You know, I don't believe this was on my end. I think Brandon was uh, somehow rubbing against the microphone. It's a little bit loud. I bet you can't hear me that well over this. There we go. That's better. Too loud. I like to have the more faint all-in-the-family music in the background. So I can talk over it. But you still get the feeling of it. But... Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio once again. 
Thank you to Eric Benzamokin for the generous donation for the Fuck PayPal free roll. We will have more of them in coming weeks. And I'm guessing we'll have more and more poker drama. It just seems to be what's going on in the spring of 2022. I didn't have a COVID topic, but very, very briefly, not very briefly, because the song's going to end in a, a minute, but if you got the booster shot like four months or more ago, which you probably did if you got it, or if you didn't get it at all, and you have not had Omicron yet, there's a pretty good chance you'll get Omicron sometime this year. Maybe at the World Series if you go there. So just keep that in mind. It probably would not be as bad as getting Delta back when Delta was a thing. But the vaccines really don't work very well after four months, it's been found, as far as preventing symptomatic infection. And yes, that includes me, who last got my vaccine six and a half months ago. Probably not very well protected. Still no Omicron for me. I've dodged it so far. All right. That is all. Be back next week. Shalom.